This is Heisenberg. Welcome. You are about to embark on a unique learning adventure from the great courses. Our courses are crafted to be entertaining journeys, both comprehensive and fascinating. They're designed to expand horizons, deepen understanding, and foster epiphanies in a broad array of subjects and university-level disciplines. The lecturers are university professors and subject matter experts, carefully selected by the great courses and its customers for their intellectual distinction and exceptional abilities to teach. By listening for less than an hour a day, you can finish even the longest course in just weeks. Browse our catalogs or visit our website at thegreatcourses.com. And imagine how much you can learn if you spent just 30 minutes a day for the next year in the company of some of the greatest minds in the world. These lectures are titled The Addictive Brain. Your lecturer is Dr. Thad A. Polk. Dr. Polk is an Arthur F. Thurnau professor in the Departments of Psychology and Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at the University of Michigan. He received an interdisciplinary PhD in Computer Science and Psychology from Carnegie Mellon University. Dr. Polk's research combines functional imaging of the human brain with computational modeling and behavioral methods to investigate the neural architecture underlying cognition. He regularly collaborates with scientists at the University of Texas at Dallas and at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development in Berlin. Dr. Polk's teaching has been recognized by numerous awards at the University of Michigan and he has been named to the Princeton Review's list of the best 300 professors in the United States. Lecture 1, Addiction 101. I suspect most of you know people who have struggled with an addiction. You may even know a few people whose lives have really been ruined by an addiction. And if so, the following stories may sound familiar. Consider Mary. Mary was raised in what could be described as a normal, middle-class environment. She worked hard, never really got in trouble, and was accepted into a good college. Like many people, Mary started drinking in college. But unlike most people, it quickly escalated, and she began drinking every day. In her sophomore year, she got pregnant, and she resolved to quit drinking for her baby's health. But soon after her daughter's birth, she began drinking again. She loved her daughter very much, and she was motivated to be a good mother, so she tried to restrict her drinking to the evening. But she still often found herself starting to drink before noon. She would try to hide her drinking as best she could, but she confessed that she needed to drink just to feel normal. She had a hard time being effective at work because she often had a hangover, and so she'd often drink to feel better. And ultimately, she lost her job. After that, her drinking only got worse. She would often binge to the point of getting sick. Her relationship with her boyfriend ended, and her daughter said she wanted to live with her dad. He applied for custody, and that request was granted by the courts. And naturally, Mary was heartbroken. Or consider Bill. 
Bill was a mechanic his entire life. Getting his first job at age 16, he worked hard, and he had a successful career. He was also a lifelong smoker, and by age 58, he had developed asthma, emphysema, and lung cancer. In 2010, he had surgery, and he vowed never to smoke again. But after just a few weeks, he started up again. Back at his old job in the garage where he worked his whole life, his cravings were so intense that everything from his first cup of coffee in the morning to locking the shop door in the evening reminded him of cigarettes and made him want to smoke. He tried hypnosis, nicotine patches, group meetings, and acupuncture, but nothing worked. He went through three rounds of chemotherapy and radiation for his lung cancer, and he was still smoking every day. Finally, consider Jim, a 16-year-old who started drinking and doing drugs at age 12. Both his parents struggled with alcoholism for much of their lives, and although they finally managed to stop drinking, their earlier problems significantly hurt their careers. Now it's difficult for them to keep up with their bills, and they often have to rely on government assistance. In seventh grade, Jim was arrested for possession and use of marijuana, and he got expelled from school. But he still didn't stop. In fact, he found that he needed to use harder and harder drugs in larger and larger doses to get the high and the escape that he was looking for. Eventually, he got kicked out of his own home and he began living on the streets. Now, stories like these are common, frighteningly common. In fact, a, a national survey in 2012 estimated that 23 million Americans need treatment for problems related to alcohol and drug use. And roughly 57 million Americans are regular smokers, most of whom would like to quit, but haven't been able to. Overall, about 80 million Americans might be considered addicts. That's more than the population of Texas and California combined, or roughly one out of every four people in the country. Now, given these statistics, most of you undoubtedly can tell similar tragic stories about people that you know. Or maybe you yourself are struggling with an addiction that you just haven't been able to kick. The truth is, addiction touches virtually all of us, directly or indirectly. Now, for people who have never struggled with an addiction themselves, the behaviors of Mary, Bill, Jim, and the millions of other people like them might seem completely incomprehensible. How could Mary keep drinking to the point that it cost her not only her job and the relationship with her boyfriend, but even her daughter? Why would Bill continue smoking cigarettes even after he had been diagnosed with lung cancer and emphysema? And why would Jim keep using drugs even when it cost him his education and his home? I mean, why can't these people just buckle down and quit? Well, historically, addiction has been attributed to a variety of causes, including a weak or flawed character, poor parenting, or just bad personal choices. 
But in this course, we're going to take a new look at addiction. We're going to look through the eyes of neuroscience to see what we can learn. We're going to look beyond the seemingly bizarre behavior of addicts to see what's going on inside their brain. And as we'll see, understanding the brains of addicts has led scientists to view addiction in a whole new way. In particular, we'll see that addiction is associated with specific changes in the brain. And when we understand those changes, behaviors that at first seem incomprehensible actually begin to make sense. For example, neuroscientists have identified specific neural structures in the brain's reward system that play a crucial role in addiction. The reward system is what motivates us to engage in behavior that we find pleasurable, from eating, to sex, to playing sports and games. And as we'll see, recent evidence suggests that all addictions hijack this system, rewiring it to produce abnormally strong motivations to pursue the addiction to the exclusion of almost anything else. But we'll learn a lot more as we delve deeper into the brain and how it works. As surprising as it may sound, the addict's brain is actually doing the same thing human brains have always done, and in fact must do, in order to survive. It's learning. The problem is that the addict's brain is being tricked into learning behavior that's actually harmful rather than helpful. But before we get into that, we need to provide some background on drugs and on addiction. What is a drug, exactly? And what constitutes a real addiction? I mean, these are words that we use and we hear quite frequently, but what do they actually mean? And how do we distinguish drug use from drug abuse and drug dependence? Well, let's begin by talking about what we mean by a drug. A drug is typically considered to be a substance other than food that changes biological functioning when it's introduced into the body from outside. Cocaine, heroin, and marijuana all satisfy this definition, and they're often some of the first things that come to mind when people think about drugs. But other things like antacids and antibiotics also fit this definition. So what's the difference? Well, one of the key differences is that cocaine and heroin are psychoactive, while antacids and antibiotics are not. Psychoactive drugs affect the function of the brain, and they produce psychological effects, like changes in mood, in perception, and in cognition. And it's psychoactive drugs that are often addictive. So those are the drugs that we're going to be focusing on in this course. And psychoactive drugs are not limited to the hard drugs like cocaine and heroin. Nicotine is also a psychoactive drug. It also affects brain function and produces psychological effects. So does alcohol. Even caffeine is a psychoactive drug. And we'll talk about all three of these drugs in this course, as well as many others. 
Now, obviously using a psychoactive drug is different than being addicted to a psychoactive drug. In fact, many potentially addictive psychoactive drugs are used in modern medicine every day without any problems. For example, stimulant drugs like Ritalin and Adderall are very commonly used in the treatment of ADHD, despite the fact that they're potentially addictive when used inappropriately. Likewise, opioid drugs like morphine and codeine can be very addictive, but they're still the drugs of choice in the management of pain. And when implemented as directed by a physician, these treatments don't usually lead to addiction. Furthermore, millions of people use psychoactive drugs recreationally from time to time, and the vast majority of them aren't addicted either, nor do they become addicted. Consider the huge number of people who drink alcohol on a regular basis without becoming alcoholics, for example. So, this leads us to our next question. What constitutes a real addiction? Well, it turns out that answering that question is trickier than you might think. In fact, many scientists try to avoid using the term entirely because the word addiction can mean different things to different people. In everyday language, people often use the word addiction quite loosely to refer to anything that they're passionate about. For example, people might say they're addicted to golf or working out even if those behaviors are normal and actually good for them. As a result, psychiatrists often prefer the term substance use disorder rather than just addiction to make clear that the behavior in question is actually abnormal and unhealthy. We'll still often use the term addiction in this course because it's so familiar but we'll define it in the same way that psychiatrists define substance use disorders. So let's talk about substance use disorders. These disorders are diagnosed based on the presence of a subset of 11 characteristic features. If two or three of the characteristic features are present, then a mild addiction is diagnosed. If four or five features are present, then a moderate addiction is diagnosed and the presence of six or more features indicates a severe addiction. But what are those characteristic features? Well, they can be divided into three main groups. Features related to abuse, dependence, and craving. First, consider abuse. For behavior to be considered an addiction, it has to lead to significant negative consequences for the addict. That's what we mean by abuse. Some of those consequences might be physical. For example, addicted smokers often continue smoking despite the very significant health problems associated with cigarettes. Recall Bill's story from the beginning of the lecture. Bill kept smoking while going through the chemotherapy that his smoking probably made necessary in the first place. Now, this behavior would certainly qualify as abuse. Likewise, alcoholics often continue drinking despite significant liver damage. Or the negative consequences might be social and interpersonal. One of the 11 characteristic features of addiction 
is continuing to use even when it causes problems in relationships. And many addicts certainly do continue in their addictive behavior to the point that it alienates friends and family. And tragically, many addicts end up losing the personal relationships that they value most in their lives, including relationships with their spouse, their parents, or their children. Remember what happened to Mary and Jim? Mary drank to the point of losing her boyfriend and daughter. And Jim was kicked out of his school and out of his home. Well, these kinds of situations are textbook cases of drug abuse. Another abuse-related characteristic is not managing to do what you should at work or at home or school because of substance use. Put simply, addicts often end up neglecting major responsibilities as a result of their habit. They might start missing deadlines or begin skipping school or work. They might even end up losing their job as a result of their addiction. And we saw these kinds of consequences in Mary and Jim as well. When Mary lost her job and Jim got kicked out of school. In all of these cases, the drug isn't just being used, it's being abused. Abused to the point that it causes significant, even tragic consequences for the user. And that abuse is a hallmark feature of addiction. Another hallmark feature is dependence. Drug addicts often get to the point that they depend on their drug, both psychologically and even physically. One of the main characteristics of physical dependence is the development of tolerance to the effects of a drug. Addicts often need more of the drug to get the effect that they want. Their body becomes tolerant to the drug, and a dose that used to produce a euphoric high when they started using might no longer do so. And as a result, addicts will typically use larger and larger amounts of the drug to try to achieve the same high. Another symptom of physical dependence is withdrawal. If a drug addict abruptly quits taking their drug, they'll often experience very unpleasant physical and psychological symptoms. For example, alcoholics who quit often experience shakes and tremors, and heroin addicts who quit often experience anxiety and diarrhea. In fact, many addicts will tell you that they actually need to take their drugs just to feel normal. They just don't function properly without them. Well, that's a key feature of physical dependence. As we'll discuss in detail later in the course, there's actually a physical basis for these kinds of symptoms. What's happening is that the body and brain have changed to compensate for the chronic presence of the drug. For example, a regular heroin user's brain might come to expect the presence of heroin and make changes to counteract heroin's effects. Well, as a result, tolerance develops and the user won't experience the same high that they once did. And if the addict abruptly stops taking the drug after the brain has already changed to compensate for its presence, then the brain needs to change back. But that can take some time. And during that time, 
the addict will experience withdrawal symptoms. Okay, that's abuse and dependence. The third hallmark feature of addiction is craving. When they're not using, drug addicts often report an extremely strong desire or urge to use their drug. This craving can be so strong that the addict may find it hard to think about anything else. They become completely obsessed with getting more of the drug. Furthermore, environmental cues that are associated with drug use become very strong triggers for craving. For example, when a crack addict sees a crack pipe, that may trigger an irresistible craving to obtain and smoke crack. A heroin addict's cravings might be triggered by seeing a needle, and an alcoholic's cravings might be triggered by walking by a bar. This is what Bill was talking about when he said that everything at work made him want to smoke. He was a mechanic and he worked in a garage, so it was very easy for him to smoke in that environment. But he also made associations between smoking and just about every aspect of his work environment. And as you can imagine, the constant reminders of smoking in his work environment made quitting extremely difficult. So addiction is characterized by abuse, by dependence, and by craving. Addicts continue in their compulsive, persistent drug use despite significant negative consequences. That's abuse. They also develop a strong dependence on their drug that's characterized by tolerance and by withdrawal. And they experience almost irresistible cravings or urges to use their drug. Now, here's a question that you may have already asked yourself. Is it possible to be addicted to something other than a drug? After all, we hear stories about people being so consumed by gambling that they lose all the possessions they worked their entire lives to earn. We even hear about things like video game addiction and internet addiction, even junk food addiction. So, is it possible to get addicted to eating cheeseburgers or playing a video game? Well, this is an important question in the field today. And it turns out that scientists have discovered some fascinating evidence that suggests that it is actually possible to be addicted to something other than a drug. For example, pathological gambling satisfies many of the major criteria of addiction. It, too, is characterized by craving and by persistent compulsive behavior, despite significant negative consequences. And so many scientists now consider so-called behavioral or process addictions, like gambling, to be the same kind of addictive disorder as chronic drug abuse. We'll actually explore these issues in detail in the last two lectures of the course, but it'll be a good idea to keep them in mind as we go along, because it turns out that a lot of the same mechanisms are at play. So how has addiction become such a major issue today? As I mentioned, roughly 80 million Americans could be considered addicts. Now, I don't need to tell you that's not a small number. It's an astonishing number. But what's interesting is that while addiction has only recently become a major threat, 
drugs are not new. The truth is that drug use is not a modern development. Most of the drugs that people commonly use and abuse today are derived from plants. And people have recognized the psychological and physiological effects of those plants for thousands of years. There's evidence that by the year 3400 BC, the Sumerians were aware of the psychological effects of the opium poppy, from which opium and heroin are derived. Likewise, South Americans have chewed coca leaves containing cocaine for millennia. And evidence from pottery jars in China suggests that people have been drinking alcohol since at least 7,000 BC. Nevertheless, it's definitely true that drug addiction has become much more of a problem in the last 150 years than it ever was before. And one possible reason is that about 200 years ago, people began isolating the active ingredients that produced the psychological and physiological effects associated with these plants. And they were therefore able to make much more potent forms of the drugs than had ever existed before. For example, in the early 1800s, scientists isolated morphine from opium, and a few decades, decades later, they synthesized heroin from morphine. In 1859, cocaine was isolated from coca leaves, and alcohol has long been produced in more potent forms by the process of distillation. Now, some of these developments actually represented major medical breakthroughs. In particular, physicians finally had relatively pure drugs that were much more effective than anything they had before. For example, morphine provided very effective pain relief for soldiers injured in the Civil War. And in fact, morphine is still the gold standard painkiller in medicine today. Now, when these addictive drugs first became widely available in the 1800s, they were completely unregulated. They were sold as miracle cures by traveling salesmen, and they could be purchased from catalogs through the mail. Morphine-based syrups were often used to treat teething pain in infants. Heroin was sold as a cough suppressant, and cocaine was used as a core ingredient in a popular elixir. In the early 20th century, the first skirmishes in the war on drugs began in the United States. In 1906, Theodore Roosevelt signed into law the Pure Food and Drug Act, the first federal law regulating drugs and food. Although drugs like cocaine and heroin could still be sold as ingredients in products, the law required truth in labeling. The products containing these kinds of drugs had to be labeled as such, and improperly labeled products could be seized and destroyed at the manufacturer's expense. In 1914, the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act required anyone selling or giving away products containing substantial doses of cocaine or opium to register with what today we would call the Internal Revenue Service. It also made opium itself available only by prescription. And then came prohibition. In 1917, the U.S. Senate proposed the 18th Amendment to the Constitution, 
which banned the sale and production of alcoholic drinks. The amendment was ratified in 1919 and it went into effect on January 17, 1920. But prohibition was extremely controversial and a huge number of people continued drinking in spite of the law. And in 1933, the 18th Amendment became the only constitutional amendment ever to be repealed. In 1934, the Uniform State Narcotics Act brought the ever-growing number of state laws restricting narcotics into alignment. It also included measures to strengthen their enforcement, though that remained the responsibility of the states. The 1960s saw a revolution in social norms and the rise of new anti-establishment countercultures in the United States. This was the era of the hippie movement, of psychedelic rock, and of the sexual revolution. And a very significant part of this counterculture was the free use of recreational drugs, particularly marijuana, LSD, and psychedelic mushrooms. In the early 1970s, President Richard Nixon described drug abuse as public enemy number one and he signed into law the Controlled Substances Act, which was part of an attempt to create a unified and comprehensive federal drug policy. This act strictly classified which types of drugs were to be regulated, restricted, or banned outright, and it created two federal agencies, the Food and Drug Administration and the Drug Enforcement Administration, to implement these regulations. So it was at this point that the United States openly declared an official war on drugs. And that war rages on. Although with roughly 80 million addicts in the U.S. alone, it appears that we're losing. And the consequences are quite grave, economically, medically, and personally. Consider the economic impact that drug addiction has in the U.S., for example. The National Institute on Drug Abuse estimates that the abuse of tobacco, alcohol, and illicit drugs costs the United States about $600 billion a year in costs related to crime, lost work productivity, and health care. That's over half a trillion dollars every year. Now, in terms of overall costs, alcohol abuse is the worst offender. It's estimated to cost about $235 billion per year. That's roughly $750 per person and nearly $2 per drink. That total includes increased costs of health care due to the treatment of alcoholism, significant productivity losses in jobs, and property damage due to crimes and automobile crashes, among many other consequences. Now, the abuse of tobacco and of illicit drugs are each estimated to cost nearly $200 billion each year. Now, for tobacco, about half of that cost is due to the substantial price of health care for tobacco-related illnesses. And for illicit drugs, a large proportion of the cost is related to crime and the criminal justice system. Well, of course, those are just the economic costs. The costs in terms of human lives are much more tragic. For example, 
Smoking-related illnesses are estimated to kill over 5 million people worldwide each year. That's over 500 people every hour. Alcohol is involved in about half of all highway deaths. And the number of deaths due to drug overdose now exceeds the number of vehicle-related deaths in 29 states. Furthermore, about a quarter of intravenous drug users in the U.S are infected with the AIDS virus, typically due to sharing dirty needles. Drug use is also associated with a significantly higher incidence of other sexually transmitted diseases, such as syphilis and gonorrhea. More personally, most of us know people whose lives have been touched by an addiction. Perhaps you know an alcoholic whose family has fallen apart. Or Maybe you know a chronic smoker who has developed significant health problems as a result of their smoking. Maybe you know a teenager who got hooked on drugs and whose life got off track. We also undoubtedly have some people taking this course who are struggling with an addiction themselves that they'd like to kick. Addiction affects almost all of us. And my hope is that this course will help you develop a better understanding of addiction, how it works, and how it manages to take hold of so many people around the world. Throughout the course, I'll still steer clear of any moral judgments about drug use and drug addiction. I also won't make any recommendations about how we as a society should deal with the problem of addiction. I mean, after all, my expertise is in science, not in politics or ethics. My intention is simply to provide a relatively objective presentation of scientific findings about addiction. I'll then leave it to you to draw your own conclusions. But hopefully, those conclusions will be much more informed than they would have been without taking the course. Next time, we'll dive into the brain's reward system. This is the neural system that gets hijacked during addiction. So understanding how it works will be an important step in understanding the neuroscience of addiction. See you then. Lecture 2. The Psychology and Neuroscience of Reward. Welcome back. We began this course by exploring similarities that a wide variety of addictions share. We looked at some of the major behavioral symptoms of addiction, including tolerance, withdrawal, and dependence. We also briefly mentioned that all addictions work in the same basic way, by hijacking the brain's reward circuit and reinforcing harmful behaviors. Today, I want to go inside the brain itself to show you how that reward circuit actually works and how its inner workings shed light on addiction. Along the way, we'll answer a question that's fundamental to the course. How do we actually learn from experiencing rewards or pleasures? And how does that experience reinforce the behaviors that led to that reward? We're going to approach this question from two angles. First, we'll talk about the psychology of reward processing, starting with Pavlov's famous dogs. Then we'll turn to the neuroscience of reward processing and discuss some controversial experiments that attempted to locate the brain's pleasure centers. 
As we'll see, these two lines of research have recently converged in remarkable ways to provide new insights into the connections between how our minds and our brains process rewards. And in the next lecture, we'll see how those insights have dramatically changed our understanding of addiction. So let's begin by talking about the psychology of reward processing. I want to start with a famous experiment that you may be familiar with. Ivan Pavlov's study on classical conditioning in dogs. It turns out Pavlov was not a psychologist. He was actually a physiologist. In fact, he received the 1904 Nobel Prize in Physiology for his research on digestion. Pavlov actually discovered classical conditioning by accident when he was studying salivation. He had developed an experimental setup in which he could collect saliva directly from the salivary glands of dogs when they smelled or saw food. But Pavlov noticed something unusual when he measured the output of saliva. The dogs were salivating as soon as he or his assistants entered the room even though they couldn't see or smell any food yet. Pavlov got interested in this phenomenon, and he began studying it directly. For example, he tried ringing a bell before the food was presented. Now, of course, the first time he rang the bell, the dogs didn't salivate. That makes sense, because they didn't associate the bell with food. But what he found was that if he consistently rang the bell before the food was presented, then pretty soon the dogs would associate that bell with food. And so now he could just ring the bell, and the dog would salivate even if there wasn't any food present. That's the phenomenon of classical conditioning. Pavlov had conditioned the dogs to associate the bell with the food, and that led to the conditioned response of salivation. Now one early explanation of Pavlov's conditioning results was based simply on co-occurrence. Maybe what's happening is that the bell and the food co-occur in time, and whenever stimuli co-occur like that, they become associated. Furthermore, the more frequently they're presented together, the stronger the association gets. And sure enough, Pavlov found that if you present the bell with the food more frequently, then the association does get stronger. However, subsequent experiments posed problems for this simple co-occurrence explanation. Suppose you've conditioned a dog to strongly associate a bell with food. But now imagine that you start presenting another stimulus at the same time as the bell. For example, maybe you ring the bell and then you make a salute. And only then do you present the dog with food. And you do this every time. Ring the bell, make a salute, and then give the dog food. Now, the question is this. Will the salute become associated with the food, too? Specifically, after enough training, will the act of saluting lead to salivation even without the sound of the bell? Well, according to a simple co-occurrence explanation, the prediction would be yes. After all, the salute is co-occurring with the food. And so, if that co-occurrence occurs frequently enough, then the dog should learn an association between saluting and food. 
It turns out that prediction is wrong. Once the dogs learned a strong association between the bell and the food, other stimuli that occurred with the bell did not become associated with the food. Saluting did not lead to salivation if the bell was missing. This phenomenon is referred to as blocking, and simple co-occurrence theories have a hard time explaining it. So, if a co-occurrence explanation is wrong, then what is going on? Well, in 1972, psychologists Barbara Scorla and Alan Wagner proposed an answer that has become one of the most influential theories in all of psychology. Their so-called Rescorla-Wagner model was based on the idea that learning isn't based on co-occurrence, but is instead based on prediction error. So what is prediction error? Here's the idea. If you can already predict that the food is coming, then there's no real reason to change. You already know what you need to know, so there's not really an opportunity to learn something new. On the other hand, if the food shows up when you weren't predicting it, in other words, if you made a prediction error, then that's a situation where you really want to learn so that you can make better predictions in the future. So, in the Rescorla-Wagner model, when an unexpected reward like food shows up, the stimuli that were presented before its arrival begin to get more strongly associated with that reward. For example, the first few times the food shows up after the bell, the dogs probably weren't expecting it, and so the association between the bell and the food gets strengthened. But pretty soon, the dogs have developed a strong association between the bell and the food. They know what's coming. And so there's no need to change the association anymore because their prediction is accurate. Now, consider what the model would predict in the situation that led to blocking. So the dogs had already been conditioned to expect the food after hearing the bell. But now an additional stimulus, like a salute, gets paired with the bell. But of course, the dogs are still predicting that the food will appear after the bell. And that prediction is accurate. So there isn't any prediction error, and there's no need for additional learning. As a result, they don't learn an association between saluting and food. That association is blocked. Another way of describing the Rescorla-Wagner model is to say that it's a learning model based on surprise. That is, when you can already predict that a stimulus is coming, then it isn't surprising and learning doesn't occur. But if you get surprised by a stimulus, like if the food arrives unexpectedly, then you'll strengthen associations with cues that preceded the surprise in the hopes of making better predictions in the future. Now, this idea may seem simple, but it turns out that it's extremely powerful. In fact, learning from prediction error plays a major role in modern artificial intelligence in a field called reinforcement learning. Put simply, reinforcement learning refers to figuring out how to behave in order to maximize long-term reward. What action should I take right now in order to get the most reward I possibly can, both now and in the future? That's the problem that reinforcement learning is trying to solve. 
And learning from prediction errors has proved to be an extremely effective approach. But researchers in AI have added one more key idea that makes prediction error learning even more powerful. And that's the idea of backing up the prediction error. Here's what I mean. In most situations, a sequence of multiple events precedes a reward. Take a board game like chess or checkers. The reward of winning requires a long sequence of actions that slowly move you closer to the goal. So how can prediction error learning solve problems like that? After all, most of the actions don't lead to reward themselves. So how can those earlier actions get reinforced? Let's suppose you're learning chess and you stumble upon a sequence of moves that lead to an unexpected victory. Well, the unexpected success constitutes a prediction error, and so learning will occur, and the final action that led to that success will get reinforced. Furthermore, that prediction error can also be backed up and associated with earlier actions that you took that led you to the final action. And now those actions can also get reinforced more than they already were. So, this is still prediction error learning, but it's prediction error learning over time, or what's sometimes called temporal difference learning. In temporal difference learning, the word difference refers to the prediction error, and the word temporal means that those prediction errors are getting backed up to actions that occurred earlier in time. Now, to illustrate the power of temporal difference learning, consider the example of the artificial intelligence program TD Gammon. This was a computer program that played backgammon, and it was developed by Gerald Tesoro at IBM back in the early 90s. The TD in the name refers to temporal difference learning. Basically, this program used temporal difference learning to try to get better at playing backgammon. Tesoro programmed the system to know the rules of backgammon, but then he used temporal difference learning to try to figure out how best to play. At first, the program tried legal moves randomly, and naturally, it played terribly. But the program was playing itself, so its opponent wasn't any better. Eventually, the program would win a game, even though it was guessing. Now, of course, it didn't realize that sequence of moves would produce success, and so winning actually constituted an error in prediction. And such prediction errors lead to learning. So the actions that led to that reward were reinforced. And it wasn't just the final move that got reinforced. The moves that led up to the final move also got a little bump of reinforcement. Now, Tesoro never taught his program any of the well-known strategies explicitly. He just let the program play against itself over and over, using temporal difference learning to try to improve its play. And improve it did. After playing roughly one and a half million games against itself, the program had become extremely good at backgammon. In fact, it was almost as good as the best human backgammon players in the world. Furthermore, it actually came up with strategies that expert humans hadn't considered or had even ruled out. 
Some backgammon experts actually felt that the game's judgment about the value of different positions was better than human expert judgments. And the success of prediction error learning hasn't been limited to backgammon. In fact, this approach has now been used by countless AI systems to learn a wide variety of complex behaviors, ranging from cognitive skills like checkers and chess to complex motor skills like robotic walking, controlling a remote control helicopter, and even playing air hockey. So we've gone all the way from Pavlov's dogs and simple classical conditioning to learning backgammon and air hockey based on backing up prediction errors. Now I want to come at the question of reward processing from the angle of neuroscience and talk about the neural mechanisms involved. As we'll see, recent evidence suggests that prediction error learning isn't restricted to AI systems. It may actually be the way reinforcement learning works in the human brain. To explore this idea, let's go back to the 1950s when Robert Heath performed some controversial experiments on psychiatric patients. Heath actually implanted electrodes in their brains, and the electrodes were connected to a box with buttons that would stimulate the particular regions of the patient's brain. So the patients could actually stimulate their own brains by pressing a button. When the electrodes were implanted in a deep midline part of the brain called the septal region, the patients reported feeling pleasure and even excitement whenever the electrode was stimulated. In fact, they would repeatedly press the button over a thousand times and even complained when the box was taken away, asking for just a few more button presses. Now, if you're thinking this sounds eerily like the behavior of a drug addict, you're not alone. And as we'll see, the same areas of the brain are involved. The original self-stimulation studies were performed in rats by James Olds and Peter Milner at McGill University in 1954. They implanted an electrode in the rat's septal region, and they used a wire to connect that electrode to a lever that the rat itself could press. So whenever the rat's paw hit that lever, it sent electricity to the electrode and stimulated its own brain. Olds and Milner found that the rats kept hitting that lever over and over again in order to stimulate their brain. In fact, the rats would press the lever thousands of times an hour for days on end. There was no evidence that they ever got satisfied or had had enough. In another experiment, scientists even placed an electric grid between the rat and the lever. The grid delivered a painful shock, so if the rat wanted to press the lever, it had to be willing to cross the grid and withstand significant pain. But the rats were more than willing to endure those shocks to get to the lever and self-stimulate their septal region. And what's even more surprising, when scientists performed the same experiment using food instead of brain stimulation, the rats would not cross the electric grid they would rather starve than get shocked. The bottom line is that the rats would rather press that lever than do virtually anything else. 
If they had to choose between eating and pressing the lever, they would choose the lever, even if it meant starving to death. Stimulating the septal region has also been found to be chosen over sleep, over taking care of children, and over sex. Once again, this sounds a lot like addiction, don't you think? Now, brain structures in and near the septal region are actually part of a neural circuit that plays a crucial role in processing reward and in motivating us to pursue reward. Think of this reward circuit as a primitive animal part of the brain that's important for survival and that underlies our desires and drives like hunger and sex. And in addition to playing a central role in motivating normal behaviors like eating, the brain's reward circuit also plays a crucial role in the pathological behavior of addiction. So let's dive down and take a look at the major parts of the brain that are involved in processing reward. There are three main components that I want to mention. Number one, the nucleus accumbens. Number two, the prefrontal cortex. And number three, the ventral tegmental area, or VTA. Let's start with the nucleus accumbens. The nucleus accumbens is often referred to as the brain's pleasure center. This is one of the regions that both rats and humans repeatedly stimulated to the exclusion of everything else in the self-stimulation studies that we discussed. It's above and just behind your sinuses, near the midline of the brain. This region has been associated with a wide range of pleasures. For example, it's been found to be active when rats taste something sweet, when men see pictures of attractive women, and even when mothers are with their babies. The nucleus accumbens is also a major site of action for all drugs of abuse, and it's thought to play a central role in the euphoric effects that they produce. Now, let's turn to the second major brain area involved in processing reward, the prefrontal cortex. Your brain is covered by layers of neurons, kind of like bark on the outside of a tree. That bark is your cerebral cortex. If you look at a cross-section through a brain, you'll see a distinction between gray matter on the outside and white matter inside that. The gray matter on the outside is the cerebral cortex, and it's often divided into four lobes. The occipital lobe at the back of the brain, the temporal lobe behind the ears, the parietal lobe at the top of the brain, and the frontal lobe at the front of the brain. And the front part of the frontal lobe is called the prefrontal cortex, and it plays a central role in processing reward. Sort of. Actually, the prefrontal cortex doesn't process reward itself, but it's critical in controlling the urges coming from the reward circuit. Whereas the reward circuit is more primitive and impulsive, the prefrontal cortex is more sophisticated and deliberate. We use the prefrontal cortex to plan and think about future consequences so that we can make thoughtful decisions rather than just following whatever urge we currently feel. The prefrontal cortex is often described as the CEO of the brain. So like the CEO of a company, 
The prefrontal cortex doesn't perform the lower level operations of the brain, like vision or motor control. Rather, it oversees and manages the big picture operations of the whole company. It sets goals that need to be accomplished and then makes sure that those goals are actually carried out. Now, patients who have damage to the prefrontal cortex will typically exhibit the symptoms of a so-called dis-executive syndrome. These patients might be able to perform sin single actions easily enough. So they might be able to cook green beans or roast a chicken or make mashed potatoes. But they'll have significant difficulty planning and coordinating a sequence of actions. So preparing these dishes in a sequence and having them done around the same time would pose a significant challenge. Most important for our purposes, patients with damage to their prefrontal cortex exhibit symptoms of disinhibition, meaning they have difficulty inhibiting their impulses. They often have a hard time controlling their emotions, and they'll suddenly blow up in an angry outburst for no good reason. They'll also have trouble in social settings because they have a hard time inhibiting their impulses. They might become aggressive or exhibit inappropriate sexual behavior. And the prefrontal cortex also plays a central role in controlling addictive behavior. The primitive reward circuit doesn't think about consequences, and it's constantly urging us to do whatever gives us pleasure or reward. It's the prefrontal cortex that can consider consequences and exert self-control. Okay, so now we've talked about two of the major brain regions involved in processing reward. First, the nucleus accumbens, which we can think of as the brain's pleasure center. And second, the prefrontal cortex, which is the CEO that allows us to control ourselves and inhibit undesirable behavior. Now let's turn to the third component, the ventral tegmental area, or VTA. The VTA is in what's called the midbrain, at the top of the brainstem, the most primitive part of the brain. The VTA is located very near the middle of the head, just slightly above the ears, a couple of inches behind and a little below the nucleus accumbens. Now, brain cells in the VTA project to both the nucleus accumbens and the prefrontal cortex and can therefore influence both pleasure and self-control. But what's most interesting about these cells is when they fire and when they don't. Wolfram Schultz and his colleagues performed some of the most influential studies of these cells at the University of Freiburg in Switzerland. What they did was to implant electrodes in the VTA of monkeys so that they could record neural activity while the monkey was performing different tasks. In one task, the monkeys had to press a lever whenever a light was flashed. And whenever they did so, they would get a squirt of good tasting juice. And the juice served as the monkey's reward. If the monkey didn't press the lever after the light flashed, then it wouldn't get the juice. So the monkey had to learn by trial and error how to obtain the reward. Now, when the monkey first started performing the task, it obviously didn't know that pressing the lever was associated with reward. 
Nevertheless, it would occasionally hit the lever after the light appeared, and it would get some juice. And Schultz found that neurons in the VTA fired a lot when the monkey got that juice. Now, a natural explanation is that the VTA neurons fire whenever a reward is presented. And for a long time, scientists assumed that that's what these neurons did. However, something interesting happened as the monkey learned the task. Pretty soon, the VTA neurons didn't fire when the monkey got the juice. So what's going on? Why would the neurons fire initially when the monkey gets the juice, but then stop firing later on in learning? Well, Schultz proposed that the activity of the VTA neurons actually reflect, reflects a surprising reward, not just any reward. Here's the idea. When the monkey is first performing the task, he has no idea that hitting the lever after the light appears will lead to a juice reward. So when he gets the first squirt of juice, he's surprised and the VTA neurons fire a lot. However, pretty soon the monkey realizes that hitting the lever after the light always leads to the juice reward. And he can therefore accurately predict that the reward is coming. And since the reward is no longer surprising, the VTA neurons don't fire when it happens. They only fire for unexpected rewards. But Schultz also found something else that was very interesting. After learning, the VTA neurons fired when the light flashed, as if the reward had backed up from the juice to the light that preceded the juice. Now, can you think of why that would be? A flashing light certainly isn't rewarding by itself, so why would the VTA neurons fire in response to the light? Well, Schultz's explanation was that even though the light isn't a reward itself, it does predict future reward. Furthermore, the timing of the light isn't predictable. It's a surprise. Schultz therefore proposed that activity in the VTA neurons reflects reward prediction error. Whenever the light is off, the prediction is that there will be no reward, but as soon as the unpredictable light comes on, the VTA neurons fire signaling that that prediction was wrong. Now, does the behavior of these neurons ring any bells? When these neurons fire, that doesn't necessarily mean that a reward has ar arrived. Rather, it means there's been a reward prediction error. And recall that prediction error is just what the Ruscorla-Wagner model used to signal a need for new learning. So, we see a convergence between the psychology of reward processing and the neuroscience of reward processing. But the convergence goes even further than that. Remember the key idea behind temporal difference learning, the algorithm used in AI research? In addition to learning based on prediction errors, temporal difference learning backs up that prediction error to previous stimuli like earlier moves in chess or backgammon that set up the final winning move. And that's exactly what Schultz observed in these VTA neurons. After learning, the prediction error signal backed up from the juice to the light. So we have this very close correspondence between the temporal difference algorithm and the activity of neurons in the VTA. And don't forget, 
AI has demonstrated that temporal difference learning is extremely general, powerful, and effective. So it makes sense that the brain would be using a very similar approach. This convergence of brain evidence with the psychological evidence has led many neuroscientists to conclude that prediction error learning, and specifically temporal difference learning, may be one of the fundamental mechanisms of learning in the brain. Furthermore, this type of reinforcement learning from prediction error is now widely believed to play a central role in the neuroscience of addiction. In our next lecture, we'll bring all this together. We'll combine what we've learned so far about addiction with what we've learned about the brain's reward system to see how our reward system can get hijacked and actually encourage addictive behaviors. To do that, we'll dig a little deeper into the brain and explore how drugs of abuse affect the reward circuit and ultimately change it. See you then. Lecture 3, How Addiction Hijacks the Brain For a long time, many scientists favored a negative reinforcement model of addiction. The basic idea is if you become physically dependent on an addictive substance like alcohol or heroin and you stop taking it, then you'll experience negative symptoms of withdrawal. Maybe you'll get the chills or tremors or other negative symptoms. So, in order to relieve those negative symptoms, you take more of the drug. The unpleasant withdrawal symptoms provide negative reinforcement that leads you to take more of the drug, and an addiction is born. But recently, scientists have identified some problems with the negative reinforcement model of addiction. One problem is that the withdrawal symptoms of some of the most addictive drugs are actually less severe than the withdrawal symptoms of less addictive drugs. For example, chronic methamphetamine users who abruptly stop taking the drug don't usually experience severe physical symptoms. Now, they might experience some anxiety and irritability, and they might sleep more than usual, but they're not usually in significant physical discomfort. In contrast, withdrawal from alcohol is potentially life-threatening. Chronic alcoholics who suddenly stop drinking can experience very severe physical symptoms, including seizures and delirium. So, if addiction is fundamentally about avoiding negative withdrawal symptoms, as the negative reinforcement model assumes, then alcohol should be significantly more addictive than methamphetamine. But it isn't. In fact, methamphetamine is more addictive than alcohol. So that's obviously a problem for the negative reinforcement model of addiction. Withdrawal symptoms also usually go away once a user has stopped taking a drug for a week or so. So if compulsive drug use is primarily about with avoiding negative withdrawal symptoms, then the addiction should go away when the withdrawal symptoms do. But it doesn't. In fact, drug addicts are often susceptible to relapse for years after they've quit. 
Furthermore, studies with rats have shown that developing a physical dependence to alcohol isn't enough to cause rats to continue to self-administer it. That is, you can get a rat who will clearly exhibit physical dependence to alcohol and will show signs of withdrawal when the alcohol is stopped, but who nevertheless will not self-administer alcohol when it's available. Now again, according to the negative reinforcement model, that doesn't make sense. The negative reinforcement of unpleasant withdrawal symptoms should drive the rat to self-administer more alcohol, but it doesn't. For these kinds of reasons, many scientists today favor a positive reinforcement model of addiction. The idea here is that addictive substances like cocaine and alcohol overstimulate the brain's reward circuit and provide very strong positive reinforcement. And repeated overstimulation leads to specific changes in the brain that give birth to addiction. Today, we're going to learn how that works at a neural level. We're going to dive into what's going on in the brain's reward circuit following chronic drug use and how that can lead to addiction. Along the way, we'll link what we've learned so far about addiction with what we've learned so far about the brain. We'll see how behavioral symptoms like tolerance, withdrawal, and dependence develop as a result of changes that occur in the brain. So, what does repeated use of addictive drugs like cocaine and alcohol do to the brain that makes them addictive? How does the brain change? Well, I want to talk about three major changes that contribute to addiction. First, repeated overstimulation of the brain's reward circuit numbs the response in the brain's pleasure center, the nucleus accumbens. Second, repeated overstimulation also strengthens associations with addiction-related cues, which increases cravings. And third, it weakens inhibition from the prefrontal cortex, which undermines self-control. Let's begin by talking about the numbing of the pleasure response in the nucleus accumbens. Many scientists believe that tolerance reflects the brain's attempt to compensate for repeated overstimulation of the reward circuit, and that it does so by inhibiting the stimulation of the nucleus accumbens, thereby numbing the pleasure response. Remember from our last lecture that the nucleus accumbens is often considered to be the pleasure center of the brain. It's associated with liking or enjoyment, and recall that experiments found rats would rather stimulate the nucleus accumbens than do anything else, including eating or having sex. They're even willing to endure intense pain to keep stimulating it. Direct stimulation of this area is so pleasurable that both rats and humans will self-stimulate it over and over and over for hours on end if given the opportunity. Well, it turns out that addictive drugs stimulate this area much more than normal everyday rewards do. So, while eating or reading or seeing a friend indirectly stimulate the nucleus accumbens and lead to normal feelings of pleasure and reward, heroin and other addictive drugs 
stimulate the nucleus accumbens much more directly, which produces the extremely rewarding high associated with these drugs. In a very real sense, addictive drugs overstimulate the nucleus accumbens, meaning that they produce activity levels that are well beyond the normal range. And it turns out that if this kind of overstimulation happens a lot, it can eventually lead to a numbed pleasure response because the nucleus accumbens will begin to inhibit the brain regions that are stimulating it. But how does that work? Well, the body has mechanisms that maintain an internal equilibrium. This is called homeostasis. For example, our body has mechanisms that maintain our temperature at a relatively constant level. Whether we're on a hot beach in August or in a freezing snowstorm in January. Think of it like a thermostat in your house that's trying to keep the temperature relatively constant. If it starts to get too hot, then the thermostat will turn on the air conditioner to cool things down. That's exactly what's going on in the nucleus accumbens. If the nucleus accumbens gets repeatedly overstimulated, it'll turn down the stimulation that it's receiving. It does this by producing a molecule called CREB. CREB is what's known as a genetic transcription factor. What that means is that it can turn on the cell's genetic machinery and cause it to make specific chemicals. And when CREB is produced, it turns on the machinery that makes a chemical called dynorphin. Dynorphin is like a natural painkiller that's produced by the brain itself. And the dynorphin then inhibits stimulation of the nucleus accumbens. So this is a kind of homeostatic feedback loop in the brain. When the nucleus accumbens gets repeatedly overstimulated, it produces CREB. CREB triggers the production of dynorphin, and the dynorphin inhibits the stimulation of the nucleus accumbens. Now, consider what happens in a drug addict who is repeatedly overstimulating the nucleus accumbens with their particular drug of choice. The, the dynorphin will keep turning down the stimulation, and over time, the addict will feel less pleasure from the drug. The high won't be as rewarding, and the addict will require more and more stimulation to get the same level of reward. And of course, that's exactly what drug, drug addicts report. They need more and more of the drug to feel the same high. And eventually, they need to take the drug just to feel normal. That's what I mean by a numbing of the pleasure response. It takes more stimulation to feel the same level of pleasure and reward. But note, the nucleus accumbens is becoming less sensitive to all types of stimulation, not just stimulation from addictive drugs. Everyday pleasures, like seeing a friend, or reading a book, or playing a sport, might also begin to feel numb. They won't provide the same level of pleasure that they once did. And in fact, since everyday pleasures don't activate the nucleus accumbens as directly or as strongly as drugs do, Addicts can eventually reach a point where the drug is the only way that they can feel good. Okay, so we've talked about the numbing of the pleasure response in the nucleus accumbens, 
and how that might play a role in tolerance to the rewarding effects of drugs. Now I want to talk about a second major brain change that contributes to addiction, namely the strengthening of associations between drug taking and drug-related cues, resulting in increased craving. As we discussed in Lecture 1, addiction is characterized by very strong cravings and by compulsive use despite negative consequences. Alcoholics will often keep drinking and drug addicts will often keep using despite losing family and friends, despite losing their job, and despite other significant emotional and financial costs. They're often painfully aware of these negative consequences, but they just can't stop themselves. So, where do these overwhelming cravings come from? Well, first it's important to point out that craving or wanting is different from liking. The distinction is often particularly clear in drug addicts. Remember, Liking occurs in the nucleus accumbens, and the nucleus accumbens is getting numb. And as this process occurs, how much drug addicts like the drugs actually declines over time. But how much they want the drugs doesn't. In fact, drug cravings tend to increase, even though the pleasure derived from the drug is declining. So if activity in the nucleus accumbens is associated with liking, What's the neural basis of wanting or craving? Well, to answer that question, we need to turn to the ventral tegmental area, the VTA. In our last lecture, we pointed out that activity in the VTA is associated with reward prediction, and more specifically, with reward prediction error. Neurons in the VTA fire when a reward is unexpected. Now, when VTA neurons fire, they release a chemical neurotransmitter called dopamine. Dopamine plays an absolutely central role in addiction. In fact, dopamine is so important that it's been called the addiction molecule. And it's earned that name because studies have repeatedly found that all drugs of abuse lead to a significant increase in dopamine when they're taken. Dopamine seems to play a role in every addiction that's been studied, whether it's addiction to alcohol, cocaine, cigarettes, or even gambling. Now, for a long time, scientists assumed that dopamine was associated with pleasure and liking. And they believe this for good reasons. VTA neurons do, in fact, release dopamine in the nucleus accumbens, the brain's pleasure center. Also, as we've seen, Dopamine release is associated with all the addictive substances. So it makes sense that dopamine might be playing a role in the pleasure associated with taking those substances. But recent evidence has suggested that view is wrong. For example, think about that monkey experiment with the light, the lever, and the juice that we talked about in our last lecture. In that experiment, the VTA neurons did respond to the rewarding juice initially, but they only did so when it was unexpected. Once the monkeys could predict that the juice was coming, those neurons no longer fired when it arrived. Instead, they started firing when the light came on. Now, 
The monkeys presumably still liked and enjoyed the juice more than the light. That is, it seems very unlikely that these thirsty monkeys started deriving more pleasure or reward from the flash of a light than they did from a squirt of good-tasting juice. And yet, the dopamine release came to be associated with the light instead of the juice. So that suggests that dopamine really isn't about reward or pleasure. Similar evidence comes from patients with Parkinson's disease. As you may know, Parkinson's disease is associated with damage to cells in the midbrain that produce dopamine. And so Parkinson's patients have abnormally low levels of dopamine. In fact, the most common treatment for Parkinson's disease is dopamine replacement therapy, in which patients take drugs that increase their abnormally low dopamine supply. And since dopamine also plays a major role in motor control, Parkinson's patients typically exhibit movement-related problems like tremors, slowness of movement, and difficulty with walking and gait. But here's the interesting thing. Even though these patients have low levels of dopamine and associated motor problems, they still experience normal levels of pleasure. So again, it appears that dopamine is not about pleasure or liking. So if dopamine is central to addiction, but it isn't associated with liking or pleasure, then what does it do? Well, many scientists now believe that dopamine release is associated with wanting or craving rather than liking. Now, the kind of wanting that we're talking about here is an impulsive urge not a thoughtful, long-term goal. So dopamine is the chemical that makes you want to get the candy bar when you see it in the checkout lane at the grocery store. It's a primitive, impulsive kind of wanting. That kind of wanting is different from thoughtful cognitive desires, like wanting to graduate from college or to remodel the kitchen. A great example of this distinction can be seen in smokers. Most smokers don't want to smoke at a cognitive level, and the vast majority have repeatedly tried to quit. But they have a very strong primitive urge to light up, which overcomes their cognitive goals. That's the kind of wanting that dopamine produces. My colleagues Kent Barrage and Terry Robinson at the University of Michigan refer to this kind of craving as incentive salience. That is, the incentive or the motivation or the wanting becomes particularly salient and strong, and the dopamine signal conveys that strong incentive. So, what's the evidence that dopamine is associated with incentive salience or this primitive kind of wanting? The most compelling evidence comes from studies with mice that have been genetically engineered to have abnormally high levels of dopamine. These dopamine-rich mice exhibit signs of very strong craving. For example, they move much more quickly towards rewarding stimuli, like food, than normal mice do. However, once they get the reward, they don't seem to enjoy it any more than other mice. We actually know this from carefully observing their facial expressions. 
You see, mice, rats, humans, even monkeys all share characteristic facial expressions when they experience pleasure. And so scientists can actually estimate the liking or pleasure response even though the animals can't talk. And when dopamine-rich mice eat good-tasting food, their facial expressions are no different than normal mice. Other experiments have injected amphetamine into the reward circuit, which also causes dopamine levels to rise. And that, too, causes animals to be more motivated to obtain rewards. So they'll press a lever more often or move through a cage more quickly in order to obtain the reward. But once again, once they get the reward, there's no evidence that they like it any more than the control animals. Even more interesting is the behavior of animals that have been genetically engineered not to produce dopamine. These animals don't show any motivation to try to obtain food or other rewards. In fact, they'll actually starve to death rather than taking the trouble to walk to food. They actually have to be nursed in order to eat. And yet, even though they don't show any signs of wanting the food, if the food is fed to them, they show all the normal facial expressions associated with liking the food. Now, let me take just a minute to address a question I hear a lot and that some of you might be asking. Can you really study how addiction works in humans by studying mice, rats, and monkeys? Well, it turns out that animal studies often provide much more insight than human studies ever could. Consider comparing human addicts to non-addicts. I think we can agree that the addicts differ from the non-addicts in many ways that have nothing to do with their addiction. But that means it can be very difficult to know whether any of the observed differences are due to the addiction or are due to something else. So one of the great things about studying rats and mice is that you can take animals that were raised together in very similar environments and are genetically virtually identical, and you can then randomly expose some of them to an addictive substance while leaving others as control subjects. And then any differences that you observe between the groups must be due to the addictive substance. In short, animal studies of addiction actually provide much better experimental control than do human studies. And it turns out that addictive behaviors in animals are actually pretty similar to addictive behaviors in humans. So like humans, animals develop tolerance, and they tend to increase the dosages that they self-administer. We also see evidence of withdrawal through shaking, through the loss of appetite, weight loss, and changes in body temperature, just like humans. We'll be referring to animal studies throughout this course, so I thought a brief aside would be useful. But now, back to wanting. So, dopamine seems to be more about wanting than it is about liking. But how does it contribute to addiction? Does repeated use of addictive drugs actually lead to changes in the dopamine system that contribute to addiction? The answer is yes. There are actually at least two changes in the dopamine system that can contribute to addiction. The first change is what Terry Robinson and Kent Berridge call incentive sensitization, 
And the second change is related to dopamine's effect on associative learning. Let's start with incentive sensitization. Robinson and Barrage proposed that with repeated use of addictive drugs, the brain's dopamine system becomes sensitized. That is, it becomes even more sensitive and easier to activate than it was before. Sensitization is kind of the opposite of tolerance. So with repeated use of addictive drugs, the dopamine system actually responds more and more strongly. Now, remember, dopamine is associated with craving or wanting. So as the dopamine system becomes more and more sensitized, what that means is that the cravings are getting stronger and stronger. So after the first few times trying an addictive drug, the user might feel some urge to do it again, but those urges may not be particularly strong, and they can be resisted. But with repeated use, the dopamine system gets sensitized, and so the cravings get stronger and stronger. And pretty soon, the urges are so strong that they're virtually irresistible. The other change involves dopamine's effect on associative learning. Remember in our last lecture, when we talked about the importance of prediction error in learning? The Rescorla-Wagner model of classical conditioning is based on learning from prediction errors. Likewise, the temporal difference learning algorithm in artificial intelligence is based on reward prediction errors. While many scientists believe that dopamine is that reward prediction error. And as such, it triggers learning, just like prediction errors trigger learning in the Roscorla-Wagner model and in the temporal difference algorithm. Essentially, when dopamine is released, it means that an unexpected reward has arrived, or soon will arrive. And that means we should pay attention and learn so that we'll be able to predict when such rewards might show up again in the future. Now, this makes a lot of sense. It normally works really well. So suppose you're a thirsty animal in a new environment, and you run across a source of water unexpectedly. Then you want to be able to remember where that water is located. Likewise, if you unexpectedly run across a good source of berries or a great hiding place, it's useful to store those memories for future reference. Well, in all these cases, the release of dopamine signals that something important has happened, which leads to learning. And addictive drugs also trigger the release of dopamine, and so they trigger learning too. In fact, they trigger larger than normal releases of dopamine, and therefore produce particularly strong learning. Unfortunately, what gets learned is more harmful than helpful. For example, each time a heroin addict shoots up, a big shot of dopamine will be released. And that dopamine will trigger the learning of strong associations between the drug use and all the stimuli in the environment. For example, the people who are there, the drug paraphernalia, the particular location, all of these stimuli will get strongly associated with drug use. Consequently, those stimuli can become powerful triggers that remind the addict about the drug and induce cravings. Over time, the dopamine release will back up from the drug use to all the cues that are associated with it. 
So now if the addict sees another regular user or sees a needle or walks by a location associated with drugs, any of those cues could lead to a burst of dopamine and a strong craving to use the drug. And of course, the same mechanism is at work in any addict, whether the addiction is to alcohol or cocaine or nicotine or any other addictive substance. Certain environmental cues become very strongly associated with the use of the drug and turn into triggers that lead to craving and continued use. So we've talked about how repeated use of addictive substances can lead to a numbing of the pleasure response in the nucleus accumbens. And we've also talked about how it can lead to increased cravings and strong associations between drug-related cues and drug taking by sensitizing the dopamine system. Now let's turn to a third type of brain change that happens in addiction. Namely, reduced self-control as a result of weaker inhibitory control from the prefrontal cortex. In our last lecture, we pointed out that the prefrontal cortex plays an important role in inhibiting undesirable behavior and in exerting self-control. While the reward circuit is mainly about processing primitive urges, the prefrontal cortex is the thinking part of the brain that can consider future consequences and make rational decisions about what actions we should take, not just what actions we feel like taking. And the prefrontal cortex plays a major role in inhibiting behavior suggested by the more primitive reward circuit whenever we decide that that behavior wouldn't be appropriate. Now, unfortunately, chronic use of addictive drugs can lead to abnormalities in the prefrontal cortex that undermine our ability to exhibit this kind of self-control. For example, studies with rats have found that using cocaine for a month changes the structure of prefrontal neurons. In particular, the dendrites of the neurons, which receive inputs to the neuron, were misshapen in those animals compared with control animals. Likewise, neuroimaging studies in human beings have found reduced activity in prefrontal cortex in chronic drug users compared with controls. In fact, even the volume of prefrontal cortex is reduced in drug addicts. Drug addicts also exhibit many of the same cognitive impairments that patients with damage to prefrontal cortex exhibit. For example, prefrontal patients typically perform poorly on tasks of working memory, decision-making, and on tasks that require sustained attention. Well, chronic drug users have been found to exhibit these same cognitive impairments. In short, there's now quite a bit of evidence that chronic drug use impairs prefrontal cortex function. Now here's the problem. The prefrontal cortex is the logical, rational circuit that understands consequences and that inhibits inappropriate behavior. But with repeated drug use, it doesn't work as well as it normally does. And so it has a hard time overcoming the increasingly powerful urges coming from the reward circuit. Essentially, the drug addict's ability to exhibit self-control and override their drug craving gets weaker and weaker. 
The alcoholic or heroin addict may know that drinking a bottle of whiskey or shooting up isn't the best idea, but they've begun to lose their self-control. It's like the rational prefrontal cortex is in a battle with the impulsive reward circuit. And with repeated drug use, the prefrontal cortex gets progressively weaker and loses those battles more and more frequently. And each time the prefrontal cortex loses a battle, it becomes more likely to lose the next one. Let's conclude by summarizing some of the main points we've made in today's lecture. First of all, we pointed out that addiction is more about hijacking the brain's reward system via positive reinforcement than it is about negative reinforcement and avoiding withdrawal symptoms. And we explained how the repeated use of addictive substances overstimulates that reward circuit and causes specific changes to the brain that contribute to addiction. First, chronic drug use can lead to a numbing of the reward processing in the nucleus accumbens. Second, it can sensitize the dopamine system, leading to increased craving and to stronger associations between drug-related triggers and drug use. And third, it can lead to reduced self-control as a result of impaired prefrontal cortex function. Now, one question we didn't address is why do some people who drink or take drugs become addicts while others don't? Are some people genetically more susceptible to addiction than other people? That's the domain of the genetics of addiction. And that's what we'll talk about next time. Lecture 4. Genetics. Born to be an addict? Have you ever wondered, why do some people get addicted while others don't? After all, many people drink alcohol socially on a regular basis without ever becoming alcoholics. And many others have been prescribed addictive drugs for pain relief, or have used them recreationally without developing an addiction. But other people do develop an addiction, even if they've had less exposure to drugs than others who didn't become addicted. Why is that? Are some people born alcoholics or cocaine addicts? Can our genetic makeup make us more susceptible to addiction? And if so, how? These are the kinds of questions I want to address today. I'll begin by talking about studies suggesting that our genetic makeup can indeed increase our risk for addiction. Although even the most susceptible people aren't necessarily destined to become addicts. Next, I'll give a brief introduction to what genes are and talk about how geneticists have, have gone about looking for genes that contribute to addiction susceptibility. And finally, I'll discuss what geneticists have learned about what these susceptibility genes do by looking at studies using genetically engineered mice. Let's begin with some studies that demonstrated that certain people are innately more susceptible to addiction than others. The story begins back in 1959, 
when Gerald McLaren and David Rogers at the University of California, Berkeley, were studying alcohol consumption using inbred mice. Now, inbred mice strains are created by repeatedly mating brothers and sisters for at least 20 generations. Yes, you heard me right. After 20 generations, the same-sex members of an inbred strain are roughly 98% genetically identical. And all this inbreeding allows scientists to perform experiments in which genetic effects have been experimentally controlled. Well, McLean and Rogers tested alcohol consumption in mice from a few different inbred strains, all of which had been raised in the same environment from birth. Specifically, they offered the mice a choice between two bottles. One bottle contained plain water, and the other contained a 10% alcohol solution. And what they found was very interesting. Mice from one of the strains showed a strong preference for alcohol, while mice from another strain showed a strong preference for water. Now, other strains showed intermediate levels of preference. All these mice were raised in the same environment, so the difference in alcohol preference must have been due to genetics. One strain of mice had a genetic predisposition to like alcohol, and the other strain didn't. So, apparently, drug preference, or at least preference for alcohol, is influenced by genetics. This work led to dozens of follow-up experiments that found similar results for other aspects of addiction. In addition to drug preference, different inbred strains of mice exhibit different degrees of tolerance and different degrees of dependence and withdrawal. Together, these studies have shown that virtually all aspects of addictive behavior can be influenced by genetics. Now, you might be asking yourself, okay, maybe that's true in mice, but how do we know if it applies to humans? After all, aren't mice and humans extremely different genetically? Well, surprisingly enough, the answer is no. It turns out that about 98% of mouse genes are also present in humans. Those genes may be on different chromosomes than they are in humans, but the same genes are there, just in different places. And what that means is that genetic studies in mice can and do tell us a lot about ourselves. Nevertheless, there are plenty of human studies that also demonstrate genetic susceptibility to aspects of addiction. Many of these experiments have compared identical and fraternal twins. Identical twins share virtually identical DNA. They're essentially clones. So, if an observable trait is based entirely on genetics, then identical twins will be guaranteed to share that trait. And that's why identical twins look alike. On the other hand, fraternal twins are no more similar genetically than any other pair of siblings. So a trait based on genetics might be shared by fraternal twins, but it also might not be. And that's why fraternal twins share a family resemblance but they don't look identical. Now, geneticists use these facts to figure out how much of the variation in a trait in a particular population is due to genetics versus environment. 
In particular, if identical twins in a population always share a given trait, while fraternal twins only share it sometimes, then that trait is said to be 100% heritable, meaning that variation in that trait is determined entirely by genetics. On the other hand, if a trait is no more similar in identical twins than it is in fraternal twins, then it's not heritable at all. And finally, you can have traits that are partially heritable. So if identical twins don't always share the trait, but they're still significantly more similar than our fraternal twins on that trait, then the heritability falls somewhere in between 0% and 100%. Now, a number of large twin studies have been done on addiction using this kind of logic, and the results are telling. Consistent with the mouse studies, Genetics influence most aspects of addiction in humans, with estimates of heritability ranging from around 30 to 70%. For example, the heritability of alcohol abuse and dependence is typically found to be between 50% and 70%. Smoking initiation has been estimated to be around 50% heritable, and nicotine dependence around 60% heritable. Likewise, addiction to illegal drugs is partially heritable, with estimates ranging from 25% to 55% for stimulants, sedatives, and heroin. Put simply, these numbers mean that our genetic makeup can indeed influence how susceptible we are to addiction. Some people really are born more susceptible to addiction than others. Nevertheless, it's important to remember that just because someone is genetically susceptible, that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll become an addict. It just means they're at risk. It's like if heart disease runs in your family. You may be more at risk, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have a heart attack, especially if you exercise and eat right. Likewise for addiction. Even if you're genetically susceptible to addiction, you still have to take the drugs or drink the drinks to become addicted. Obviously, a person who never touches alcohol isn't going to become an alcoholic, no matter how genetically susceptible they are. Okay, so your genes can make you more susceptible to addiction, but which genes? And how can we find them? It turns out that finding the offending genes is extremely difficult. As you may know, our genetic material is stored in 23 pairs of chromosomes in the nucleus of cells. Each chromosome is a molecule of DNA, which is wrapped tightly into a sequence of bundles, making it look kind of like a sequence of pearls on a necklace. The DNA molecule itself looks like a spiral ladder, and each of those DNA molecules is long. In fact, if you uncoiled the DNA in just one of your cells, it would be about six feet long. Now, the rungs on the ladder of DNA are made of molecules called nucleotide bases that are arranged in pairs. And we'll be hearing more about nucleotide base pairs a little later. Well, as you can imagine, there's a lot of genetic information encoded in your six feet of DNA. There are often over 100 million rungs on the ladder in just one chromosome. 
And with 23 pairs of chromosomes, there are well over 3 billion rungs in total in each cell. So what are genes? Well, genes are small sections of each of these ladders, ranging in length from a few hundred nucleotide base rungs to well over a million. We all have over 20,000 genes, and each of them encodes the information needed to make a few of the hundreds of thousands of proteins that do a lot of the work in your body. And exactly which proteins get made is what makes you, you. How tall you are, your natural hair and eye color, the color of your skin, even your intelligence and personality are significantly affected by the proteins encoded by your genes. The two chromosomes in each pair contain the same genes in exactly the same places, but they might be different versions of those genes. The version of a gene in one chromosome comes from your mother, and the version of the gene in the paired chromosome comes from your father. And each version of a gene is called an allele. You might inherit one allele of a gene from your mother that gives you a lot of freckles. But the same gene from your father on the other chromosome might be an allele that's not associated with freckles. And then whether you have a lot of freckles or not would depend on whether one of the versions is dominant. Okay, so we inherit two versions of each gene from our parents. And apparently one or more of these genes can influence our susceptibility to addiction. In particular, some gene variants or alleles might increase susceptibility, while other alleles might decrease risk. But which genes? And how can we find them on this six-foot-long, three-billion-rung ladder of DNA? Well, as you can imagine, finding genes can be very tough. Geneticists therefore often try to narrow down the search using a technique called linkage analysis. The key idea behind linkage analysis is this. Geneticists know that if one part of the DNA ladder gets passed down to a child, then nearby parts are also likely to get passed down from that same ladder. That is, nearby parts of a DNA ladder are likely to be linked and passed down together. For example, suppose two genes, A and B, are right next to each other on a chromosome. Now remember, there will be a version or allele of each gene on both chromosomes in a pair, and the two versions may be different. So, let's call the alleles for the two genes on the first chromosome big A and big B. And let's call the alleles on the other chromosome little a and little b. Now, assume that person has a child and they pass on the big A version of gene A. Then it's almost guaranteed that they'll also pass on the big B version of gene B to that child because the two genes are right next to each other on the first chromosome. They're linked because they're so nearby on the same ladder. On the other hand, if the two genes were really far apart on the DNA, then even if big A were inherited, there'd be no way to predict which version of gene B would get inherited. Because the genes are far apart, 
they aren't linked. And so the child may get big B or little b. There's no way to know. So how can you use this fact about linkage to narrow down the search for genes related to addiction? Well, what you can do is start with a whole bunch of genetic markers whose location you already know. Think of choosing 400 rungs of the DNA ladders that are spread out over all the chromosomes. Now, suppose one of those markers, let's call it marker X, is linked with an addiction gene, meaning the two almost always get inherited together. Well, then we can infer that the addiction gene we're looking for must be close to marker X. To do this, geneticists analyze DNA samples from people in big extended families that contain a lot of addicts. Then they look for genetic markers that get inherited with the addiction. And when they find one, they can narrow down the search to the area around the linked genetic marker. And once they've found a promising area on a specific chromosome, geneticists will then often perform what are called association studies in order to try to identify the specific gene in that region that's associated with the addiction. The first step is to identify parts of the DNA that are in the target region and that differ in different individuals. Remember the rungs made of nucleotide bases? It turns out that the vast majority of the rungs on the human DNA ladder are the same in everyone. In fact, if you compared the DNA of any two normal humans, you would find that over 99% of the rungs are the same. So, obviously, the rungs that differ account for a lot of the variability we see among different human beings. And those rungs that vary are called polymorphisms, which just means multiple forms. Furthermore, because the rungs are made of nucleotide bases, the individual rungs that differ across different people are typically called single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs for short. And SNPs play a big role in genetic association studies. Association studies of addiction analyze genetic data from thousands of people, some of whom are addicts and some of whom are not. And they look at what form of a target SNP each person has. If a particular form of a SNP occurs significantly more frequently in the addicts, than it does in the non-addicts, then that SNP is said to be associated with the addiction, and a gene near that SNP is likely involved. Well, in recent years, techniques have been developed that make it possible to analyze a huge number of SNPs simultaneously. In fact, geneticists can now analyze SNPs covering the entire genome, that is, all the DNA in all the chromosomes. This kind of genome-wide association study, or GWAS for short, makes it possible to find new genes that might contribute to addiction, even without a prior linkage analysis. Well, by now, dozens of linkage and association studies have been done to investigate the genetics of addiction and to identify genes that might influence susceptibility. I want to make two general points about the results. 
First and foremost, there is no single addiction gene. George Uhl and colleagues at the National Institute on Drug Abuse reviewed association studies in people addicted to alcohol, to methamphetamine, and to nicotine. They looked for genes that had been identified across multiple studies, not just one. And they found around 90 genes for which there was converging evidence of an association with addiction. In short, susceptibility to addiction is a polygenic trait, meaning that many genes can affect risk. Now, this is both good news and bad news. The good news is that even if you happen to carry the risk version of one of these genes, it doesn't increase your susceptibility to addiction very much at all. It probably requires a combination of many genes to increase your risk substantially. The bad news is that it makes it much harder for scientists to unravel the biological mechanisms of addiction susceptibility. I mean, figuring out how one gene works and how it might contribute to a trait is a significant undertaking by itself, even if that gene is very strongly associated with the trait. But figuring out how the interaction of dozens of genes contributes to addiction, especially when each one is only weakly associated with addiction, is a much, much harder problem. Nevertheless, some important progress has been made, which we'll talk about in just a few minutes. The second general point to make, based on the linkage and association studies, is this. The same genes contribute to many different addictions. Genetic studies of alcoholics, of addicted smokers, and of addicts of illegal drugs have identified many of the same genes. Also, although some genes are only associated with susceptibility to a single substance, many of the genes appear to affect susceptibility to addiction in general. So there may actually be a scientific basis to the idea of an addictive personality, that is, of a person who's at risk of getting hooked on any kind of addictive substance or behavior. These findings may also explain why so many addicts have multiple addictions, for example, to both alcohol and nicotine. And they may shed light on why some people get addicted to specific behaviors, like gambling or video games, that don't even involve consuming an addictive substance. Okay, now let me ask you a simple question. Why bother figuring out where a gene is? After all, does it really matter whether a susceptibility gene is on chromosome 4 or chromosome 19? Well, actually, no, it doesn't. Geneticists themselves aren't typically interested in figuring out the location of a gene as an end in itself. So then, why in the world do they go to all this trouble collecting genetic and behavioral data from thousands of people and analyzing linkage and associations if all it's going to tell them is where a susceptibility gene is. The answer is that once you've figured out where a gene is, then, and only then, you can begin to study what it does. And understanding what a gene does can provide insight as to why some people are more susceptible to addiction than others.
But how can we figure out what a gene does? Well, geneticists often turn to mice to answer that question as well. In fact, they often genetically engineer mice to answer that question. Genetic engineering refers to intentionally changing or engineering some aspect of the DNA of an organism. And one very powerful technique is knocking out the operation of a particular gene in a set of mice and then observing their behavior compared with normal mice. Differences in the behavior of these so-called knockout mice can often shed light on the function of the target gene. One particularly powerful example comes from studying the genetics of nicotine addiction and the role of a chemical called acetylcholine. Acetylcholine is a so-called neurotransmitter that some brain cells use to communicate with others. When a brain cell releases acetylcholine, the acetylcholine can attach to special molecules called acetylcholine receptors on other brain cells, which could lead those cells to become active themselves. Well, nicotine can also attach to those receptors, and it can therefore mimic the effects of real acetylcholine. In fact, because these receptors respond to nicotine, they're typically called nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. Now, these receptors, like most complex biological structures, are made up of proteins. And do you remember how proteins get made? By genes. And it turns out that some of the genes that linkage and association studies found were associated with addiction to cigarettes were actually genes that encoded the proteins that make up the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. So this led geneticists to a specific hypothesis. Maybe some versions of these genes make the receptors more responsive to nicotine and therefore increase susceptibility to nicotine addiction, while other versions of these genes make the receptors less responsive and decrease susceptibility. To test this idea, they genetically engineered mice that lacked these genes entirely. And what they found was very interesting. Normal mice will self-administer nicotine, and they show many of the behavioral symptoms of nicotine addiction. But these genetically engineered mice didn't. Also, do you remember our addiction molecule, dopamine? In our previous lecture, we pointed out that all addictive substances lead to increased levels of dopamine in the reward system, which may be associated with wanting or craving. Nicotine does the same thing, or at least it does in normal mice. However, the genetically engineered mice did not show an increase in dopamine when nicotine was administered. It's as if the genetically engineered mice were no longer susceptible to nicotine addiction. Many other knockout studies of addiction have been performed, and they've taught us a lot about how different genes contribute to addiction. For example, Knocking out one gene produces mice that are less sensitive to painkillers, like morphine, compared with normal mice. Knocking out another gene leads to mice that are unusually attracted to cocaine. Still other knockout mice are less likely to, to develop morphine dependence, and others are more sensitive to the effects of alcohol. 
Now, these kinds of findings are particularly exciting because they offer the hope of new and better treatments for addiction. I mean, every time a gene is identified that contributes to addiction, that gene becomes a potential target for a biologically-based treatment. For example, once we understand how a genetic variant increases addiction risk, we could potentially design treatments to counteract those effects. Likewise, if a genetic variant is found that is protective and decreases risk, we could design treatments that mimic and strengthen that effect. Furthermore, treatments could be tailored to the specific genetic profile of a particular individual. For example, different people might be susceptible to alcohol addiction for very different reasons. Maybe one person has a genetic profile that leads to a strong reward response when they drink. Another person might be susceptible because they quickly develop dependence. Yet another person might have strong withdrawal symptoms, and another person might not break down alcohol as efficiently as others. Now, as you can imagine, the most effective treatment could be different for these different people. And by analyzing their genetic profile, physicians in the future might be able to design a treatment program that is personalized specifically for them. Dr. David Oslin at the University of Pennsylvania, along with a number of his colleagues, conducted an experiment that illustrates the promise of considering the genetic profile of an addict when deciding on treatment options. Their study investigated a drug called naltrexone, which is commonly used to help treat alcoholism. We'll talk more about naltrexone when we talk about alcohol in Lecture 7, but for now, all you need to know is that the drug blocks the pleasurable effects of alcohol, and that can often reduce alcoholics' cravings to drink and help them remain abstinent. But naltrexone doesn't work for everyone. Some alcoholics report experiencing the same cravings to drink, whether they're taking naltrexone or not. So why does the drug help some alcoholics, but not others? Dr. Oslin's group found evidence that the genetic makeup of the individuals can make a difference. Specifically, they analyzed a gene that, among other things, influences how strongly the brain's pleasure center, the nucleus accumbens, responds when it's stimulated. Some variants of the gene are associated with a stronger pleasure response, while other variants are associated with a weaker response. And it turns out that how well naltrexone works depends on what version of this gene you have. People in the study who had the genetic variant associated with a strong pleasure response tended to respond well to naltrexone treatment. They were significantly less likely to return to heavy drinking. And even those who did start drinking again typically waited much longer before doing so. In contrast, people who had the version of the gene associated with a weaker pleasure response didn't respond nearly as well to the treatment. And one natural explanation is that if you're genetically endowed with a weak pleasure response, then blocking that response with naltrexone is unlikely to make much of a difference. So these results suggest that physicians might want to consider the genetic makeup of an individual 
before deciding on a treatment plan. For some patients, naltrexone might be the best option, but for others, a different approach would probably be more effective. Okay, well, let's conclude today's lecture by summarizing a few of the major take-home points about the genetics of addiction. First, studies have shown that some people are indeed more prone to addiction than other people. And that's not a character flaw. It was in their genes from birth. Nevertheless, just because someone is genetically susceptible to addiction, that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll become an addict. It just means they're at risk and they need to be careful. Second, there is no single addiction gene. Dozens of genes have now been identified that affect addiction susceptibility. And most of them probably only have a very small effect by themselves. It's the interaction of multiple genes that leads to addiction susceptibility. Third, many of the same genes contribute to a variety of different addictions. Many of the genes that increase risk of alcoholism also increase risk of addiction to nicotine, cocaine, and heroin. Finally, Geneticists have begun to figure out what some of these addiction genes actually do. And that knowledge offers the hope of designing more effective and personalized treatments. Okay, by now we've reviewed a lot of what is known about addiction at a behavioral level, at a neural level, and now at a genetic level. Next, I want to turn our attention to drugs. What do psychoactive drugs do to the brain? How do they produce the effects that they produce? We'll answer these and many other related questions in our lecture, Your Brain on Drugs. I hope you can join us. Lecture 5, Your Brain on Drugs. Back in 1987, the Partnership for a Drug-Free America released a televised public service announcement that TV Guide later named one of the top 100 TV advertisements of all time. In it, a middle-aged man picks up an egg and says, this is your brain. He then points to a hot frying pan on a stove and says, this is drugs. Finally, he cracks the egg in the frying pan shows the sizzling egg to the camera, and finishes with the immortal words, this is your brain on drugs. Any questions? Well, yes, actually, I do have some questions. I mean, this ad was certainly very effective, and it did a great job of symbolizing the dangers of drug use. But I think we can agree that it left a few unanswered questions about how drugs affect the brain. And in this lecture, I want to answer some of them. First, we'll talk about the psychological effects of psychoactive drugs. How can chemicals make us feel relaxed or elevate our mood or increase our focus? Not surprisingly, they do so by interacting with the brain and influencing its function. And we'll talk about how that works. A second question we'll address is this. What determines the strength of a drug's effects? For example, why is morphine a stronger painkiller than codeine? A number of factors play a role, but again, the way the drug interacts with the brain is crucial, 
So we'll explore that in some depth. Finally, we'll talk about how we can become dependent on drugs. In a previous lecture, we pointed out that drug addicts often need to use their drug just to feel normal, and that without it, they experience unpleasant withdrawal symptoms. What's going on in the brain that leads to those symptoms? Answering all these questions requires understanding how drugs affect the brain, and specifically, how drugs affect individual brain cells, which are called neurons. So, let's begin by talking about how neurons work and how they communicate. Neurons typically communicate using chemicals called neurotransmitters. You may be familiar with some of these chemicals. Dopamine, serotonin, and acetylcholine are all examples of neurotransmitters that brain cells use to communicate with each other. And this communication takes place in the very small spaces called synapses between neurons. Here's how it works. When a brain cell is activated, it generates an electrical potential that travels down the neuron to the synapses between it and neighboring neurons. When the electrical potential reaches the synapses, it causes the cell to re release a bunch of neurotransmitter molecules. These molecules then move across the synapses, and they may come into contact with neighboring neurons, perhaps exciting them and causing them to fire as well. In this way, a neural signal can travel from neuron to neuron through a brain circuit. But how exactly do neurotransmitters cause a neighboring neuron to fire? They do so by binding to receptor molecules on the surface of the next neuron. Receptors are like little machines in the cell. When they're turned on, they can make the neuron more likely to fire. If enough receptors are turned on at the same time, that can trigger the neuron to become active itself and release its own neurotransmitters in downstream synapses. Some receptors are also inhibitory, and if they get turned on, they actually try to prevent the neuron from firing. Now, when a neurotransmitter binds to a receptor, it's like a key being slid into a machine and turning it on. And just like a key only fits certain locks, a neurotransmitter only fits certain receptors, and it will only bind to them. Dopamine binds to dopamine receptors. Serotonin binds to serotonin receptors, and so on. Now we're in a position to answer our first question. How do psychoactive drugs produce psychological effects? Well, one way they do so is by binding to and turning on the same receptors that natural neurotransmitters do. So, in a very real sense, psychoactive drugs imitate natural brain chemicals. So, then why do they produce different effects than the natural neurotransmitters themselves? Well, one reason is that psychoactive drugs may activate the receptors more or less strongly than the natural neurotransmitters do. For example, a drug might bind to the receptors and cause them to operate in overdrive, leading to abnormally high levels of neural activity. Conversely, 
it might produce abnormally low levels of receptor activity. So even though the receptors are doing what they normally do, the level of activity may be abnormal, and that can lead to observable psychological effects. Now let's turn to our second question. What determines the strength of a drug's psychological effects? Well, one very important factor that we're not going to discuss is how much of the drug actually gets to the brain. For example, how much of the drug gets into the bloodstream? How much is metabolized and converted to something else, and so on? In fact, there's an entire field called pharmacokinetics devoted to these kinds of issues. But we're going to be focusing instead on what happens after the drug reaches the brain and how that can affect a drug's strength. One of the first ideas we need to understand is what's called the law of mass action. The law of mass action is actually a very general chemical principle. But in our context, it basically means that the more molecules there are in a synapse, the more receptors will be active. When a neurotransmitter or a psychoactive drug binds to a receptor, it doesn't stay there forever. Rather, most molecules bind reversibly. That is, they bind for an instant, turn on the receptor, and then unbind or dissociate from the receptor, turning the receptor off. Then another neurotransmitter molecule might come along and bind to that receptor and turn it on for a moment again before it too dissociates. And this same process happens over and over and over again. And this process is random or stochastic. That is, the neurotransmitter or drug molecules are moving around the synapse in random directions. Some of them happen to run into some receptors and turn them on, and then they dissociate. Then some others come along and happen to run into some, to some other receptors, and the process repeats. Now, if there are a lot of neurotransmitter molecules or drug molecules in the synapse, then there's obviously a high probability that one of them will run into a receptor and turn it on. And even after that molecule dissociates from the receptor, another molecule is likely to run into that receptor and turn it on right away. On the other hand, if there aren't many molecules in the synapse, then there's a lower probability that one of them will run into a receptor. And if one does, there's a lower probability that another one will take its place after it dissociates. The bottom line is that the more neurotransmitter or drug molecules you have in the synapse, the more receptors will be turned on. That's the law of mass action. And that's also why larger drug doses have larger effects. Larger doses mean more drug molecules in the synapses. And the more molecules in the synapses, the larger the effect. But it turns out that's only true up to a point. As you add more and more of the drug, you eventually reach a point where virtually all the receptors are bound by drug molecules. As soon as one molecule dissociates from a receptor, there's another molecule right there to, to immediately take its place. Now at that point, adding more of the drug can no longer increase the drug's effect because all the receptors are already active all the time. This relationship between the dose of a drug and the response to the drug 
can be represented graphically in what's called a dose-response curve. So imagine a two-dimensional graph where the dose of the drug is on the horizontal axis and the response to the drug is on the vertical axis. So when no drug is present, there's no response. So we're in the bottom left corner of the graph. But as the dose of the drug increases, more receptors are active, and some users will begin to notice the effects. And the dose that produces an effect in 50% of users is sometimes called the median effective dose, or ED50. Well, as we continue to increase the dose, we'll eventually reach the maximum response to the drug. And that occurs when all the receptors are continuously bound. And at that point, the dose-response curve flattens out or reaches an asymptote. So the overall dose-response curve is therefore S-shaped, or what's sometimes called a sigmoid curve. Okay, so then why do some drugs have stronger effects than others? Well, one key difference lies in what's called the affinity of the drug for the receptors. Let's go back to our lock and key analogy. Imagine a key that's sticky and that you have to jiggle to get out of the lock versus a key that slides in and out very easily. The sticky key has high affinity. It tends to stay in the lock, and it's harder to get it out. Likewise, a drug that has high affinity for a receptor tends to bind strongly, and it's harder to get it out. It therefore doesn't dissociate as quickly, but rather it stays bound to the receptors longer, and it keeps them active. On the other hand, a molecule that has low affinity is like a key that slides in and out of the lock very easily. It may bind to a receptor, but it's a loose fit, and so it dissociates very quickly. Now imagine that you give a low dose of two different drugs, one that has high affinity for the receptors, like a sticky key, and one that has low affinity, like a loose key. For example, morphine and codeine both bind to the same receptors to provide pain relief, but morphine has much higher affinity. In the case of a high-affinity drug like morphine, once those molecules bind, they'll stick and keep the receptors active longer, and so the effect on pain relief will be stronger. Conversely, with a lower-affinity drug like codeine, the molecules may bind to the same receptors just as frequently, but they'll rapidly dissociate, so the receptors won't stay active as long, and the effect will be smaller. The bottom line is that a low dose of a high-affinity drug will lead to a larger response than a low dose of a low-affinity drug. Put another way, drugs with high affinity are more potent than drugs with low affinity. Here, potency refers to the amount of drug you need to get a specific level of response. For example, morphine is considered a more potent pain reliever than codeine because low doses of morphine provide the same level of pain relief as much higher doses of codeine. Now, surprisingly, the affinity of a drug does not actually determine its maximum possible effect, or what's often called a drug's efficacy. If you think about it, at high doses, even a drug with low affinity will tend to be continuously bound to all the receptors. Basically, if there's enough of the drug around, 
all the receptors will be occupied no matter what. Even if the drug binds and rapidly dissociates, there's another molecule right behind it waiting to bind. The receptors stay bound all the time and the maximum effect is achieved, even though the drug has low affinity. So, even though affinity affects potency, it doesn't determine the maximum possible effect of the drug, its efficacy. So then, what does determine the efficacy of a drug? For example, why is the maximum possible level of pain relief so much higher for morphine than it is for, say, aspirin? Well, one reason that two drugs could have different efficacies is because they act in different ways. For example, if two drugs bind to different types of receptors, and one of those receptors is more related to pain relief than the other one, then it wouldn't be surprising if the drugs differ in how much pain relief they can provide. But even if two drugs bind to the same type of receptor, they could still have different efficacies if they drive the receptors to different degrees. And the degree to which a molecule drives a receptor is referred to as its intrinsic activity. And it can differ for different molecules. And differences in intrinsic activity lead to differences in the maximum effect that a drug can have. Do you remember what's happening at the receptors when a drug is having its maximum effect? All the receptors are continuously bound, and so they're all turned on all the time. But even if all the receptors are active, they may not be active to the same degree. You see, a drug with high intrinsic activity produces a strong response from the receptor, whereas a drug with low intrinsic activity produces a weak response, even though it's bound to the same receptor. So those two drugs could produce significantly different responses, even if all the receptors are continuously bound. And so the efficacy, or maximum possible effect, for the two drugs would be quite different. Now we can answer our second question. Why do some drugs have stronger psychological effects than others? Well, one important reason is because different drugs differ in their affinity and in the amount of intrinsic activity that they produce. Drugs with higher affinity are more potent, meaning that you need less of the drug to produce an effect, and drugs that produce higher intrinsic activity have higher efficacy, meaning that they produce a larger maximum effect. Now, understanding how drugs affect the brain can also provide some insight into some of the pharmacological treatments that are used to treat drug overdose. To understand how these medications work, it's helpful to distinguish between agonists and antagonists. An agonist is a molecule that binds to a receptor and produces high intrinsic activity. That is, it drives the receptor strongly. Antagonists, on the other hand, bind to the same receptors, but they produce no intrinsic activity. So imagine a key that fits into a lock, but that won't turn. It's occupying the lock, just like a key that works, but you can't open the door or start the engine, even though you can slide the key into the lock. Well, that's what's happening when you have an antagonist binding to a receptor. It's not causing any intrinsic activity itself, but what it is doing is preventing the agonists from binding to that same receptor. 
So antagonists produce their effects by blocking the action of an agonist, whether the agonist is a natural neurotransmitter or a drug. For example, one drug that's commonly used to treat heroin overdose is called naloxone. Now, naloxone is a competitive antagonist that binds to the same receptors as heroin. But because it's an antagonist, it doesn't lead to the intrinsic activity in the receptor that heroin would. It just prevents the heroin from binding to the receptors. Furthermore, naloxone has high receptor affinity, meaning that once it binds to a receptor, it's sticky and it doesn't come off right away. Well, that's very effective in blocking the receptors and preventing heroin from binding to them. Remember the dose-response curve? When you give someone a competitive antagonist, it shifts the whole curve to the right. That is, now you need a higher dose of the drug to produce the same effect. For example, if you pre-treat a heroin addict with naloxone and that person subsequently takes heroin, the heroin won't have the same effect that it normally would, and the risk of overdose could be reduced substantially. Unfortunately, not all antagonists are beneficial. In fact, some snake venoms actually contain competitive antagonists. Consider the venom of the many-banded crate, which is a deadly snake that's found in Southeast Asia. Crate venom contains a competitive antagonist that binds to the same receptors as acetylcholine, an extremely important neurotransmitter in the nervous system. Acetylcholine is the chemical that tells your muscles to contract. All the muscle contractions in your body depend on acetylcholine binding to acetylcholine receptors on the muscle cells, and that includes the muscles that you use to breathe. Well, crate venom also binds to those acetylcholine receptors on muscle cells, but it doesn't activate those receptors. It just prevents acetylcholine from activating them. And so crate venom can cause paralysis and suppress breathing, potentially killing the victim. Worse yet, crate venom binds virtually irreversibly to acetylcholine receptors. Remember that for real neurotransmitters and all the standard psychoactive drugs, binding is reversible, like a key that slides into the ignition and turns on the receptor for an instant, but then slides back out, making the receptor available for another molecule. But crate venom stays bound, like a key that breaks off in the ignition, and because it's an antagonist, it doesn't even turn the engine on. Now, think about the implications of that for a second. It means that those acetylcholine receptors might never be activated again. Now, your body's capable of making new acetylcholine receptors, but that can take a couple of days. And in the meantime, the bite victim's nervous system wouldn't be able to control the affected muscles. And if those muscles include the muscles used for breathing, then the patient would need to be kept on life support until their body could make new receptors. Otherwise, they'd suffocate. Okay, so far we've talked about competitive antagonists like naloxone and the toxin in crate venom. But chemicals can also serve as partial agonists, and some of those chemicals are also used in treating drug addicts. 
Partial agonists bind to the same receptors as a drug of abuse, but they produce a reduced level of intrinsic activity compared to the drug. If you didn't have any of the drug in your system, then a partial agonist would behave like a weak version of that drug. However, in the presence of the drug itself, the partial agonist will work as an antagonist because it competes with the drug for the receptor binding. And rather than letting the drug, which is a full agonist, bind to the receptors, the partial agonist binds. And although it does produce a moderate level of intrinsic activity in the receptor, that activity level is significantly reduced compared to the drug of abuse. One example of a partial agonist is buprenorphine. This drug can be used for pain relief itself, but it can also be used in the treatment of addiction to heroin or morphine. Buprenorphine is actually more potent than morphine because it has very high affinity. So you don't need very much of it to get some pain relief. Less than morphine, in fact. But buprenorphine produces less intrinsic activity than morphine does. So its maximum effect, or efficacy, is significantly smaller than morphine. As a result, you're much less likely to overdose on buprenorphine than you are on morphine. Finally, let's turn to our third question, which is the one most directly related to addiction. How can someone become dependent on a drug? And specifically, what are some of the neural mechanisms underlying the symptoms of tolerance and withdrawal? After repeated drug use, people often need more of the drug to get the same effect. That is, they become tolerant to the effects of the drug. In fact, chronic drug users often report not feeling the same high as they used to but that they still need to take their drug just to feel normal again. Well, what's happening is that the body has begun to compensate for the presence of the drug. That is, the body has gotten used to the drug, and it's trying to compensate for this abnormal chemical by adapting in specific ways. Essentially, it's the body's attempt to return to normal despite the drug. And the body can do this in many ways. And some of these changes happen outside the brain. For example, chronic alcoholics produce more of the enzyme that breaks down alcohol than non-alcoholics do. So less alcohol will get to the blood and the brain than in non-alcoholics. So as a result, alcoholics become tolerant to alcohol, and they need to drink more to have the same effect. But there are also changes that are occurring within the brain itself. And in particular, over time, the brain will often reduce the number of receptors that the drug is binding to. This is called receptor downregulation. Essentially, the body is expecting large quantities of the drug, and in order to reduce the effect of that drug, it reduces the number of receptors that respond to it. You remember our discussion of homeostasis in a previous lecture? That's what's happening here. The body's trying to maintain a stable level of receptor activity, and it's doing that by reducing the number of receptors. Now, naturally, if there are fewer receptors, then the same amount of drug will produce a smaller effect, and so tolerance develops. 
Receptor downregulation can also help explain why people experience withdrawal or abstinence syndrome. Suppose you've gotten used to taking a drug and the number of receptors that the drug binds to has been reduced. Well, what's going to happen when the drug is removed? Well, typically what happens is you get symptoms that are the opposite of those produced by the drug itself. For example, opioids like morphine and heroin tend to relieve pain. They also tend to produce a feeling of warmth and well-being. They even make you constipated because there are many opioid receptors in the gut. Now, if you stop using the drug, rather than experiencing pain relief, you start feeling aches and pains. Rather than feeling warm, you start getting chills. Rather than having a sense of well-being, you might start feeling anxious and uncomfortable. And rather than being constipated, you may experience diarrhea. So you can see that the withdrawal symptoms are in some sense the mirror image of the effects that the drug itself produces. You see, what's happened is that the body has gotten used to a large quantity of the drug in the system, and it's compensated by down-regulating receptors. And now, when the drug is removed, those few receptors that are left aren't being activated as much as they previously were. And so you actually get the opposite effects of the drug itself. So, when we talk about dependence on a drug, one of the things we mean is that tolerance has developed. That is, there have been some physical changes in the body which have led to tolerance in the presence of the drug. And now, quitting the drug will result in withdrawal symptoms. These could be physical symptoms, like diarrhea, or they could be psychological symptoms, like anxiety. Let's finish up. Today's lecture gave you a basic understanding of how psychoactive drugs work and produce their effects. One take-home point is that all psychoactive drugs work by binding to the same receptors as real neurotransmitters. But despite this similarity, different psychoactive drugs obviously have very different effects. Why is that? Why is cocaine energizing while alcohol is relaxing? Why does marijuana increase appetite while heroin produces a dreamlike euphoria? Well, to answer these kinds of questions, we need to dive into the details of specific drugs and how each works at a neural level. And that's what we'll do in the next few lectures. Next time, we'll talk about two of the most widely used psychoactive drugs in the world, caffeine and nicotine. Lecture six. Why we crave coffee and cigarettes. In the next few lectures, we're going to dive into some specific drugs of abuse and talk about what's going on in the brain and discuss the latest thoughts on treatment. We'll talk about a number of different drugs, including marijuana, cocaine, methamphetamine, and heroin. But I want to begin with two legal and widely available drugs that billions of people use on a daily basis. Caffeine and nicotine. Let's start with caffeine. And you can't talk about caffeine without talking about coffee. 
Many people believe that coffee originated in Ethiopia, in the Horn of Africa, and then spread through trade in the Arab world until it eventually made its way around the globe. Well, when coffee was first introduced to England in the 1600s, it quickly became a very popular drink among British men. So popular, in fact, that it began causing marital problems. In 1674, a group of London women went so far as to circulate a petition called the Women's Petition Against Coffee. Here's an excerpt. Coffee leads men to trifle away their time, scald their chops, and spend their money, all for a little base, black, thick, nasty, bitter, stinking, nauseous puddle water. Apparently, London men in the 1600s were pretty obsessed with coffee. But I think it's fair to say that we're also pretty obsessed with coffee and caffeine in general in our society today. Caffeine is by far the most used psychoactive drug in the world, and it's not even close. 80 to 90 percent of Americans drink coffee or other caffeinated drinks every day. And of course, that includes children. A typical adult consumes 200 to 400 milligrams of caffeine every day on average. I'm sure many of you are drinking something with caffeine in it right now. But is the regular consumption of caffeine really a problem? In fact, you might be thinking, I don't have a problem with caffeine. I have a problem without caffeine. Well, you'll be glad to know that except in severe cases, Consuming caffeine on a regular basis doesn't actually pose a significant health risk. In fact, moderate caffeine use has actually been associated with a number of health benefits, including reduced risk of Parkinson's disease and type 2 diabetes. And of course, as any regular coffee drinker will tell you, caffeine also has a number of behavioral benefits, including increased alertness and improved concentration. But despite these positive effects, caffeine is not a vitamin. It's a mild psychoactive drug that works in ways that are similar to other more dangerous psychoactive drugs. And regular use of caffeine can and does lead to physical dependence and the associated symptoms of tolerance and withdrawal, just like regular use of other drugs does. For example, People who don't use caffeine very much will often experience jitters or anxiety after drinking a cup of coffee or an energy drink. But regular users become tolerant to those effects. In fact, some heavy coffee drinkers can drink a cup of coffee at night and still fall asleep normally. Furthermore, regular users typically need caffeine to feel normal and they'll experience withdrawal symptoms if they have to go without it for a while. Think of regular coffee drinkers before they've had their first cup in the morning. They'll typically feel very tired and irritable. They may even have a headache. Those are classic symptoms of caffeine withdrawal. So what exactly does caffeine do to the brain? Remember in our last lecture when we talked about how psychoactive drugs work? We pointed out that many psychoactive drugs bind to the same receptors as natural chemicals in the brain, but that they produce abnormal levels of receptor activity due to differences in affinity or in intrinsic activity.
Well, that's exactly what's going on with caffeine. Specifically, caffeine is an adenosine receptor antagonist. That means that it binds to the same receptors as the brain chemical adenosine, but it doesn't turn on the receptor. It just prevents adenosine from turning on the receptors. Think of the key and ignition analogy that we developed in the last lecture. Caffeine is like a key that fits the adenosine receptor ignition, but it can't turn it on. Nevertheless, it does block the ignition and therefore prevents adenosine from turning the receptor on. So, to understand how caffeine works, we really need to understand what adenosine does. And what adenosine does is pretty interesting. You see, adenosine is an inhibitory brain chemical, meaning that it tends to reduce neural activity. Furthermore, adenosine levels in the brain continuously rise when we're awake, and then they fall back down when we sleep. Many scientists therefore believe that adenosine serves an important role in our sleep-wake cycle. You see, after prolonged wakefulness, adenosine levels get high, which inhibits neural activity and perhaps contributes to feelings of drowsiness. Then, when we sleep, adenosine levels fall, so that when we wake up, neural activity is uninhibited and we can begin another day. Well, caffeine blocks the effect of adenosine and therefore helps us stay awake even if it's past our normal bedtime. Essentially, the caffeine fools the brain into thinking that it hasn't been awake for as long as it has. Consistent with this interpretation, knockout mice that lack adenosine receptors don't show the normal stimulating effects of caffeine. By now it should be clear that there are quite a few similarities between caffeine and other more dangerous psychoactive drugs. Like many other drugs, caffeine binds to the same kind of receptor as a natural brain chemical. And regular use of caffeine can lead to physical dependence, just like the use of more dangerous drugs can. But there are obviously some significant differences between caffeine and these other drugs. And one very important difference involves the level of stimulation of the reward circuit. Recall, drugs of abuse significantly overstimulate the reward circuit. And repeated overstimulation can produce cravings so strong that they lead to unhealthy and even life-threatening behavior. That's the kind of positive reinforcement that we discussed in Lecture 3 that's typically associated with real addiction. Well, in contrast, caffeine use doesn't produce that same kind of positive reinforcement. For example, remember the animal self-administration studies in which rats chose cocaine and heroin over food and sex? Well, those same kinds of studies have found that caffeine is only weakly reinforcing. Animals are not obsessed with getting caffeine in the same way that they are with more dangerous drugs. In fact, Scientists believe that people often consume caffeine to avoid the negative withdrawal symptoms of fatigue and irritability, not because it stimulates the brain's reward circuit. So that's more of a negative reinforcement situation in which continued drug use is motivated by a desire to avoid unpleasant effects. But remember, 
Positive reinforcement is probably a better model of addiction for serious drugs than is negative reinforcement. And maybe it goes without saying, but another important difference between caffeine and other addictive drugs is that chronic caffeine use doesn't typically lead to severe negative consequences. So for these reasons, caffeine is not considered to be a drug of abuse. Even though repeated use can and actually does lead to changes in the brain and ultimately to physical dependence, but that use doesn't typically lead to significant consequences or distress. On the contrary, for most people, not drinking their coffee would lead to negative consequences and distress. But now let's turn to another very commonly used drug. This psychoactive drug is also legal and it also has stimulating effects that bear a resemblance to caffeine's effects. But unlike caffeine, this drug is one of the most addictive substances in the world, and taking it can have life-threatening consequences. I'm talking about nicotine and the associated behavior of smoking. Believe it or not, nicotine is actually a naturally produced insecticide. Many plants produce chemicals that are toxic to insects because it helps to protect the plants from being eaten. And the insecticide that tobacco happens to produce is nicotine. Purified nicotine was actually used as an insecticide by farmers for a number of years, but they stopped using it. And you know why? Because it was too toxic to humans. In fact, Tobacco harvesters often develop an illness called green tobacco sickness that's caused from exposure to nicotine on wet tobacco leaves. 60 milligrams of nicotine is actually all it takes to kill an adult human being. And yet, this toxic chemical is also extremely addictive at low doses, as the enormous number of smokers demonstrates. Roughly one-third of the world's adult population smokes tobacco on a regular basis, and roughly 80% of them started before they turned 18. That's why smoking is sometimes called a pediatric addiction. And the same thing is true in rats. Specifically, if rats start self-administering nicotine during adolescence, then they self-administer significantly more than rats that start administering nicotine in adulthood. Now, if nicotine were consumed in a drink, then the huge number of nicotine addicts wouldn't be such a big problem. It would actually kind of be like the situation with caffeine. Although billions of people use the drug and become physically dependent, the consequences wouldn't be that bad. Because although nicotine is toxic at high doses, it isn't actually that harmful at low doses. Unfortunately, tobacco smoke contains thousands of chemicals other than nicotine. And the health consequences of inhaling those chemicals on a regular basis are disastrous. For example, cigarette smoke contains more than 50 chemicals that are known to cause cancer, including the poison arsenic, the industrial solvent benzene, cadmium, which is used in making batteries, formaldehyde, which is used to preserve dead bodies, the highly radioactive element polonium, and chromium. It also contains carbon monoxide, 
hydrogen cyanide, ammonia, and dozens of other harmful chemicals. Cigarette smoke also contains tar, a collection of solid particles that forms a sticky brown residue on smokers' teeth, fingers, and lungs. And tar is also carcinogenic. Now, obviously, regularly inhaling these chemicals is pretty bad for you. In fact, smoking-related illnesses are estimated to kill more than 5 million people every year. That's over 500 people every hour, and nearly 10 people every minute. In particular, smoking is estimated to be responsible for 80 to 90% of lung cancer deaths. And for every person who dies, there are approximately 20 other smokers who suffer from at least one serious illness associated with smoking, such as heart disease or stroke. Well, not surprisingly, smokers die earlier than non-smokers. In fact, their life expectancy is more than 10 years shorter. More than 10 years! Now, it's important to keep in mind that most smokers don't want to smoke, but they're hooked on the nicotine. 70 to 75% of smokers say they'd like to quit. And 40% of regular smokers try to quit every year. 40%. But as any smoker who has tried will tell you, it's a very tough habit to kick. In fact, less than 10% of quit attempts end up succeeding long term. That's comparable to the quit rate for heroin. Let me say that again. Based on quit rates, nicotine is as addictive as heroin. The behavioral effects of nicotine are relatively mild and are similar to those of caffeine. Low doses of nicotine increase arousal and can actually improve concentration and enhance performance in attention-demanding tasks, even in non-smokers. But nicotine can also lead to tension and lightheadedness. And higher doses can produce nausea, sweating, and dizziness. Chronic smokers actually become tolerant to many of these effects and often find smoking to be relaxing rather than arousing. And they also exhibit withdrawal symptoms when their nicotine levels drop. So they'll become irritable or stressed and they'll report difficulty concentrating. And many scientists actually believe that the relaxing effect of cigarettes in smokers may simply reflect relief from these negative withdrawal symptoms. Well, like caffeine and other psychoactive drugs, nicotine works by binding to receptors used by a normal brain chemical. And in this case, the normal brain chemical is the neurotransmitter acetylcholine. Now, you may remember acetylcholine from our discussion of snake venom in our last lecture. It's the neurotransmitter that's used to tell our muscles to contract. But acetylcholine is also important in our mental life. It's associated with arousal, with vigilance, and with paying attention. And it also plays an important role in the sleep-wake cycle. Now, nicotine is an agonist for a class of acetylcholine receptors. Recall, an agonist is a chemical that binds to a receptor and strongly activates it. Well, nicotine strongly activates acetylcholine receptors. In fact, the receptors that it activates have actually been named after nicotine. They're called nicotinic 
acetylcholine receptors. A number of studies have now demonstrated that the way nicotine produces its effects is by binding to these nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. For example, remember our genetically engineered friends, the knockout mice? Well, knockout mice have been created that lack the gene that helps make nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. And those mice don't exhibit the behavioral effects of nicotine that normal mice do. So nicotine doesn't make them run around as much as it does normal mice, for example. The knockout mice also don't show nicotine's benefits on attention and memory tasks that normal mice exhibit. The bottom line is that nicotine is having its main effect on the brain via these acetylcholine receptors. Okay, so now we can see why nicotine might be arousing. It's binding to the same receptors as acetylcholine and putting them in overdrive. And since acetylcholine is associated with alertness and vigilance, so is nicotine. But why is it so addictive? To answer that question, we need to return to the brain's reward circuit, which by now might be starting to become familiar. Recall, one very important region in the brain's reward circuit is the ventral tegmental area, or VTA. Neurons in the VTA communicate using the neurotransmitter dopamine, which we've referred to as the addiction molecule of the brain. More dopamine is associated with more incentive salience, or more wanting or craving. Well, guess what kind of receptors these VTA neurons have on them? One common type is the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. Now I'll bet you can guess where we're headed. Nicotine binds to these acetylcholine receptors on the VTA dopamine neurons, and it puts them into overdrive overstimulating the reward circuit. The VTA dopamine neurons therefore fire a lot and they release unusually large quantities of dopamine. And this large dopamine release has two important consequences that contribute to addiction. First, it triggers wanting or craving. And second, it signals the need for more learning and the strengthening of neural pathways. Remember in lectures two and three when we talked about reward processing in the brain? We pointed out the important role of prediction error in signaling the need for new learning. And we argued that dopamine release serves as that prediction error signal. So dopamine is not actually signaling the presence of reward, rather it's signaling that the reward is better than expected. In other words, that there was a prediction error. And such prediction errors signal the need for new learning so that rewards can be better predicted in the future. And we also explained how this prediction error actually backs up so that eventually the dopamine gets released when cues or triggers that come before the reward are presented. Okay, now let's think about all this in the context of smoking and nicotine. Chronic smoking leads to the repeated release of high levels of dopamine by activation of the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors on these VTA neurons. Over time, that dopamine signal backs up 
to the environmental cues that are associated with smoking. For example, a pack of cigarettes, a book of matches, the smell of smoke, the inside of a bar. Eventually, any and all of these environmental stimuli become triggers that will lead to dopamine release themselves. And the dopamine is what produces that strong craving, which leads to more smoking. And of course, the longer this cycle repeats, the stronger the associations become. And pretty soon, it's virtually impossible to resist the urge to smoke, and an addiction is born. Another reason smoking is so addictive is that it's an extremely efficient method for delivering nicotine to the brain. It turns out that ingesting low doses of nicotine isn't particularly addictive. Even intravenous administration of nicotine is less addictive than smoking. Why? Well, it's because smoking gets the nicotine to the brain extremely fast. In fact, nicotine reaches the brain about seven seconds after a puff on a cigarette. That's twice as fast as an injection of nicotine. And that fast action appears to contribute to its addictiveness. Okay, well that's obviously a lot of bad news about smoking and nicotine. And I'm very sensitive to the fact that this objective scientific presentation of troubling facts might sound kind of cold and impersonal to people who are smokers. After all, we're talking about real people with a real problem that causes real pain. And many smokers have heard a lot of the bad news before. So I want to spend the rest of this lecture talking about treatment options. But first, let me point out that I'm a scientist, not a medical doctor. So I'm not going to make any specific recommendations. If you or someone you know would like advice on developing a personal treatment plan, they should talk with their doctor. So please don't use this lecture as a substitute for real medical advice. But I can tell you what science has learned about some of the major treatment options that are available. And we've actually learned quite a bit about what works and what doesn't. Now, there's no magic bullet, and quitting is never easy. But there are a number of treatment options that have been scientifically proven to help motivated smokers kick the habit. One very common approach is called nicotine replacement therapy or NRT. The idea is to provide low-dose nicotine without smoking, and then gradually decrease the dose over time until the smoker has kicked the nicotine habit entirely. There are now five FDA-approved approaches to nicotine replacement therapy. The nicotine patch, nicotine gum, nicotine lozenges, nicotine nasal spray, and the nicotine inhaler. And both the nasal spray and the inhaler deliver nicotine quite fast, and they also can be used as needed to control urges. But they both require a prescription. On the other hand, nicotine gum, lozenges, and patches are all now available over-the-counter without a prescription. And that's actually a pretty big deal because it means smokers can easily try them with very little hassle. And so hopefully a lot more will. So, does nicotine replacement therapy actually help smokers quit? Well, a number of clinical studies suggest that the answer is yes. 
Typically in these studies, one group of smokers is provided with nicotine replacement therapy, like nicotine gum or the patch, and another control group of smokers is given a placebo therapy without the nicotine. For example, they might be asked to wear a patch on their skin every day, even though the patch doesn't actually contain nicotine. Or they might chew gum that doesn't contain nicotine. The point is that the two groups do the same things, but one group actually gets nicotine, while the other group doesn't. The good news is that these studies typically find that smokers receiving nicotine replacement are roughly twice as likely to quit as smokers in the control groups. So nicotine replacement does seem to help. The bad news is that most people still don't manage to quit. So less than 10% of people who try to quit on their own succeed the first time. So doubling that with nicotine replacement means that the success rate is still less than 20%. But obviously it's worth trying. And most smokers who do end up quitting tried multiple times before they actually succeeded. Furthermore, previous attempts to quit can be important learning experiences that can help you succeed the next time. In fact, many experts recommend viewing failed quit attempts as normal steps in the path to complete abstinence. Even smokers who don't manage to quit completely still often smoke less than they would have otherwise, which is also better for your health. One other product that's become quite popular is the electronic cigarette, or e-cigarette. But it's controversial. E-cigarettes are similar to nicotine inhalers. When the user takes a drag, the e-cigarette creates a vapor containing nicotine that's inhaled. So what's the difference between e-cigarettes and the standard nicotine replacement therapies that we've been discussing? Well, the big difference is that e-cigarettes haven't undergone the same rigorous testing, and they haven't been approved by the FDA as a smoking cessation treatment. We therefore don't have evidence about whether they actually help people quit or about how safe they are to use. And there's also concern that they might be tempting to non-smokers, especially children, because they're easier to get, and they often include flavors like bubblegum that might appeal to children. The concern is that kids might try e-cigarettes, get addicted to the nicotine, and then turn to smoking real cigarettes. On the other hand, if you're already addicted to nicotine, and you find that e-cigarettes help you stay away from smoking tobacco, then that's certainly a good thing. After all, it's very unlikely that smoking e-cigarettes is as harmful as smoking the real thing. Okay, so far we've talked about treatment options that target nicotine and physical dependence. But as we've seen, there's a lot more to an addiction than physical dependence. In particular, smokers have developed very strong associations between smoking and a variety of environmental triggers. And somehow those associations need to be unlearned. Behavioral therapy attempts to do that. Smokers in behavioral therapy often work on recognizing the triggers that are the most strongly associated with smoking for them. And then they work on strategies for avoiding those triggers or coping with them when they do encounter them. They might learn techniques for managing stress 
which is a very strong trigger to smoke for many people. They might also get help in developing a system of social support from family and friends who can help with encouragement and accountability. Now, traditionally, behavioral therapy has been done in formal settings, but there are now support systems available by phone, by mail, and on the internet. For example, 1-800-QUIT-NOW is a toll-free phone number that will connect U.S. citizens with their state's quit line, including free access to a trained quit coach who can provide advice and counseling over the phone. The website smokefree.gov also provides lots of helpful information and tools to help a smoker quit. Now, not surprisingly, combining behavioral therapy with nicotine replacement therapy is significantly more effective than either method alone. Dealing with both the physical and psychological side of the addiction simultaneously can really help. There are also a couple of other less common treatment options that have proven effective. One is a medication called varenicline that was developed by the pharmaceutical company Pfizer. Varenicline is a partial agonist of nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. Do you remember our discussion of partial agonists in our last lecture? A partial agonist binds to receptors but only partially activates them. So you can think of varenicline as a weak form of nicotine. It binds to the same receptors, but it produces a smaller response. So suppose you're taking varenicline and then you smoke a cigarette. Well, many of the acetylcholine receptors will already be occupied by the varenicline. And so the nicotine won't stimulate the reward circuit as much as it normally would. Consequently, the cravings get smaller and it gets easier to quit. In fact, clinical studies have found varenicline to have about the same effectiveness as nicotine replacement therapy. One problem with varenicline is that a small proportion of users have reported that using it led to depression and even suicidal thoughts. It therefore isn't for everyone and it needs to be used with care. Ironically enough, Another medication that has proven beneficial in helping smokers quit is actually an antidepressant called bupropion. When marketed as an antidepressant, it's called Welbutrin, but as a smoking cessation aid, it's often called Zyban. Bupropion is a nicotinic acetylcholine antagonist, but it also has many other effects on the brain and it's actually currently unclear why it helps smokers quit, but it does. Well, that concludes our discussion of caffeine and nicotine. Next time, we'll talk about alcohol, which our society often treats as a relatively harmless social lubricant rather than as a drug of abuse. But is it really different from other addictive drugs? For example, does alcohol hijack the brain's reward circuit like other drugs? We'll answer these and many related questions in our next lecture. See you then. Lecture 7. Alcohol. Social lubricant or drug of abuse.
You've probably heard the phrase drugs and alcohol many times before, perhaps in the context of drug and alcohol education programs in schools or social programs that target the abuse of drugs and alcohol by adults. But the phrase underscores a very interesting phenomenon. People often consider alcohol to be fundamentally different than less socially acceptable substances like cocaine or heroin. And if you think about it, modern society also often treats alcohol differently. Alcohol is kind of like a social lubricant in our society, and the vast majority of adults drink alcohol occasionally, not to mention a large number of teenagers. It's actually kind of rare to attend a party or significant social event without drinks. In fact, it's not uncommon for people to feel some obligation to drink in certain contexts, even if they don't want to. So many people probably find it strange to think of alcohol as a drug and to group it with substances like cocaine and heroin. But is alcohol fundamentally different than these other drugs of abuse? Well, clearly in some superficial ways it is. First and foremost, alcohol is legal and cocaine isn't. And that's obviously a very important difference. But what about in other ways? Specifically, is the way that alcohol affects the human body similar to the way that other addictive drugs affect the body? That's what we're going to think about today. We'll apply what we've learned so far about drugs of abuse, and we'll see if alcohol affects the brain in the same way. So how does alcohol affect the brain? Well, as you've learned, Neurons in the brain typically communicate using special chemicals called neurotransmitters. One neuron releases a bunch of neurotransmitter molecules, and these molecules bind to receptors on neighboring neurons, potentially activating those receptors and producing specific biological effects. And we saw that drugs of abuse typically bind to the same receptors as natural neurotransmitters but then they produce abnormal levels of activity in those receptors. And that abnormal activity is what makes the drugs psychoactive, making the user experience particular feelings like euphoria or excitement or contentment. So does alcohol also bind to natural receptors and produce abnormal receptor activity? The answer is yes. In fact, Alcohol affects receptors for multiple neurotransmitters, and two of the most important are called glutamate and GABA. Glutamate is the major excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain. It's the chemical that many neurons use to try to make neighboring neurons fire. Glutamate has a few different receptors, but the one that's most influenced by alcohol is the NMDA receptor. These receptors have been found to play a major role in learning and memory. Alcohol binds to NMDA receptors and it makes them less active. And the way it does this is kind of interesting. You see, NMDA receptors have multiple binding sites. And alcohol actually binds to a different site on the receptor than glutamate. 
And when alcohol binds, it actually changes the receptor and it makes it less responsive to glutamate. This is called allosteric modulation. The alcohol is modulating the effects of glutamate by binding to a different site on the NMDA receptors. The bottom line is that alcohol reduces the effects that glutamate normally has. And as we mentioned, what glutamate normally does is to excite neurons and make them fire. So by inhibiting or antagonizing glutamate, alcohol suppresses neural activity in the brain. And that's why it produces a sedative and hypnotic effect. Also, the fact that NMDA receptors play an important role in learning and memory may explain why large doses of alcohol can produce blackouts and amnesia. The other major neurotransmitter that alcohol affects is GABA. While glutamate is the brain's major excitatory neurotransmitter, GABA is its major inhibitory neurotransmitter. So when GABA receptors on a neuron are activated, they try to prevent the neuron from firing. So increasing the activity of GABA actually suppresses neural activity. Now, scientists have not yet found a particular site on the GABA receptors where alcohol binds. Nevertheless, most still believe that alcohol is again acting as an allosteric modulator, but this time making GABA receptors more responsive to GABA and therefore suppressing neural activity. The reason they believe this is because the effects of alcohol are so similar to drugs that do bind to GABA receptors. In particular, barbiturate drugs. Barbiturates are known to bind to GABA receptors and they have very similar effects to alcohol. They also inhibit neural activity and they produce sedative, hypnotic effects. Furthermore, there is cross-tolerance between alcohol and barbiturates. What that means is that a longtime user of barbiturates who has developed a tolerance to those drugs may also be tolerant to alcohol. In other words, it would take an unusually large number of drinks to make that person drunk, even if they never drank before. So that suggests that alcohol must be working on the brain in the same way barbiturates do. And since barbiturates bind to GABA receptors and make them more active, scientists assume alcohol must do that too. Okay, so alcohol shares at least one important characteristic with drugs of abuse. They both bind to natural receptors in the brain and lead to abnormal levels of activity. A second characteristic of drugs of abuse is that repeated use can lead to compensatory changes in the body that produce physical dependence, characterized by tolerance to the drug's effects and withdrawal symptoms when the drug is stopped. So, does chronic alcohol use produce similar compensatory changes and physical dependence? Definitely. As you probably know, People who drink a lot for an extended period of time will typically become less sensitive to alcohol's effects over time. They develop a tolerance for alcohol. There are actually a number of changes that happen in the body that contribute to alcohol tolerance. 
One change occurs in the digestive system. It turns out that if someone drinks heavily for years, their body will begin to produce more of the enzymes that break down alcohol in the stomach and liver. And having more of these enzymes means they can break down alcohol faster than they could originally. Consequently, less of the alcohol they drink actually gets to the brain. And so they need to drink more to have the same effect. Well, that's tolerance. Compensatory changes also occur in the brain. In particular, there's evidence for an upregulation of NMDA receptors and a downregulation of GABA receptors in the brains of heavy drinkers. So what do I mean by that? Well, recall that alcohol binds to NMDA receptors and it inhibits the activity of glutamate. Well, if you continuously and chronically use alcohol, the brain will try to compensate for that by producing more NMDA receptors. That's what we mean by upregulation. Conversely, chronic alcohol use leads to downregulation of GABA receptors. In this case, the brain is compensating for the overstimulation of these GABA receptors by producing fewer of them. And these compensatory changes contribute to alcohol tolerance. In most people, alcohol produces sedative and hypnotic effects because of the way it inhibits neural processing. But the brain of the chronic alcohol drinker has reduced its ability to produce inhibition. Consequently, alcoholics won't experience the same amount of sedation. They become tolerant to the effects of alcohol, a clear sign of physical dependence. What about withdrawal? Do heavy drinkers who quit experience withdrawal symptoms? Absolutely. Withdrawal symptoms from heavy drinking are actually worse than withdrawal symptoms from most drugs of abuse. In fact, withdrawal from alcohol can be quite dangerous, even fatal. Standard symptoms of alcohol withdrawal include tremors and shakes, high anxiety, high blood pressure, increased heart rate, sweating, and nausea. And in severe cases, Alcoholics in withdrawal may experience delirium tremens, or DTs, characterized by convulsions and hallucinations, or delirium. It's therefore important for a heavy drinker who wants to quit to do so under a doctor's supervision. So, what's causing these severe withdrawal symptoms? Well, what do you think would happen if alcohol is discontinued after the upregulation and downregulation of brain receptors that we talked about? There are more NMDA receptors than normal, but now the alcohol isn't there to inhibit the excitatory actions of glutamate. So you get abnormally high levels of neural activity. Worse yet, the downregulation of GABA receptors means that there are fewer of them to inhibit neural processing and keep it in check. The end result is substantial overstimulation when alcohol is stopped. And it's that overstimulation that's thought to give rise to the seizures and anxiety that are associated with alcohol withdrawal. Clearly, the alcoholic is now physically dependent on alcohol and needs to drink just to feel normal. 
Now let's turn to a third characteristic of drugs of abuse, their addictiveness. Is alcohol also addictive? And if so, is the mechanism of addiction similar to drugs of abuse? Well, I'm sure you already know the answer to the first question. Of course alcohol is addictive. Just ask any alcoholic who's trying to quit. In fact, the World Health Organization estimated that there are approximately 140 million people addicted to alcohol worldwide. These are people who are physically dependent on alcohol and who continue to use it despite significant negative consequences. This makes alcohol the single most abused substance on the planet. But are the mechanisms underlying alcohol addiction similar to the mechanisms underlying addiction to drugs of abuse? Well, do you remember what some of those mechanisms are? First, remember that drugs of abuse overstimulate the brain's reward circuit. They tend to excite or activate the nucleus accumbens, which is associated with feelings of pleasure. They also tend to lead to a release of dopamine by neurons in the ventral tegmental area, or VTA. And that dopamine release is associated with craving or wanting. And we also talked about how that dopamine release will back up to cues that are associated with the drug taking. So now when the drug user encounters those cues, dopamine's released and they may experience a strong craving to use the drug. So, are these same mechanisms at work in the brains of alcoholics? Yes, they are. First, consider the brain's pleasure center, the nucleus accumbens. It turns out that drugs that block the response of the nucleus accumbens also reduce the desire to drink alcohol. For example, animals can also become addicted to alcohol. And once they're addicted, they will self-administer alcohol just like human alcoholics will. And even their pattern of alcoholic use is similar. Specifically, like many human alcoholics, they often drink in binges. Well, if these alcoholic animals are then given a drug that blocks or antagonizes receptors in the nucleus accumbens, the level of self-administration drops significantly. And the same thing has been found in humans. As we'll discuss a little later in the lecture, these kinds of drugs are now regularly used to help treat alcoholism. Now these findings imply that alcohol must be activating the nucleus accumbens and producing a reward response, just like drugs of abuse do. I mean, after all, if alcohol didn't activate the nucleus accumbens, then why would a drug that antagonizes receptors on the nucleus accumbens affect alcohol use? But it does. Second, like drugs of abuse, alcohol has also been shown to lead to increased dopamine release in the reward circuit. Now, this might seem strange since alcohol tends to inhibit neural activity. So why would alcohol lead to increased activity in dopamine neurons? Well, most scientists believe that alcohol is producing a disinhibition effect in the reward circuit. Here's the idea. A bunch of neurons normally inhibit the dopamine neurons in the VTA, but alcohol inhibits those inhibitors. It therefore disinhibits the VTA dopamine neurons, 
And the end result is greater activity in the VTA and a greater release of dopamine. Alcoholics also have very strong triggers associated with alcohol use, just like drug addicts have triggers associated with drug use. So when an alcoholic walks by a bar or sees a bottle, those cues can trigger strong cravings to drink, consistent with the idea that the heavy drinker has learned strong associations between those cues and drug-taking behavior. Just like a crack addict has strong associations with the sight of a crack pipe, and a heroin addict has strong associations with the sight of a needle. Furthermore, just like other addictions, there's very good evidence for genetic susceptibility to alcohol addiction. For example, you remember when we talked about inbred mouse strains in our lecture on the genetics of addiction? All the mice within one strain are genetically virtually identical, but different strains are different. And you may recall that some strains tend to prefer drinking alcohol compared to drinking water, while other strains prefer drinking water. So apparently, your genetic makeup can influence your desire to drink. Genetics can also protect you from alcoholism. For example, most of us have two enzymes in our digestive system that break down alcohol. But it turns out that many East Asians have a genetic variation that produces an inactive form of one of those enzymes. And as a result, these people can have a fairly severe reaction to alcohol, which is sometimes referred to as the Asian flush reaction, or just Asian glow. The symptoms can include a red flushing of the skin, nausea, and even vomiting. Well, as you might imagine, people with this genetic variation tend not to drink much alcohol because it's very unpleasant for them. And as a result, they're almost completely protected from ever becoming alcoholics. Okay, we've seen that alcohol shares at least four similarities with drugs of abuse. First, its mechanism of action on the brain is similar. Just like drugs of abuse, alcohol binds to natural brain receptors and produces abnormal levels of activity. Second, like drugs of abuse, heavy drinking leads to compensatory changes in the body, which produce tolerance and withdrawal symptoms. Third, the mechanisms of addiction to alcohol seem to be similar to the mechanisms of addiction to other drugs. For example, alcohol leads to the release of dopamine, and it also activates the nucleus accumbens, the brain's reward center. And finally, genetic factors play an important role in addiction to alcohol, just like they do in addiction to other drugs. Now, despite these similarities, you could still argue that alcohol is different from drugs of abuse on other grounds. For example, alcohol is legal, while some other drugs aren't. It's also much more socially acceptable than so-called harder drugs. More importantly, though, there's some evidence that although alcohol is addictive, it's not as addictive as cocaine or heroin, or nicotine for that matter. This evidence comes from animal self-administration studies. Animals typically won't drink alcohol voluntarily, presumably because they don't like the taste. Furthermore, 
absorption of alcohol from the digestive system is relatively slow. And so the reinforcing effects take a while to have an impact. However, if animals are forced to drink alcohol, then they will indeed become addicted, and they'll voluntarily drink alcohol later. They'll also self-administer alcohol via an intravenous line without prompting. Now, I'll leave it up to you to decide whether these differences are big enough to say that alcohol is fundamentally different than other addictive drugs. Personally, I don't think so. But at the very least, I think we can agree that alcohol does share a number of similarities with drugs of abuse. Chronic alcohol use is also associated with a number of significant negative consequences, just like the chronic use of other drugs. So let's talk about some of those consequences. First, it's important to point out at the outset that most of the negative consequences we'll be discussing are associated with excessive alcohol use, not moderate use. In fact, moderate drinking can actually have some positive impacts on health. Low doses of alcohol dilate blood vessels, which produces good oxygen supply to the brain, and that may protect you from later dementia. Moderate drinking also increases levels of good cholesterol and decreases levels of bad cholesterol, thus reducing your risk of heart disease. But excessive drinking and drinking at inappropriate times is associated with some very significant health risks. For example, as you may know, long-term heavy drinking can lead to cirrhosis of the liver. It can also cause brain damage and shrinkage of the cerebral cortex. And of course, drinking and driving can have fatal consequences. In fact, alcohol is estimated to be involved in about 50% of all highway deaths. Heavy alcohol use can even lead to malnutrition. It turns out that alcoholic drinks are relatively high in calories, but they don't provide protein or vitamins or minerals. And so alcoholics often don't eat enough because they're getting a lot of calories from alcohol. As a result, they often develop a vitamin deficiency, and specifically a deficiency in the B1 vitamin, thiamine. And this vitamin deficiency can actually lead to brain damage and a severe amnesia. This is called Korsakoff syndrome, and it's one of the leading causes of amnesia. Okay, well, as I mentioned in the last lecture, I don't want these lectures to come across as purely intellectual exercises, especially to people who are struggling with an addiction themselves. So I'd like to spend the last few minutes talking about potential treatment options for alcoholism. And now remember, I'm not a medical doctor, and so people who want to try to break an addiction to alcohol should talk with their physician about their options. And doing so is particularly important in the case of alcohol because withdrawal from alcohol can be so dangerous. But with that caveat in mind, let's talk about approaches to treating an addiction to alcohol. The first step is usually detoxification. That means weaning the person off of alcohol for a long enough period of time that their physical dependence has subsided and they aren't experiencing severe withdrawal symptoms anymore. Detoxification often involves providing a substitute for alcohol, 
that can mimic some of its inhibitory effects in order to prevent the severe overstimulation that typically occurs during alcohol withdrawal. In particular, physicians will often prescribe benzodiazepines like Valium during detoxification. Benzodiazepines activate the inhibitory GABA receptors like alcohol does. So taking them when you're quitting alcohol helps to prevent the dangerous symptoms like seizures and DTs that are associated with alcohol withdrawal. After detox, the next step is often some kind of psychosocial rehabilitation. This could be individual or group therapy, or it could be a self-help group like Alcoholics Anonymous, Rational Recovery, or the Community Reinforcement Approach. All of these psychosocial methods do seem to help in the sense that people who participate are more likely to quit drinking than people who don't. However, they don't work for everyone. In fact, roughly 40 to 70% of people in the programs are drinking again after one year. Nevertheless, as we mentioned when we were talking about quitting smoking, it's often helpful to see failures as learning opportunities and as normal steps in the road to complete abstinence. There are also some pharmacological interventions that have proven to be helpful in helping drinkers quit. One common approach is a drug called disulfiram. Disulfiram inhibits one of the enzymes that breaks down alcohol. And by inhibiting this enzyme, people aren't able to break down alcohol as efficiently as they normally do. As a result, they have a very unpleasant reaction to alcohol, similar to the Asian flush reaction that we discussed. In particular, when people drink alcohol while they're taking disulfiram, they'll typically experience intense, unpleasant, hangover-like symptoms. And the hope is that these symptoms will make drinking aversive and people will feel less of an urge to drink. Now, one problem with this approach is that you have to be very determined to quit drinking for it to work, because otherwise you'll simply stop taking the drug. A second pharmacological approach is to try to eliminate the rewarding effects of alcohol. Remember, we pointed out that alcohol activates the nucleus accumbens, the brain's pleasure center. Well, a drug called naltrexone tries to help alcoholics quit by inhibiting that pleasure response. Naltrexone is what's called an opioid antagonist. It competes with natural painkillers in the brain called opioids that normally activate the nucleus accumbens and leads to feelings of pleasure. When naltrexone is taken, it competes with those opioids and it makes it harder for them to activate their receptors. As a result, people feel less pleasure or less reward from drinking alcohol than they normally would. And reducing the pleasure associated with drinking can help alcoholics quit, especially when naltrexone is combined with behavioral therapy. In fact, quit rates double after three months of such a treatment combination. Finally, a third medication that has proven somewhat effective in helping alcoholics is called acamprosate. Now, recall that alcohol is an allosteric modulator of NMDA receptors. 
That is, it binds to NMDA receptors, but at a different site than glutamate. And when it binds, it changes the NMDA receptors and makes them less responsive to glutamate. Well, acamprosate is also thought to make NMDA receptors less responsive to glutamate, probably via the same kind of allosteric modulation mechanism. Acamprosate also reduces the sensitivity of other non-NMDA receptors. Now remember, glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter. And one of the problems with alcohol withdrawal is that the glutamate system goes into overdrive, leading to too much neural activity and to tremors, anxiety, and even seizures. Well, if you're taking acamprosate, then the receptors will be less responsive to glutamate which helps to keep the excitatory glutamate system under control. And that can reduce those unpleasant side effects and hopefully help the recovering alcoholic stay abstinent. Okay, let's finish up. In the last couple of lectures, we focused on common and socially accepted psychoactive drugs, caffeine, nicotine, and alcohol. In the next part of the course, we'll turn to some drugs that are more controversial and less accepted. And we'll start with what might be the most controversial of all, marijuana. How does marijuana affect the brain? How addictive is it? Does it really have any legitimate medical applications? These are the kinds of questions we'll answer in our next lecture, all about the science of pot. Lecture 8, The Science of Marijuana. In March of 2011, federal agents simultaneously raided dozens of locations in Montana where marijuana was being grown and distributed. The raids were the culmination of a two-year federal drug trafficking investigation, and they resulted in the convictions of 33 people. But the raids were controversial. You see, the growers were medical marijuana providers, and using marijuana for medical purposes was legal, according to Montana state law. In fact, many of the growers often consulted with Montana state officials to get input on their operation. Some even gave regular tours to police and politicians, including the head of the state narcotics control office. The problem was that federal law at the time didn't recognize any currently accepted medical use of marijuana in treatment, and it outlawed its production and distribution. The growers in Montana assumed that the federal authorities would leave them alone as long as they complied with state laws. Obviously, they were wrong, and some of them went to prison as a result. Your reaction to this case probably depends a lot on how you feel about marijuana itself. Some people see marijuana as a dangerous, addictive drug, and they often think of medical marijuana as a loophole that drug dealers and addicts use to skirt the law. They may see the Montana raids as a far too infrequent success story in the nation's war on drugs. But other people see marijuana as a relatively harmless drug, and one that has some beneficial properties that could help patients suffering from a number of illnesses. And obviously those people might view the Montana raids in a very different light. Well, 
what does science have to say about marijuana? What does marijuana do to the brain? And what kinds of effects does it have? Does it have any demonstrated medical benefits? How addictive is it? These are the kinds of questions we're going to talk about today. Let's begin by providing some background on marijuana, including where it comes from and how it's used. Marijuana comes from the hemp plant, which is called cannabis sativa in Latin. Historically, the hemp plant has had a wide variety of uses, including making fiber, clothing, rope, and canvas. In fact, the word canvas is derived from the word cannabis. Canvas literally means made of hemp. Now, as you might imagine, given all these uses, hemp has been cultivated for thousands of years all over the world, including in the U.S. None other than George Washington himself grew hemp on his farm. Marijuana, hashish, and hash oil are all derived from hemp. Marijuana is basically dried pieces of the hemp plant. Hashish is dried resin from the plant. And hash oil is a more concentrated form of the resin. All three forms are usually smoked and inhaled, although they're also sometimes eaten, for example, being baked into brownies. Now, I'll mainly use the term marijuana throughout today's talk, but what I really mean is any of these forms of cannabis. What all of these forms of cannabis have in common is that they contain chemicals called cannabinoids. And many cannabinoids are psychoactive. So when they enter the bloodstream and get to the brain, they can produce psychological and behavioral effects. In 1964, scientists identified one particular cannabinoid that seems to be responsible for the major effects associated with marijuana use. It's called Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC for short. And it's the THC in hemp that produces many of the psychoactive effects associated with marijuana. So how do cannabinoids like THC affect the brain? Well, for a long time, the answer was, we don't know. But that changed in 1988 when William Devane, Alan Howlett, and their colleagues at the St. Louis University Medical School found evidence for cannabinoid receptors in the brain. Do you remember how neurotransmitters bind to specific molecules called receptors in the brain? Recall that most psychoactive drugs produce their effects by mimicking neurotransmitters and binding to natural brain receptors. Well, cannabinoids like THC are no exception to that rule. And the receptors that they bind to were even named after them. That's why they're called cannabinoid receptors. And there are two major types of cannabinoid receptors in the body, the CB1 receptors and the CB2 receptors. The CB2 receptors play an important role in the immune system and are not thought to be involved in the psychological effects produced by marijuana. It's the CB1 receptors in the brain that underlie those effects. And so those are the ones that we'll be focusing on. Now, presumably the brain doesn't have receptors that were specifically designed to respond to marijuana. Rather, scientists assumed that there must be some natural brain chemicals that bind to cannabinoid receptors. 
So after discovering the receptors, scientists went looking for the chemicals. And in 1992, they found one, a natural brain chemical called anandamide. And subsequent studies have found a few others. Now, these natural chemicals that are produced in the brain itself are sometimes called endogenous cannabinoids, or just endocannabinoids for short. These are different from exogenous cannabinoids that come from outside the body. Endogenous literally means produced from within, while exogenous means produced from outside. So anandamide is an endocannabinoid because it's made within the body, while THC is an exogenous cannabinoid because it comes from outside, specifically from cannabis. And when scientists investigated the properties of endogenous cannabinoids more deeply, they discovered something pretty interesting. Endocannabinoids are actually quite different from most other neurotransmitters in the brain. So most neurotransmitters are stored in neurons and then they're released when the neuron fires. But endocannabinoids appear to be made only when they're needed rather than being stored. What's more important is that cannabinoids seem to work largely as retrograde messengers. Recall that when neurons communicate, what usually happens is one of them fires and releases a bunch of neurotransmitter molecules into the synapse, or the small gap between the cells. The neurotransmitter molecules then move across the synapse and bind to receptors on another neuron, perhaps causing that neuron to fire too. The cell that fires and releases the neurotransmitter is called the presynaptic cell, and the cell that the neurotransmitter binds to is called the postsynaptic cell. So normally, brain chemicals move from the presynaptic cell and bind to receptors on the postsynaptic cell. But cannabinoid receptors are not usually found on the postsynaptic cell. They're usually on the presynaptic cells. And that led scientists to hypothesize that cannabinoids are typically used to send messages back from the postsynaptic cell to the presynaptic cell. And that's what it means to be a retrograde messenger. And subsequent evidence has confirmed that hypothesis. In particular, endocannabinoids like anandamide are typically released by the postsynaptic cell and then they move back to the presynaptic cell where they bind to the CB1 receptors. But why? What function could retrograde messaging serve? Well, most scientists believe that it's used to regulate neural transmission. Specifically, retrograde messaging can turn off the presynaptic cell once it's released enough neurotransmitter molecules and therefore prevent it from releasing too much. And this mechanism has been found in both excitatory and inhibitory synapses, suggesting that cannabinoids can prevent too much excitation as well as too much inhibition. Furthermore, some recent evidence suggests that the regulatory functions of cannabinoids may be important in helping us forget things that we need to forget. For example, suppose you park in the same structure that you parked in yesterday. Well, sometimes your memory of yesterday's parking spot can interfere with your ability to remember where you parked today. That's called proactive interference. 
And there's evidence that endocannabinoids can reduce this kind of interference. In one experiment, mice were placed in a tank of water. And at one location in the tank, there was a platform hidden just below the surface. The mice swam around the tank until they happened to bump into the platform, which allowed them to rest without having to swim. After a few trials like this, mice will learn where the platform is and swim straight to it. But what happens if you move the platform after they've learned its location? Well, naturally at first, they swim around the old location, looking for the platform. But eventually, they start exploring the rest of the tank. And ultimately, they find the new location. Well, after a few more trials, they overcome the interference from the previous location, and they swim straight to the new one. But it turns out this ability to forget the previous location actually depends on cannabinoid receptors. In particular, knockout mice that are missing the CB1 receptors will repeatedly swim to the original location, as if they can't forget it. Likewise, cannabinoid receptors are critical in unlearning fear, a phenomenon called fear extinction. So suppose rats are repeatedly shocked whenever they hear a particular tone. Pretty soon, they'll associate the tone with the shock, and they'll freeze whenever they hear the tone. This is kind of like Pavlov's dogs, which we discussed in lecture two. But in this case, the rats are getting a shock instead of getting food. Now, suppose that you repeatedly present the tone, but you don't shock the animals anymore. Well, at first, of course, they'll still freeze. But over time, they'll gradually unlearn the association, and they'll stop freezing. In other words, their fear is extinguished over time. And this kind of fear extinction depends on endocannabinoids. We know this because blocking the action of cannabinoids using CB1 receptor antagonist drugs also blocks fear extinction. So when cannabinoids are blocked, the rats will remain afraid of the tone, and they'll continue freezing, even though the tone is no longer associated with the shock. These findings have led scientists in some interesting directions, like using exogenous cannabinoids to treat post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. After significant trauma, some people experience recurring flashbacks, nightmares, and significant fear, even though the trauma may be long over. It's as if these people have trouble extinguishing their fear, similar to the rats in whom the action of cannabinoids had been blocked. And in fact, some studies have found that people experiencing PTSD have lower than normal levels of the endocannabinoid anandamide, so scientists are becoming more interested in using exogenous cannabinoids, including medical marijuana, as a potential treatment for PTSD. These findings may also explain why marijuana users often report memory problems. Hyperactivating the endocannabinoid system with an exogenous cannabinoid like marijuana may lead to forgetting information that you actually want to remember. And consistent with that hypothesis, cannabinoid receptors are found in high concentration in the hippocampus, a brain area that's known to be crucially important for long-term memory. But the receptors aren't just found there. 
In fact, cannabinoid receptors have been found all over the brain. They're found in areas involved in motor control and in areas that process fear and anxiety. And perhaps most relevant for this course, they're also found in the midbrain dopamine system and the reward circuit. Now the fact that cannabinoid receptors are found in so many areas suggests that cannabinoids, like THC, might have a broad range of effects. And in fact, they do. So marijuana users report a variety of effects that can differ substantially depending on the person and the situation. Many users report a feeling of euphoria and exhilaration, as well as lowered inhibitions. For example, users will often laugh at things that they wouldn't normally find funny, and they might not even be able to stop themselves from laughing, even if they try. Users also often report feeling relaxed and calm, and many experience enhanced visual and auditory perception. Food might taste unusually good. Music might sound remarkably beautiful, and natural scenery might look breathtaking. Some people also report a sense that time is slowing down substantially. At higher doses, marijuana can produce less pleasant symptoms, such as disorganized thoughts and feelings of paranoia and anxiety. Higher doses are also associated with impaired judgment and agitation. However, there are no reported cases of death as a result of marijuana overdose. So in that sense, the margin of safety for marijuana seems to be much larger than the margin of safety for other drugs of abuse, like heroin or cocaine. But besides these psychological effects, cannabinoids have other effects that have played an important role in their medicinal use. In particular, they can be quite effective in reducing nausea and vomiting and in increasing appetite what is often referred to as the munchies. Well, as you can imagine, reducing nausea and increasing appetite are quite desirable in a number of circumstances, including treating many chronic illnesses. For example, cancer patients undergoing chemotherapy often experience severe nausea and reduced appetite, and they may have a hard time keeping down what little food they do manage to eat. But a number of studies have now demonstrated that chemotherapy patients who take cannabinoids under a doctor's supervision experience significantly less nausea and vomiting than patients who don't. Likewise, AIDS patients frequently suffer from a severe lack of appetite, and they may lose dangerous amounts of weight as a result. These patients also eat more and keep more weight on when taking cannabinoids than when they're not. There are other benefits as well. Cannabinoids have been shown to help relieve pain, particularly when traditional painkillers are insufficient. And there's even evidence from animal studies that cannabinoids may inhibit the development of certain types of tumors. The bottom line is that there are some legitimate medical uses of cannabinoids. And indeed, there are now cannabinoid-based pills that are approved for use in the treatment of both chemotherapy-induced nausea and AIDS. In many states, medical marijuana itself has been legalized and is being used to treat patients. And in fact, in several states, recreational use of marijuana is now legal. On the other hand, 
There are often alternative drugs that can treat the same symptoms without the psychoactive effects of cannabinoids. For example, synthetic derivatives of the hormone progesterone also increase appetite, and some studies suggest that they actually do so more effectively than cannabinoids. So in short, the debate over medical marijuana isn't over yet. Now let's turn to the issue of marijuana addiction and abuse. Marijuana is the most widely used illegal drug in the world. More than 17 million Americans use marijuana in a typical month, and there are more than 3 million daily users. Marijuana use typically starts during adolescence. In fact, it's fairly rare to find regular marijuana users who started after age 25. Among high school seniors, about one-third have used marijuana during the past year, and about a fifth are current users. And believe it or not, about one in eight eighth graders have reported trying marijuana in the past year. But does trying marijuana lead to chronic use? Well, a 1994 survey conducted by the National Institute on Drug Abuse found that about 9% of people who tried marijuana at least once eventually became addicted. So roughly one in 10 people. Now, clearly this number is significant, but it's also lower than the addiction rates for other drugs that were evaluated in the survey. So for example, about 15% of people who tried alcohol became addicted to alcohol, and about 17% of people who tried cocaine became addicted to cocaine. The addiction rate for nicotine was the highest of all. 32% of people who tried nicotine eventually became addicted. So the bottom line is that marijuana is indeed somewhat addictive, but it's not as addictive as most other drugs of abuse. Work with animals also suggests that marijuana and exogenous cannabinoids in general are moderately addictive. For example, monkeys will self-administer doses of THC that are comparable to the level that would be found in a marijuana cigarette. Furthermore, if you block the effects of cannabinoids with antagonist drugs, then THC is no longer addictive. That suggests that the addiction depends in part on the action of THC on cannabinoid receptors in the brain. Now, one question you might be asking yourself is whether the familiar neural mechanisms of addiction that we've encountered before are also at work with marijuana. And the answer is yes. Specifically, like other drugs of abuse, marijuana has been shown to lead to enhanced activity in the reward circuit and to stimulate the firing of dopamine neurons in the ventral tegmental area. Furthermore, injections of the endogenous cannabinoid anandamide have been shown to produce pleasurable reactions in animals. What about dependence and tolerance? Well, there is some evidence that chronic marijuana users do develop a physical dependence on the drug. Specifically, when they stop using marijuana, they often exhibit withdrawal symptoms, including craving, irritability, anxiety, depression, and reduced appetite. In general, they exhibit symptoms that are similar to the symptoms of nicotine withdrawal. Likewise, animals that have been chronically exposed to cannabinoids will exhibit withdrawal symptoms if they receive an antagonist that blocks the drug's effects.
So they'll exhibit wet dog shakes, increased grooming, and hyperactivity, for example. All this evidence suggests that the chronic user's body has gotten used to the presence of exogenous cannabinoids, and it has compensated. So now, when those exogenous cannabinoids are removed, the user experiences withdrawal. In short, they're dependent on marijuana to feel normal. On the other hand, the evidence for the development of tolerance is actually mixed. On the one hand, there's evidence of significant downregulation of CB1 receptors in animals that are injected with THC on a regular basis. That is, their brain compensates for the regular presence of this exogenous cannabinoid by reducing the number of cannabinoid receptors. So you might expect that regular users would experience tolerance and that it would require more of the drug to experience the same effects. But it turns out a number of reports have actually found that regular marijuana users still report the same high as they experienced the first few times they used marijuana. And the amount of marijuana that gets used actually doesn't rapidly escalate like it does for most other drugs of abuse. So, on the one hand, we have evidence for tolerance at a physiological level in terms of a reduction in the number of receptors, but on the other hand, the evidence for behavioral tolerance is actually much weaker. Okay, so marijuana does appear to be somewhat addictive, and the underlying neural mechanisms of addiction seem similar to other drugs of abuse. But does chronic use of marijuana constitute abuse? In particular, does it lead to significant negative consequences for the user? Well, there are some negative consequences associated with chronic marijuana use. For example, compared with non-smoking peers, students who regularly smoke marijuana tend to get lower grades, and they're also more likely to drop out of high school. In fact, a review of 48 different scientific studies found that marijuana use was consistently associated with worse grades and lower chances of graduation. Now there's a problem in knowing how to interpret these studies because they're correlational in nature. That is, scientists didn't randomly assign some people to the marijuana group and other people to the control group and then look at the effects of that manipulation. Rather, they found students who were already using and compared their academic performance with students who were not. And as any scientist can tell you, correlational studies like that don't support claims about causality. In other words, just because marijuana use is correlated with poor academic performance, that doesn't mean that marijuana use caused the poor grades. It could be that poor academic performance led to discouragement and disillusionment, which in turn led to marijuana use rather than the other way around. Or maybe some other factor like stress at home or socioeconomic status contributed to both marijuana use and poor academic performance. The bottom line is that there is an association, but we don't know why. There's also good evidence for a correlation between marijuana use and what is sometimes called an amotivational syndrome. That is, 
Chronic marijuana users are often more apathetic or aimless than non-users, and they may lack motivation and exhibit decreased productivity in general. Again, we have a correlation between marijuana use and these behaviors, but we haven't established causation. And it could be that people who have low motivation to begin with also tend to smoke marijuana rather than the other way around. And one of the most popular current theories among scientists is that use of marijuana at a young age is associated with the adoption of an unconventional outlook on success. So regular marijuana users may put less value on getting good grades and on succeeding in the eyes of the world compared with non-users. And that difference in outlook may be one reason for the lower grades and lower graduation rate. There's also controversy about whether marijuana might be a gateway to harder drugs. The gateway theory claims that marijuana use primes the pump and puts one at risk for the use of more dangerous drugs like cocaine and heroin later in life. Well, it is true that a correlation is present. Early marijuana use is indeed associated with later use of harder drugs. But once again, that correlation doesn't necessarily imply causation. In fact, I think most scientists today believe that people end up using hard drugs for reasons other than previous marijuana use. Perhaps they have a genetic susceptibility or a risk-seeking personality. But the same factors that led them to use harder drugs also led them to use marijuana. And maybe the main reason they used marijuana first is simply because it's easier to obtain. One other potential negative consequence that we should discuss is your health. Is prolonged use of marijuana bad for you? Well, maybe surprisingly, the health effects of marijuana don't seem to be as bad as the health effects of alcohol and cigarettes. Long-term use does seem to be associated with bronchitis, and marijuana smoke actually contains higher concentrations of some carcinogens than cigarette smoke does. But the link between chronic marijuana use and lung cancer has not yet been conclusively demonstrated. And one reason could be that marijuana users tend to smoke far less than tobacco smokers. Finally, let's say a few words about treatment. If someone feels addicted to marijuana and would like to quit, what approaches have been demonstrated to be effective? Well, most current treatments for marijuana addiction use behavioral therapy. In particular, many techniques combine cognitive behavioral therapy with motivational incentives. Cognitive behavioral therapy trains patients to recognize and avoid the triggers associated with cravings, and it teaches them strategies to cope with those cravings without using. Many therapies also include a motivational component in which patients are rewarded, sometimes even with real money, for abstinence. And there is evidence that these techniques can help. For example, in one study, 37% of people who received cognitive behavioral therapy along with motivational incentives remained abstinent after one year. In comparison, only 17% of people who received motivational incentives alone managed to remain abstinent. 
Likewise, only 23% of people who received cognitive behavioral therapy alone remained abstinent. Now, of course, a 37% success rate means that more than half the participants went back to using marijuana, despite the therapy. So, like most other addictions, we don't yet have particularly effective approaches to treating marijuana addiction. Well, in the previous two lectures, we talked about the legal drugs, caffeine, nicotine, and alcohol. And today, we stepped into the pool of illegal drugs by discussing marijuana. But I think it's fair to say that marijuana represents the shallow end of that pool. And next time, we'll dive into the deep end and talk about stimulant drugs, like cocaine and methamphetamine, that are associated with significantly more severe negative consequences, sometimes even death. But as we'll see, this class of drugs also includes compounds that are often prescribed to children, which makes for an interesting discussion. See you then. Lecture 9. Stimulants. From Cocaine to Ritalin. In the mid-19th century, German scientists working with a South American plant isolated a chemical that seemed to be a medical breakthrough. It worked well as a local anesthetic, and so it was used to relieve teething pain in infants, and as a topical anesthetic in eye and nasal surgery. It also seemed to increase endurance, and so explorers trying to reach the South Pole used it as a pill that they called forced march. Taking it helped them overcome fatigue, and it allowed them to travel long distances without rest. Sigmund Freud even wrote a paper about the beneficial effects of this new drug and recommended using it to treat a number of disorders ranging from depression to alcoholism. This chemical also formed the basis for an elixir that went on to become the most popular soft drink in the world, Coca-Cola. So what was this wonder drug? Cocaine. The name Coca-Cola actually reflects the fact that the original elixir contained cocaine from coca leaves and caffeine from cola nuts. As you might imagine, the modern formula for Coca-Cola has changed somewhat. Cocaine is what's called a psychomotor stimulant, or just a stimulant for short. And it's stimulant drugs like cocaine that we're going to talk about today. Stimulant drugs are sometimes colloquially referred to as uppers because they produce a feeling of excitement and euphoria. They increase alertness and focus, and they decrease fatigue and appetite. In addition to cocaine, we'll talk about amphetamine and methamphetamine, which are also psychomotor stimulants. As you probably know, these drugs are often considered among the most dangerous drugs of abuse available, and today we'll see why. We'll begin by providing some background on these drugs. Where did they come from? How have they been used? And how have they been abused? Then we'll talk about how they work. What kinds of effects do they have, and how do they affect the brain? And finally, we'll turn to the issue of addiction and abuse. How addictive are these stimulant drugs? Do they hijack the brain's reward circuit like other addictive drugs? 
What treatments are available to help addicts, and how effective are those treatments? Along the way, we'll encounter other stimulant drugs, like Ritalin and Adderall, that are often prescribed to both children and adults as a treatment for attention deficit disorder. Why do physicians prescribe these drugs? Are they safe? Do they help? Like many other drugs of abuse, cocaine comes from a plant. Specifically, it comes from the coca plant, which is prevalent in the countries of Colombia, Peru, and Bolivia in South America. And just like caffeine and nicotine, cocaine is thought to act as a natural insecticide for the coca plant to prevent bugs from eating it. It's kind of interesting how many addictive drugs are actually natural pesticides. Well, the people living in the regions where the coca plant grows have known that the plant has stimulating effects for thousands of years. And many people in these regions regularly chew coca leaves for these effects. Cocaine ingested in this way reaches the brain slowly over a long period of time. So the effects are much milder than snorting cocaine powder or smoking cocaine in the form of crack. Many South Americans chew coca leaves in much the same way people in the U.S. drink coffee. It's just a normal and accepted part of their culture, and it helps people stay alert and productive. It may even help with altitude sickness. But in the mid-1800s, German chemists isolated cocaine in its pure form, and its use and its abuse really took off. By the beginning of the 20th century, people began to realize that cocaine was both addictive and potentially very harmful. And in 1914, the U.S. Congress passed legislation imposing restrictions on its use and sale. Cocaine comes in a number of different forms. The most familiar is probably cocaine powder, which is a water-soluble salt called cocaine hydrochloride. This form of cocaine is often snorted, in the 1970s, some users began treating cocaine powder with chemicals and freeing the cocaine base from the hydrochloride salt in a process called freebasing. The resulting freebase cocaine melts at a lower temperature, which means it can be smoked. And that gets the cocaine to the brain faster, and therefore it produces a more intense high. However, Freebasing involves the use of highly flammable solvents, and so it can be dangerous. For example, the comedian Richard Pryor accidentally set himself on fire while freebasing cocaine in 1980. Well, around that same time, a dried, hardened version of cocaine called crack cocaine appeared. Crack cocaine can also be smoked, leading to a similar very intense high and a strong potential for abuse but its production doesn't involve the use of flammable solvents, so there's less risk of an accident. What about amphetamine and methamphetamine? Well, their history is actually kind of similar to the history of cocaine. Like cocaine, amphetamines are also derived from a plant, in this case, the ephedra sinica plant. Ephedra grows mainly in Mongolia, Russia, and Northeast China. And like the coca plant, the ephedra plant has been used for thousands of years by people who recognized its effects. 
Specifically, it's played an important role in traditional Chinese medicine as a treatment for colds and asthma. In the late 1800s, chemists synthesized amphetamine from the ephedra plant. And about 30 years later, they synthesized methamphetamine. Both are potent and addictive psychostimulants. But as we'll discuss in a few minutes, methamphetamine tends to have stronger effects because of a slight change in chemical structure. For a long time, amphetamine was used to treat nasal congestion and head colds under the trade name Benzedrine. In 1937, the American Medical Association sanctioned the use of amphetamine for the treatment of mild depression and sleep disorders. Amphetamine was even a common diet pill in the 1940s. Stimulants also played an important role during World War II, when many soldiers took them in order to stay awake and alert. For example, Japanese kamikaze pilots often took amphetamines before taking off on their suicide missions. And Nazi leaders distributed millions of doses of methamphetamine to German troops during the war. Even the U.S. military issued amphetamine to some of their troops. In fact, there's a fairly long history of the use of so-called go pills by the Air Force, fighter pilots who need to stay alert on long missions. Some of you may remember a friendly fire incident in Afghanistan in 2002 when an Illinois National Guard pilot mistakenly bombed friendly troops and killed four Canadian soldiers. The pilot claimed that he was pressured to take amphetamine pills and that the pills impaired his judgment. After World War II, the use of amphetamines in the general population really grew. For example, in 1970, over 10 billion amphetamine tablets were legally made in the United States. Regular users included truckers who needed to stay awake in order to drive long distances, and even housewives who wanted more energy so that they could accomplish everything they needed to get done. But probably the most widespread legal use of amphetamines in the U.S. has been in the treatment of attention deficit disorder and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADD and ADHD. The two most common drugs used in the treatment of these disorders are Adderall and Ritalin, both of which are psychostimulants. Adderall is just a low dose of amphetamine in pill form, and Ritalin is a closely related psychostimulant called methylphenidate, whose behavioral effects are almost indistinguishable from amphetamine. By 2014, roughly 3 million children in the U.S. were taking one of these medications to treat ADD or ADHD. Now, it might seem odd to prescribe a stimulant to a child who is already hyperactive, but because low doses of psychostimulants improve focus, these drugs have actually been found to help sufferers stay on task and get their work done. It's also important to note that when used as directed, these medications are quite safe. Taking a pill means that the stimulant reaches the brain slowly over a period of time at a relatively low dose, and it therefore doesn't produce the euphoric high associated with many drugs of abuse. And studies have found that when used as directed, the potential for addiction and abuse is actually quite low. Unfortunately, these drugs aren't always used as directed. 
For example, many college students use psychostimulants in an attempt to improve their academic performance, even if they don't have a diagnosis of ADD or ADHD. One recent survey at a Midwestern university found that 44% of those surveyed knew students who used stimulants without a prescription. The students said that they used the drugs in order to increase their alertness and energy so that they could meet the many time pressures associated with college life. Okay, let's turn to methamphetamine, which is perhaps the most dangerous of all the psychostimulant drugs. The methamphetamine molecule is just an amphetamine molecule with an additional methyl group consisting of a carbon atom and three hydrogen atoms. Now, that change may seem minor, but the additional methyl group makes methamphetamine much more likely to be abused. One reason is that the extra methyl group makes it easier for methamphetamine to get to the brain compared with standard amphetamine. You see, the brain is actually protected by a barrier of cells between the blood vessels supplying the brain and the brain itself. This blood-brain barrier prevents potentially harmful molecules in the blood from entering the brain. But the additional methyl group allows methamphetamine to cross that blood-brain barrier relatively easily. And as a result, more of it can reach the brain and it can produce a larger effect that lasts much longer. Another reason methamphetamine has become popular among recreational drug users is that it's relatively easy to make using widely available chemicals. For example, you remember the ephedra plant? The plant contains two active components, ephedrine and pseudoephedrine. These compounds are actually very effective decongestants, and they're used, they used to be widely available over-the-counter. In fact, Pseudoephedrine is the active ingredient in Sudafed. Well, ephedrine and pseudoephedrine can be used as chemical precursors in the manufacture of methamphetamine. As a result, methamphetamine cooks started buying large quantities of decongestants for use in their meth labs. If you watch the show Breaking Bad, you may remember the meth cook's elaborate efforts to obtain the precursors that they needed. In an attempt to slow down the illegal manufacture of methamphetamine, the U.S. Congress passed an act called the Combat Methamphetamine Epidemic Act of 2005. This act required that cold medicines containing pseudoephedrine be kept behind the counter. Anyone buying those medicines had to present a photo ID, and the amount that they could buy was limited and tracked. Drug companies have tried developing new decongestants that don't contain pseudoephedrine, but so far they don't seem to work as well. The most potent form of methamphetamine is crystal meth, which users often call glass or ice. Like crack cocaine, it's usually smoked and it produces a very intense high. But that high typically lasts much longer than the high from other stimulants. In fact, the effects of smoking crystal meth can last 12 hours or more. Users therefore see it as a very cost-effective drug because a small dose can go a long way. Now, let's turn to the effects of psychostimulants, both on behavior 
and on the brain. Well, as their name suggests, stimulant drugs stimulate the nervous system. And that stimulation has some positive effects. It reduces fatigue, it increases alertness, and it produces feelings of excitement and euphoria. Unfortunately, the negative consequences of these drugs can be disastrous. For example, in addition to its stimulating psychological effects, cocaine also constricts blood vessels, meaning less blood can reach critical organs, like the brain. And as a result, even young, healthy cocaine users sometimes experience strokes and associated brain damage. Cocaine also constricts the blood vessels to the heart, which substantially increases the risk of a heart attack. Some of you may remember the talented basketball player Len Bias. Bias played basketball for the University of Maryland from 1982 to 1986, and he was one of the most highly touted players in the nation. For example, he was the Atlantic Coast Conference Player of the Year in both his junior and senior years. It's kind of hard to imagine a healthier young man than Len Bias. Well, on June 17, 1986, Bias was selected second overall in the NBA draft by the Boston Celtics. Two days later, he was back in his dorm room with some friends, and at about three in the morning, they started using cocaine. A little over three hours later, Bias had a seizure, and he collapsed while talking with one of his teammates. He lost consciousness and stopped breathing. Paramedics were unable to resuscitate him, and they took him to the Leland Memorial Hospital in Riverdale, where he was pronounced dead of a cardiac arrhythmia related to cocaine use. And no other drugs or alcohol were found in his system. Well, in addition to posing a serious health risk, high doses of psychostimulants also sometimes lead to stereotypic behavior. Stereotypic behaviors are repetitive movements, such as body rocking, crossing and uncrossing the legs, or marching in place. For example, rats and mice, given high doses of psychostimulants, will sometimes sit in a corner of their cage and repeatedly perform the same action over and over, like specific head movements or sniffing and licking. Human users might also exhibit repetitive behaviors, although they're typically more sophisticated than the animal behaviors. So human meth addicts have been known to compulsively disassemble and reassemble small machines, repeatedly draw the same patterns, or sort objects into different categories over and over. This kind of behavior is sometimes referred to as punding or tweaking. Chronic stimulant use can also sometimes lead to psychosis including vivid hallucinations and delusions. One study found that roughly one in five methamphetamine addicts experienced clinical-level psychosis within the past year. The user might develop extreme paranoia and experience delusions of being followed or persecuted. Users also commonly claim that they feel imaginary insects burrowing under their skin and so they compulsively pick and scratch at themselves. And as a result, they often have scars and lesions all over their body. Meth addicts will also often develop what's sometimes called meth mouth, which is characterized by severe tooth decay and even loss of teeth. There's still debate about what causes meth mouth, 
but many dentists believe that a combination of factors plays a role. First, meth use leads to reduced salivation and dry mouth, which may contribute to bacterial growth. Second, the stimulating effects of meth lead to grinding of the teeth. And third, meth users often stop visiting the dentist and may even give up brushing their teeth entirely. Well, as you can imagine, this combination can lead to severe dental problems in a fairly short period of time. Now, let's turn to the brain. How do psychostimulants like cocaine and methamphetamine affect the brain? Well, all psychostimulants directly increase dopamine levels in the brain. Now, by this point in the course, I'm sure you remember the central role that the neurotransmitter dopamine plays in craving and in addiction. As we've seen, nicotine, alcohol, and marijuana all lead to the release of dopamine. But these other drugs do so indirectly. Nicotine binds to nicotinic acetylcholine receptors, which indirectly leads to dopamine release. Likewise, alcohol affects GABA and glutamate receptors, and marijuana binds to cannabinoid receptors. But psychostimulants increase dopamine levels directly, so perhaps it's no surprise that they're among the most abused drugs in the world. The way they work is also somewhat different from the other drugs we've discussed. Remember how neurons communicate using neurotransmitter molecules. When the presynaptic neuron fires, it releases neurotransmitter molecules into the synapse, and those molecules then bind to receptors on the postsynaptic neuron, like a key fitting into a lock. Well, one thing we haven't yet talked about is what happens to those neurotransmitter molecules after they've done their work. And one thing that happens is that they can be sucked back into the presynaptic cell by molecules called transporters. So you can think of these transporters like little vacuum cleaners. They suck up the neurotransmitter molecules back into the presynaptic neuron so that they can be used again when the neuron fires again. And this process is called reuptake because the neurotransmitter molecules are taken back up into the presynaptic neuron. Now, most of the drugs of abuse that we've talked about so far mimic the actions of neurotransmitters, and they bind to receptors. So they may activate those receptors if they're agonists, or they may block those receptors if they're antagonists. But psychostimulants work differently. Rather than binding to receptors, psychostimulants typically affect the cell's vacuum cleaners, the transporters. For example, cocaine blocks the dopamine transporters. It's what's sometimes called a dopamine reuptake inhibitor. It inhibits the reuptake of dopamine from the synapse. And the result is that dopamine stays in the synapse longer than it normally would. And so dopamine levels are abnormally high and dopamine receptor activity is increased. And it's this increase in dopamine that produces many of the behavioral effects that we've been talking about. Injecting dopamine directly into the brains of rats and mice leads to stimulation and increased movement, as well as stereotypic behaviors. Furthermore, when the dopamine neurons are destroyed using a toxic chemical, then psychostimulant drugs no longer have their normal stimulating effects. 
Cocaine also blocks the reuptake of two other neurotransmitters, norepinephrine and serotonin. So the levels of those neurotransmitters are also higher than normal when using cocaine. However, as we'll see a little later, it appears that it's the effect on dopamine that makes cocaine so addictive. Methamphetamine also affects the dopamine transporters, but instead of blocking the transporter like cocaine, meth actually causes the transporters to allow dopamine molecules to flow in the reverse direction, that is, from the presynaptic cell into the synapse. So rather than sucking the dopamine molecules from the synapse back into the presynaptic cell, methamphetamine causes the transporter to release dopamine molecules out of the presynaptic cell and into the synapse. So think of reversing the direction of flow of a vacuum cleaner. Rather than sucking the dopamine out of the synapse, the transporter molecules are now spraying dopamine back into the synapse. Well, as you can imagine, both mechanisms lead to much higher levels of dopamine than normal. In fact, some studies have found that cocaine can lead to double the normal amount of dopamine in the synapse. And methamphetamine can produce a tenfold increase in dopamine levels. Okay, let's turn to the issue of addiction. How addictive are psychostimulants? How do they change the brain to produce addiction? And what treatments are available to addicts? Well, I'm sure I don't need to tell you that cocaine and methamphetamine are among the most addictive drugs in the world, especially when they're smoked or injected. All animal species that have been tested will self-administer these drugs intravenously, and they'll do so compulsively. With a little training, monkeys will even smoke cocaine freebase compulsively. Human addicts often exhibit binging behavior with psychostimulants, especially crack cocaine and crystal meth. So after taking an initial dose, they experience an intense high and euphoria. But as soon as that high starts to wear off, they administer another dose to try to keep the high going and avoid coming down. They might repeat this cycle for days on end without eating or sleeping until they finally run out of the drug or crash from exhaustion. And like most other drugs of abuse that we've discussed, repeated use of psychostimulants leads to changes in the brain that make it harder and harder to resist the drug. We saw how the brain compensates for chronically high levels of dopamine by producing the chemical dynorphin, which then inhibits the dopamine neurons from firing. The result is tolerance. It takes more of the drug to produce the same effect. Well, repeated use of psychostimulants does indeed lead to tolerance. When rats are initially administered cocaine, they'll move around a lot. But if the administration continues, the rats will get used to the drug and they'll stop moving around so much. Human addicts also exhibit tolerance. In particular, the initial dose of the drug is often reported to produce a much stronger high than subsequent doses. And psychostimulants are thought to be addictive for the same reasons we've now seen a number of times. The drugs produce a large release of dopamine and they overstimulate the brain's reward circuit. And that dopamine produces craving and it signals a reward prediction error, 
which backs up to the cues associated with the drug taking. So things like drug paraphernalia or locations where drugs can be obtained or used. So with repeated use, many environmental cues become extremely strong triggers that can lead to irresistible cravings for the drug and an addiction is born. But how do we know that dopamine is playing a central role in addictions to cocaine and methamphetamine? Well, actually, a number of studies have now confirmed this hypothesis. For example, when dopamine neurons are destroyed, then animals will no longer self-administer the drugs. So apparently, the high levels of dopamine are crucial to the development of addiction. Furthermore, other drugs that block the reuptake of dopamine in the same way that cocaine does are also typically addictive. And these effects are specific to dopamine. For example, the antidepressant drug Prozac is also a reuptake inhibitor, but it inhibits the reuptake of serotonin, not dopamine. And serotonin reuptake inhibitors, like Prozac, are not self-administered by animals and humans don't get addicted to them. And the same goes for norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. Apparently, it's the high level of dopamine that psychostimulants produce that makes them so addictive. Now let's spend a few minutes talking about treatments for psychostimulant addictions. Currently, behavioral approaches are the treatment of choice. One approach is called contingency management, or motivational incentives. In these kinds of programs, addicts receive points, or chips, for each drug-free urine test. And they can then redeem these points for rewards, like movie tickets or dinner at a restaurant. This kind of approach has been found to be effective in achieving initial abstinence and in sticking with treatment. Another approach, called cognitive behavioral therapy, is helpful in preventing relapse. Essentially, addicts are taught to recognize risky situations that could trigger relapse and to avoid those situations as much as possible. For example, an addict who usually buys cocaine in a particular part of town might be taught to take different routes through town in order to avoid that area. They're also taught coping skills to help, help them deal with cravings when they arise. So therapists might ask addicts to prepare a list of activities that could distract them from their cravings. Physical activities like walking or riding a bike or playing basketball are often particularly effective distractions. Many addicts also find community-based recovery groups, like Cocaine Anonymous, to be helpful as a support system when trying to remain abstinent or to get back on the wagon after a relapse. Other addicts benefit from residential programs where they live in a community of recovering addicts for six months or more. Unfortunately, as we've now seen time and time again, relapse rates are quite high. For example, around 90% of methamphetamine addicts have been estimated to return to using after treatment. 90%! It's therefore particularly important for stimulant addicts to keep trying and to view relapses as learning opportunities in their journey to achieve complete abstinence eventually. There are currently no pharmacological treatments that are, uh, that are approved to treat psychostimulant addiction, 
However, scientists have been working on vaccines that could potentially help addicts avoid relapse. The idea is to train the body's own immune system to recognize and attack cocaine and methamphetamine before they reach the brain. So even if an addict who's in recovery falls off the wagon, much less of the drug would reach the brain and they wouldn't experience the normal high. Well, that concludes our tour through the world of psychostimulants. Next time, we'll dive into another class of drugs that are also very addictive, but that are nevertheless very effective painkillers and are widely used in medicine. These are the opioid drugs, and they include familiar medicines like codeine, as well as dangerous drugs of abuse like heroin. See you then. Lecture 10, The Science of Poppies, Pleasure, and Pain. In 2007, Professor David Nutt at the University of Bristol and a number of his colleagues surveyed addiction experts in a variety of fields, and he asked them to rate various drugs in terms of their potential for physical harm to the user, their potential for dependence and addiction, and their potential for social harm. Can you guess what was number one on the list? It was the opioid drug, heroin. Welcome to our lecture on opioids, a fascinating class of drugs that includes the most effective painkillers available, as well as some of the most dangerous drugs of abuse. Now, if you think about it, many of our recent lectures have been stories about plants and plant derivatives. We've talked about coffee, and caffeine, about tobacco and nicotine, and about cannabis and marijuana. Last time we talked about the coca plant and the ephedra plant and the stimulant drugs that are derived from them. Well, this lecture tells the story of the poppy plant. In addition to producing beautiful flowers and edible seeds, the poppy plant is also the source of opium and the many drugs derived from opium. Among these drugs, we'll find medicines such as codeine and morphine, which have revolutionized the treatment of pain. On the other hand, we'll also learn about heroin, which is often considered to be the most harmful drug of abuse today. So what is opium? Well, it's actually a kind of dried latex. Latex is a milky fluid that is secreted by some plants when they're damaged as a defense mechanism against insects trying to eat them. Opium is the latex secreted from the seed pod of an opium poppy. Raw opium contains about 10% morphine and about 2% codeine. These are the opiate drugs which just means that they're natural products of the opium poppy. A number of other drugs, including heroin, are not contained in opium itself, but are made from natural opiates, or they have very similar effects. And these are sometimes called opioids. Now, as you may know, the opiate drug morphine is among the most effective painkillers available today. Codeine has similar effects, but is weaker than morphine.
It's often used to treat minor pain and as a cough suppressant. Of course, opium and drugs derived from opium are also often used recreationally because they can produce a dreamlike euphoric state. And people have known about those effects for a very long time. For example, there's evidence that the Sumerians knew about the psychoactive properties of the opium poppy as early as 3400 BC. In fact, they referred to it as hull gill, which means joy plant or plant of happiness. The ancient Egyptians actually used opium medicinally. We see evidence of this in the Hebert's Papyrus, which was written around 1500 BC and describes ancient Egyptian medical treatments. This 3,500-year-old papyrus suggests using the pods of the poppy plant as a remedy to stop a child from crying. The Greek poet Homer may also have been aware of opium's properties. In Book 4 of the Odyssey, Helen of Troy mixes wine with a drug that many scholars think was opium. It was described as banishing all care, sorrow, and ill humor. And it was said that whoever drinks wine thus drugged cannot shed a single tear all the rest of that day. In the 17 and 1800s, a mixture of alcohol and opium called laudanum became very popular, and it was widely used as a pain reliever, as a sleep aid, and to treat a variety of ailments. And its widespread use eventually became a problem as more and more people became addicted. For example, the British poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge was one such addict. In fact, Coleridge claimed that his famous poem, Kubla Khan, came to him in an opium-induced dream. The English writer Thomas de Quincey was another addict. He even wrote an autobiographical account of his experience called Confessions of an English Opium Eater that became quite popular. In the mid-1800s, opium trade became big business and even led to two wars. You see, the British East India Company was making quite a bit of money selling opium to China and a large number of Chinese became addicted. And China therefore tried to stop the import of opium, and it confiscated huge quantities from the British traders. Well, the British responded by sending troops to China, and the two wars that followed have come to be known as the Opium Wars. The British were victorious in both, and so the opium trade to China continued. In fact, by the end of the 1800s, China consumed more than 90% of the world's opium, and more than 25% of the male population of China was opium-dependent. In 1804, a German pharmacist isolated a pure alkaloid from opium, and he gave it the name morphine, after Morpheus, the Greek god of dreams. Now, morphine was more potent than opium or laudanum, and it became an invaluable tool to doctors in the treatment of pain. In fact, to this day, morphine is still considered a gold standard for pain relief. 
Now, morphine was a real godsend to injured soldiers during the American Civil War, and it was administered liberally, both with the newly invented hypodermic syringe and in pills. In fact, some historians believe that the excessive use of morphine led to addiction in hundreds of thousands of Civil War veterans, a condition referred to as soldier's disease. In 1898, Bayer Pharmaceutical Company began selling a synthesized opioid that was one and a half to two times more powerful than morphine. And it was marketed as a non-addictive morphine substitute and cough suppressant. You know what this powerful new morphine substitute was? Heroin. The name is actually derived from a German word meaning heroic or strong, referring to heroin's potent pain-killing and cough-suppressing effects. And Bayer actually sold heroin for more than 10 years before its harmful effects were recognized and it was removed from the market. In fact, it turns out that heroin is actually metabolized into morphine in the body, so it certainly isn't much of a morphine substitute. And of course, heroin is now recognized to be among the most addictive drugs in the world. Today, a wide variety of opioid medications are available as prescription painkillers. You probably know many of them. Vicodin, Percocet, Fentanyl, Methadone, and Oxycontin are all examples of opioids that are used to relieve chronic pain. And they're prescribed a lot. In fact, in 2010, enough painkiller prescriptions were written to medicate every American adult for an entire month. And although these medications are extremely effective, they're also potentially addictive. And a large number of people who begin using them for pain relief eventually get hooked. Now let's turn to the effects of opioids on behavior and on the brain. Opioids are what are called narcotic analgesics. Narcotic analgesics reduce pain without eliminating sensation. So they're distinguished from anesthetics, which reduce all sensation and often produce unconsciousness. Opioids also produce a dreamlike euphoric state, which is what makes them attractive to recreational drug users, at least initially. At low doses, pain relief is one of the main behavioral effects of opioids. And the fact that they block pain without eliminating sensation makes them the drugs of choice in the treatment of pain. Opioids are also very effective at reducing the cough reflex, which is why they're widely used as cough suppressants. Now, some of the less pleasant effects include nausea and constipation. In fact, Constipation is one of the biggest problems in the long-term use of opioids to treat chronic pain. On the other hand, this means that opioids can also be used as a treatment for diarrhea. And although most op opioids can cross the blood-brain barrier and produce effects on the central nervous system, there are others that can't. And that means you can use them to treat diarrhea without producing psychological effects or risking addiction. 
For example, you've probably heard of the over-the-counter diarrhea medicine, Imodium AD. Well, it's actually an opiate drug that doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. At higher doses, opioids produce a rush of euphoria, but the nauseating effects can become more severe, and some people also experience anxiety and restlessness. But the most dangerous effect is a significant suppression of breathing. In fact, in an opioid overdose, breathing can be suppressed enough to lead to death. So opioids produce a number of pleasant behavioral effects like analgesia and euphoria, as well as some unpleasant behavioral effects like nausea, constipation, and suppressed breathing. But how? How do they produce these effects? Specifically, what is going on in the brain and the body that makes opioids so powerful? Well, like almost all the other drugs of abuse that we've discussed, opioids work by binding to receptors. There are actually a number of different types of opioid receptors, but it's the mu opioid receptors that seem to be the most important in producing the behavioral effects that we've just discussed. Mu opioid receptors have high affinity for morphine and related drugs, meaning that these drugs bind very strongly and take longer to dissociate. And as a result, the drugs can be quite potent. And if you look at the distribution of mu opioid receptors in the body, they're found in the places that you might expect based on the behavioral effects that opioids produce. For example, you find high concentrations of mu opioid receptors in parts of the nervous system that process pain, which makes sense given that opioids are effective painkillers. There are also high concentrations in the brain's reward circuit, especially the nucleus accumbens, and that presumably explains why many opioids produce a euphoric high. But receptors aren't restricted to the brain or even to the central nervous system. There are actually a lot of mu opioid receptors in the gastrointestinal tract, which may be the reason that opioids often produce constipation. Now, do you remember when we were talking about marijuana and we pointed out that scientists found the receptors for the drug before they found the natural brain chemicals that bind to those receptors? Now, in the case of marijuana, scientists looked for and eventually found the so-called endogenous cannabinoids, like anandamide. Well, the same is true in the case of opioids and opioid receptors. Here again, scientists found the opioid receptors before they found any of the endogenous brain chemicals that bind to those receptors. Of course, it's unlikely that our bodies would be designed with receptors for compounds that come from the poppy plant. And so scientists went and looked for endogenous chemicals that bind to opioid receptors. And they found them. In fact, they found three major types of endogenous opioids. The dynorphins, the enkephalins, and the endorphins. Do you remember dynorphins? We actually encountered them before when we talked about the neural mechanisms of tolerance. You may recall that chronic drug use leads to the release of dynorphins in order to inhibit VTA neurons. 
and prevent them from exciting the nucleus accumbens. And that contributes to tolerance to the pleasurable effects of drugs. Well, the encephalins and the endorphins are both natural painkillers, but they're active in different parts of the body. When you're injured or in pain, your body releases these chemicals and they help block the pain. Endorphins are morphine-like substances, but they originate in the brain itself. In fact, the name endorphin actually means endogenous morphine. Endorphins are pretty interesting. In addition to being released during pain, they're also released during stress. They're even released during strenuous exercise, and even when you're eating spicy food. And when they're released, they activate the mu opioid receptors, just like morphine does. And they therefore relieve pain, and they produce a pleasurable high, basically the same symptoms as morphine. Now, you've likely heard of this phenomenon in reference to runner's high. Long-distance runners often report getting a second wind and feeling a sense of euphoria when their endurance begins to wane. Well, many people assume that this high reflects the release of endorphins in the brain. This was actually difficult to test, but in 2008, some solid scientific evidence was discovered that actually supported this theory. Dr. Henning Booker and colleagues at the Technical University in Munich used a technique called positron emission tomography, or PET, to measure the activation of opioid receptors before and after strenuous exercise. Dr. Becker and his colleagues compared the levels of endogenous opioids in the brain before and after 10 long-distance runners took a two-hour run. And they reported two interesting findings. First, opioid levels increased significantly after the run compared with before the run. And second, participants with higher opioid levels reported more of a runner's high than those with lower levels. So these results provide some of the best evidence that runner's high may indeed be due, at least in part, to the release of endogenous opioids, like endorphins. But how do opioids work? Specifically, what happens when opioid receptors are activated? And how does that produce the effects that we've been describing? Well, it turns out that opioids typically work by inhibiting neural transmission, particularly the neural transmission of pain. You see, the nervous system actually contains a set of specialized receptors and fibers for the sensation and transmission of pain signals to the brain. And scientists have discovered that opioids can inhibit the transmission of pain in at least two ways. First, opioids can inhibit pain transmission in the spinal cord, even before the signals reach the brain. Opioid neurons have been discovered in the spinal cord itself. And when these neurons are active, they're thought to close a gate and prevent pain signals from getting past the spinal cord up to the brain. So one way opioid drugs can relieve pain 
is by binding to opioid receptors on pain neurons in the spinal cord and stopping the signal. There are also descending pathways from the brain down to the spinal cord that can also inhibit pain signals. Have you ever wondered why soldiers often report not feeling much pain when they're injured in the heat of battle? Even injured athletes will often say that they didn't feel the pain until after the game. Well, one explanation for such phenomena is that the brain itself is sending pain-relieving signals down to the spinal cord. And one brain area that's thought to do this is the periaqueductal gray, or PAG for short. The PAG contains a very high concentration of opioid receptors, and stimulating it produces top-down signals to the spinal cord that also close the pain gateway. So, a second way that opioid drugs can relieve pain is by activating the PAG. Opioids also appear to play a role in what's sometimes called the placebo effect. Now, as you may know, inert pills that actually don't have any direct benefit can sometimes relieve patients' pain, as long as the patient believes that the pills will help them. Now, People often think that this kind of placebo effect is purely psychological. That is, the patients can't really feel better. They must just be deceiving themselves. But it turns out there's actually evidence that placebos lead to the release of endogenous opioids, like endorphins, and that those opioids then produce genuine pain relief in the patient. If a placebo effect was purely psychological, then administering an opioid antagonist drug that blocks the action of opioids shouldn't make a difference. But it does. Many patients who normally experience pain relief from a placebo pill no longer do when they're taking an opioid antagonist. So clearly, opioids are playing a crucial role in the placebo's effect. What about the euphoric high associated with opioid use? This effect appears to depend on opioid activity in the brain's reward circuit. As we mentioned, there are high concentrations of mu opioid receptors in the reward circuit. And research by my colleague Kent Barrage at the University of Michigan has found that micro-injections of opioids into these parts of the brain lead to increased pleasure in rats. Now, you might well ask, how can you tell whether a rat is experiencing pleasure or not? But it turns out that rats will repeatedly stick out their tongue when they taste something they like, as if they're licking their chops. So, Dr. Barrage and his colleagues put small doses of sugar water into the rat's mouths. They injected morphine into the reward circuit of some of them and then they counted how many times they stuck out their tongue. And what he found was very interesting. All the rats repeatedly stuck out their tongue when given sugar water, indicating that they liked the taste. But the rats who had opioids injected into their reward circuit actually stuck out their tongues even more than the other rats. So apparently activating the opioid receptors in the reward circuit led to increased pleasure which may be part of the reason why opioids produce a feeling of euphoria. 
Now let's turn to the issues of abuse, addiction, and treatment. It's interesting to note that although opioids like heroin have the potential to be extremely harmful, opioids themselves don't typically lead to significant physical damage to the body or its organs. The real problem with opioids is with the addictive behaviors that they inspire. In particular, opioid addicts often neglect their normal responsibilities as their entire existence becomes consumed by the drug. They typically don't eat a nutritious diet. They might also use unsanitary needles, which can lead to diseases such as AIDS. And of course, there's the very real possibility of overdose, which could be fatal due to the suppression of breathing. So, how many people suffer from opioid abuse? Well, in a 2006 survey, over 5 million people in the United States reported using an opioid illegally within the past month. And a recent study found that there were over 92,000 emergency room visits related to opioid overdose in a single year. The majority of those people weren't using heroin. Rather, they were using a prescription opioid painkiller like Vicodin, Oxycontin, or Percocet. In fact, about 45 people in the U.S. die every day from overdosing on a prescription painkiller. That's more than the number of overdose deaths from heroin and cocaine combined. So, what's going on in the brain that might lead to addiction to opioids? Well, it's actually a lot like other drugs. Opioids overstimulate the brain's reward circuit and they trigger a large release of dopamine. The brain interprets that dopamine as a reward prediction error, or an indication that taking the drug was even better than expected. And that reward prediction error, in turn, backs up to environmental cues that are associated with drug taking. So when the user encounters those cues in the future, they experience a very strong craving to use the drug. Sound familiar? Well, how do we know that the same mechanisms underlie addiction to opium? Well, remember the ventral tegmental area, or VTA? This is the part of the reward circuit that contains dopamine neurons. And scientists have found that injecting opioids into the VTA does indeed lead to increased dopamine cell firing and a release of dopamine into the nucleus accumbens. They do so by inhibiting the neurons that inhibit the VTA. In other words, opioids disinhibit the VTA, which makes those neurons fire more and leads to dopamine release. You may recall that we saw this same kind of disinhibition mechanism at work with alcohol. Well, furthermore, scientists have found that applying a dopamine receptor antagonist, which blocks the effect of dopamine, also blocks the reinforcing effects of opioids. So animals taking these dopamine receptor antagonists don't develop addictions to opioids like other animals do. So that demonstrates that dopamine is once again playing a central role. Now let's turn to the issue of treatment for opioid abuse and addiction. 
It turns out that there are some very effective treatments for opioid overdose. Specifically, a number of opioid receptor antagonist drugs have been developed that have a high affinity for opioid receptors, but that don't actually activate them. And these drugs can therefore block opioids from binding to the receptors. So suppose a drug user comes in with an opioid overdose and they're barely breathing and they're close to death. Well, you can administer one of these opioid antagonist drugs like naloxone and they'll recover almost immediately because you're blocking the opioid from binding to the opioid receptors. Now, of course, that's just treating the overdose. What about the addiction? What can be done to help opioid addicts quit the habit? Well, detoxification is the first step. But detox can be a real challenge for opioid addicts because users experience very unpleasant withdrawal symptoms when they stop taking the drug. The symptoms are the mirror opposite of the effects produced by the drug itself. So instead of euphoria, Withdrawal is characterized by depression. Instead of pain relief, withdrawal leads to aches and pains. And instead of constipation, withdrawal produces diarrhea. And these symptoms of these kinds of unpleasant symptoms make quitting very challenging. So, a common approach to treating opioid addiction is to administer a slower, longer-acting opioid like methadone instead. In fact, methadone maintenance is the single most common treatment for heroin addiction, and it has met with some significant success. For example, one study found that 80% of people who stick with a methadone maintenance program for a full year end up staying abstinent for one to three years afterwards. Now, in contrast, only 12% of people who drop out of methadone maintenance remain abstinent for that long. And another study found that 40% of former heroin addicts were still abstinent six years after completing methadone maintenance treatment. Other opioids are also regularly used in the treatment of heroin addiction. Believe it or not, heroin itself is used in the treatment of heroin addiction in a number of countries. The idea is to give users a lower but stable prescription dose of heroin without all the risks associated with obtaining and using heroin on the street. And not surprisingly, heroin addicts are more likely to stick with a heroin maintenance program compared with a methadone maintenance program. And perhaps as a result, they're less likely to use illegal drugs. And measures of health and employment are also often better than an addict's getting methadone. Of course, using opioid drugs like methadone to treat heroin addicts is controversial. I mean, after all, you're simply substituting one addiction for another. Another problem is that the addicts have to go to a clinic every day or two in order to receive their treatment. And as you can imagine, the people living near those clinics don't particularly like the large traffic of heroin addicts who are coming to the neighborhood every day. Another common approach to treating opioid addiction is to try to remove any reward associated with relapse. Sometimes 
Addicts who have managed to quit will take an opioid antagonist, like naltrexone, which blocks the rewarding effects of any opioids that they do take. So the idea is that if they ever get a strong craving and they end up using their opioid drug, they won't experience their normal high because of the antagonist that's in their system. And this can work well for somebody who's really motivated to quit. But the problem is people who experience very strong cravings may just stop taking the antagonist drug so that they can get the high again. In most cases, these kinds of pharmacological treatments are most effective if they're combined with some sort of behavioral treatment. It's very helpful for opioid addicts to get some kind of cognitive behavioral therapy in which they're trained to recognize and avoid the triggers that they associate with drug use. And they're also taught coping skills to help them deal with the cravings when they do arise. Many addicts try to do something physical to distract them when they get cravings, like go for a walk or play basketball. And furthermore, 12-step programs like Narcotics Anonymous can be helpful for a number of people. But as we've seen before, breaking a drug addiction is tough. And breaking an addiction to an opioid is among the toughest challenges that anyone will ever face. But as with all addictions, it's important to keep in mind that one relapse doesn't mean failure. It simply represents an opportunity for the addict to learn from the experience and hopefully be successful the next time. Well, in our next lecture, we'll begin to explore a question that's becoming very important in addiction research. Can someone get addicted to a behavior just like they get addicted to a drug? In particular, we'll discuss compulsive gambling. Is it an actual addiction? And does it involve some of the same neural mechanisms as drug addiction? Those are the kinds of questions that we'll address next time. Lecture 11, The Gambler's Brain. Let's begin today's lecture with a true story about a woman I'll call Samantha. Samantha was a lawyer in Western Canada, and in 1994, she played a nickel slot machine for the first time during a visit to Reno, Nevada, and she won $25. She found the experience exhilarating, and when she got back to Canada, she started visiting nearby casinos. Pretty soon, she was a regular, and she would often play until she couldn't get any more money out of the ATM, often losing two or $3,000 during a single visit. It got to the point that she used almost all of her earnings to support her gambling habit. And sometimes she would wait at the bank machine around midnight when her paycheck would become accessible, immediately withdraw it, and head to the casino. She started borrowing money from friends, and she'd lie about where she was going and what she was doing. Once, when she was house-sitting for her best friend's parents, she cashed about $4,000 worth of checks that they had left behind to pay the household bills, and she lost it all gambling. Driving back from the casino, she said she thought about driving into the oncoming traffic and ending it all. Well, in many ways, Samantha's experience sounds a lot like the experience of a serious drug addict. 
What started as a pleasurable diversion eventually took over her life. She also developed strong cravings that became almost irresistible. And she kept gambling despite very significant negative consequences that she was suffering. Well, in this lecture, we'll discuss scientific evidence of similarities in the behavior, the brain, and even the genes of compulsive gamblers and drug addicts. As we'll see, scientists are starting to see problem gambling as another type of addiction. But in this case, it's an addiction to a behavior rather than a drug. Gambling is sometimes defined as putting something of value at risk in the hopes of getting something of greater value. Now, obviously, the something of value is usually money, and people spend a lot of it when they're gambling. For example, according to the American Gaming Association statistics, commercial casinos in America earn over $35 billion every year. Likewise, revenue in gaming facilities on Indian reservations exceeds $25 billion every year. And those numbers don't even include internet gambling, which is the fastest growing part of the industry. Now, about 85% of U.S. adults have gambled occasionally in their lives, and the vast majority don't experience any significant problems. However, Samantha's story is unfortunately not that unusual. In fact, it's estimated that 4 to 6 million people in the U.S. experience problems as a result of their gambling and about 2 million meet the criteria for pathological gambling, or gambling disorder, which the American Psychiatric Association characterizes as persistent and recurrent gambling behavior leading to clinically significant impairment or distress. Now, for a long time, psychiatrists considered pathological gambling to be primarily a problem with impulse control rather than an addiction. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM, which is sometimes called the Bible of Psychiatry, used to classify pathological gambling with kleptomania and pyromania, rather than with substance abuse and addiction. But that changed in the fifth edition of the DSM, which was published in 2013. Now, gambling disorder is classified as a behavioral addiction based on studies demonstrating that pathological gambling and drug addiction share a number of similarities, ranging from similar behavioral symptoms to similar neural substrates and even similar genetic profiles. Let's begin by talking about some of the behavioral similarities. The DSM provides lists of symptoms that psychiatrists have identified as robust behavioral features that should be considered when diagnosing a disorder. And if you look at this list of behavioral symptoms associated with drug addiction and with gambling disorder, you'll find that the lists are remarkably similar. For example, one of the behavioral symptoms associated with drug addiction is recurrent substance use resulting in a failure to fulfill major role obligations at work, school, or home. Well, likewise, one of the behavioral criteria for diagnosing gambling disorder is whether the person 
has jeopardized or lost a significant relationship, job, or educational or career opportunity because of gambling. Those sound pretty similar, don't you think? Another behavioral symptom of drug addiction is persistent desire or unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control substance use. That sounds a lot like another one of the symptoms associated with gambling disorder, which reads, has made repeated unsuccessful efforts to control, cut back, or stop gambling. So, both drug addiction and pathological gambling are characterized by persistence in the behavior despite negative consequences and an inability to stop. But what about the classic symptoms of tolerance and withdrawal? Do compulsive gamblers experience those symptoms too? I mean, it might seem odd to think that they would, given that their problem is behavioral, and they're not actually putting any kind of drug in their system. But the evidence suggests that they do. For example, Dr. Mark Griffiths measured the heart rate of 30 young men at the University of Plymouth while they played slot machines, or fruit machines as they're called in England. Half the men were regular gamblers and the other half were not. Well, Griffiths found that everyone's heart rate increased when they started playing the game, suggesting that they were experiencing a rush of excitement. But after they stopped playing, there was a significant difference between the groups. The heart rate of the gamblers quickly dropped back down, while the heart rate of the non-gamblers stayed high. And Griffiths suggested that the rush associated with gambling wore off more quickly in these experienced gamblers, reflecting tolerance to the rewarding aspects of the behavior. Consistent with this interpretation, chronic gamblers often need to gamble larger amounts of money to feel the same rush of excitement, much like drug addicts need more of the drug to feel high. Many chronic gamblers also appear to experience withdrawal when they stop gambling. Richard Rosenthal at the UCL, UCLA Gambling Studies Program, along with Henry, Henry Lesseur, asked 222 pathological gamblers about symptoms that they experienced when they tried to slow down or stop gambling. 91% said that they experienced cravings, and 87% felt restless and irritable. Two-thirds even reported physical symptoms, such as headaches, insomnia, sweating, and shaking. As you can see, there are a number of striking similarities in the behavioral symptoms of drug addiction and pathological gambling. Now, let's turn to the brain and compare the neural mechanisms underlying pathological gambling with those underlying drug addiction. Do you remember some of the major brain changes in drug addiction that we've discussed? First, remember, chronic drug use tends to lead to a numbing of response in the brain's pleasure center, the nucleus accumbens. Second, remember, drugs of abuse trigger a large release of dopamine into the reward circuit. And over time, that can lead to strong associations between drug-related cues and drug taking, which results in strong craving. And third, chronic drug use is associated with reduced self-control as a result of weakened inhibitory input from the prefrontal cortex. Now, let's consider whether chronic gambling produces similar brain changes. First, 
does it lead to numbing of the brain's reward response? Jan Reuter, Christian Buchel, and their colleagues at the University of Hamburg examined this question using a technique called functional magnetic resonance imaging, or just fMRI for short. Now, you're probably familiar with conventional MRI. It works by detecting differences in the magnetic properties of different tissues. So muscle has different magnetic properties than bone, which has different magnetic properties than skin, and so on. And MRI detects those differences to create an image of different structures in the body. Well, it turns out that blood that is carrying oxygen has different magnetic properties than blood that is not carrying oxygen. And so, with a few tweaks, an MRI scanner can be used to detect where the oxygen is being sent. And because our vascular system sends oxygenated blood to parts of the brain that are active, we can estimate neural activity. And that's what functional MRI does. The Hamburg group used this technique to estimate neural activity in pathological gamblers and in control subjects while they performed a very simple gambling task. Specifically, people had to repeatedly choose one of two face-down cards while they were in the MRI scanner. One of the two cards was a red suit, and if they guessed which one it was, they won money. If they guessed the wrong card, then they lost money. Well, unbeknownst to them, the game was actually rigged so that everyone experienced the same sequence of wins and losses. So, what was happening in the brain? Well, as you might expect, the brain's pleasure center, the nucleus accumbens, was more active after wins than it was after losses. And this was true in both pathological gamblers and non-gamblers. However, the size of the effect was different. Specifically, the reward response was significantly smaller in the gamblers than it was in the controls. So here's some direct evidence that the reward response is indeed numbed in pathological gamblers, just like it is in drug addicts. But there's more. The authors also asked all of the gamblers to fill out a questionnaire to assess the severity of their gambling problem. How often do you gamble? How much do you gamble? How long have you been gambling? And they found that the most severe gamblers also had the most numbed reward response. The take-home message is that chronic gambling is indeed associated with reduced activation of the nucleus accumbens and a numbed reward response, just like drug addiction. Furthermore, as the reward response gets more and more numb, the gambling problem gets worse, perhaps because the gamblers need to gamble more to feel the same level of excitement and reward. Okay, the second brain change that we talked about with drug addiction was the large dopamine burst in response to drug-related cues and an associated craving whenever those cues were encountered. Well, is there any evidence for a similar brain change in chronic gambling? Anna Gudrian and colleagues at the University of Amsterdam investigated this question in an experiment in 2010. They also used functional MRI to estimate neural activity in pathological gamblers and control subjects while they viewed different kinds of pictures. 
Some of the pictures were gambling-related cues, like pictures of slot machines or of gamblers at a blackjack table in a casino. Other pictures were neutral, and they weren't related to gambling. Then they compared the brain activity in the gamblers and the non-gamblers when they saw these different categories of pictures. Can you guess what they found? The pathological gamblers had significantly stronger neural responses to the gambling-related cues compared with the control subjects. They also found that gamblers who were craving the most exhibited the strongest neural response to the gambling cues. In short, they found neural evidence that the gamblers were sensitized to the gambling-related cues. Furthermore, that increased sensitivity was associated with craving. Well, that's exactly what's assumed to be happening in drug addiction, too. Now, one thing this study doesn't tell us is whether dopamine is involved. Functional MRI really only tells you about neural activity, so it's actually impossible to know whether dopamine was actually being released when the gambling-related cues were presented. There is some evidence for this hypothesis, but it comes from a different group of subjects, namely people suffering from Parkinson's disease. Now, you might be asking, how can Parkinson's disease tell us anything about pathological gambling? Well, as you may know, Parkinson's disease is characterized by the death of neurons that release dopamine, leading to lower-than-normal levels and associated movement problems. And a central goal in treatment is therefore to increase dopamine levels. So why not just give dopamine itself? Well, remember the blood-brain barrier that protects the brain from potentially harmful molecules in blood? Dopamine can't cross that barrier. But certain dopamine agonist drugs can, and they're sometimes used as a treatment. So these drugs bind to dopamine receptors whether the presynaptic neurons are active or not. And so they actually produce abnormally high levels of receptor activity. Okay, suppose you're taking one of these dopamine agonist drugs. And so your dopamine receptors are more active than normal. And suppose you happen to go gambling. What do you think would happen? Well, if increased levels of dopamine activity trigger stronger-than-normal associations between cues and the act of gambling, then patients taking dopamine agonists might develop unusually strong associations. And so when they encounter those cues in the future, they might experience strong cravings to gamble and therefore be sus particularly susceptible to pathological gambling it turns out that they are. In fact, patients taking dopamine agonists are roughly three times more likely to become pathological gamblers than people who aren't taking these drugs. So it looks like dopamine really is playing a role in the development of gambling addiction. A recent positron emission tomography, or PET, study also supports this hypothesis. PET can be used to estimate neurotransmitter levels by measuring how many receptors are already occupied by a neurotransmitter versus how many are available to bind to a radioactive tracer. Well, using this technique, Thomas Steves and his colleagues at Toronto Western Hospital 
Compare dopamine levels in Parkinson's patients who were pathological gamblers versus Parkinson's patients who were not. Sure enough, they found that the gamblers exhibit significantly greater dopamine activity when viewing gambling-related cues compared with the non-gamblers. So such a dopamine burst would presumably lead to strong cravings in the gamblers whenever they encounter those cues. Okay, let's turn to the third brain change associated with drug addiction, namely reduced inhibitory control from prefrontal cortex. Do pathological gamblers also exhibit reduced prefrontal activity? and an associated deficit in the ability to inhibit inappropriate behavior. The evidence suggests that they do. One task that's commonly used to assess prefrontal function is called the Iowa Gambling Task, so named because it was developed by researchers at the University of Iowa, including Antoine Bachara and Antonio Damasio. The Iowa Gambling Task involves repeatedly selecting cards from any of four decks. When you turn a card over, it could reveal that you won money or that you lost money, and the goal is to win as much money as possible. Well, two of the decks are disadvantageous decks, or bad decks. Although they produce bigger wins initially, they have bigger losses down the road, and so people need to learn to avoid those decks. The other two decks are advantageous decks, or good decks. Although they produce smaller wins initially, the losses are smaller too, and so you're better off sticking with the good decks. Now, most people eventually figure this out. After sampling the different decks, they might initially start drawing from the bad decks because of the higher wins. But after they get burned a few times, they switch to the good decks, and they avoid picking from those bad decks. In fact, they even begin to exhibit an unconscious stress response when they're thinking about the bad decks. But many patients with damage to prefrontal cortex don't behave this way. They don't exhibit the same unconscious stress response when considering the bad decks. And they often keep picking from those bad decks even after getting burned repeatedly. It's as if they can't inhibit the urge to go for that bigger win, even if they know the potential negative consequences. Well, that's exactly the kind of self-control that prefrontal cortex makes possible. And it's also exactly the kind of self-control that drug addicts have a hard time with. It turns out that pathological gamblers also have a hard time resisting the urge to choose from the bad decks, even though they know that they might get burned so they end up losing money overall. In short, the gamblers behave a lot like patients with damage to prefrontal cortex. Mark Potenza and colleagues at the Yale University School of Medicine have actually found direct evidence for reduced prefrontal activity in pathological gamblers. They used functional MRI to estimate neural activity while pathological gamblers and control subjects exerted self-control. So subjects had to name the ink color that a color word was printed in while ignoring the word itself. So if they saw the word blue printed in red ink, they had to resist the tendency to say blue and respond red instead. 
Now, of course, reading is a very automated task. And so inhibiting the tendency to read the words requires self-control. And previous studies have found that the task activates the prefrontal cortex. The Yale group found that activation of prefrontal cortex was significantly reduced in the pathological gamblers compared with non-gamblers. And they interpreted this result as evidence for an impairment in prefrontal inhibitory control. And that's just the kind of impairment that's present in drug addicts. So in short, all three of the major brain changes that we talked about in drug addiction also appear to be present in pathological gambling. The reward response in the nucleus accumbens is numbed. Dopamine gets released in response to gambling-related cues, producing strong craving. And inhibitory self-control from the prefrontal cortex is diminished. Now, let's turn to genetics. We talked about the genetics of addiction earlier in the course, and we pointed out that drug addiction and the traits associated with drug addiction are all significantly heritable. Well, it turns out the same is true of pathological gambling. Recall that the heritability of a trait is typically estimated by comparing the similarity of that trait in identical twins with the similarity in fraternal twins. For example, if all identical twins share a trait, but not all fraternal twins do, then that trait is 100% heritable. And conversely, if that trait isn't any more similar in identical twins than it is in fraternal twins, then that trait isn't heritable at all. Dr. Seth Eisen at the Washington University School of Medicine and his colleagues used this approach to estimate the heritability of pathological gambling. So they examined symptoms of pathological gambling in about 1,900 identical twin pairs and about 1,500 fraternal twin pairs. And they found that identical twins were much more likely to be similar in terms of pathological gambling than were the fraternal twins. And in fact, they estimated pathological gambling to be 62% heritable, meaning that more than half of the variation in gambling diagnosis was based on genetics rather than environment. The bottom line is that both drug addiction and pathological gambling are heritable. But are any of the same genes involved? The answer again appears to be yes. Some of the evidence comes from investigating the so-called comorbidity or co-occurrence of pathological gambling with drug addiction. So, do pathological gambling and drug addiction tend to co-occur in the same people? If so, it suggests that some of the same genetic factors are at work. And it turns out the pathological gambling and drug addiction do co-occur surprisingly often. This comorbidity is particularly high for gambling and alcoholism. In a number of studies, 45 to 63% of pathological gamblers also have a history of alcohol abuse or dependence. In contrast, only 15% of the general population have such a history. Dr. Wendy Slutsky at the University of Missouri, along with a number of colleagues, analyzed the data from thousands of twins to assess this relationship between pathological gambling and alcoholism. And they concluded that there must be at least one shared genetic factor 
that increases susceptibility for both pathological gambling and alcoholism. Now, what might that genetic factor be? Well, there's a lot more that scientists don't yet know about that question than they do know. But there are a few candidate genes that have been discovered. And perhaps the most promising is one of the dopamine receptor genes. Now, you may remember from our lecture on genetics that genes code for specific proteins and that different versions of the same gene lead to different versions of those proteins. Well, a variation in the gene that codes for one type of dopamine receptor has been found to be associated with pathological gambling, as well as many types of drug addiction. This gene is typically called the DRD2 gene, which just means that it codes for the D2 type of dopamine receptor. So why would one form of this gene increase risk for addiction? Well, it turns out that the risky form is associated with what's sometimes called a reward deficiency syndrome. The idea is that people who have this genetic variant need more stimulation to experience the same level of reward and satisfaction as people who don't have it. It's as if their reward system has been numb from birth. And just like chronic drug users take higher doses of drugs in order to stimulate their numbed reward center, people with this genetic variant might be particularly drawn to drugs because drugs are one of the only things that can stimulate their numbed reward circuit. So these people are more susceptible to addiction than other people. Consistent with this theory, people with this genetic variant are more likely to get addicted to cigarettes, to alcohol, and to other drugs of abuse. And it turns out they're also more likely to become pathological gamblers. That is, the same gene that confers risk for alcoholism, for nicotine dependence, and for cocaine addiction also confers risk for pathological gambling. So even considering genetics, pathological gambling and drug addiction seem quite similar. Let's finish up by spending a few minutes talking about treatment options. Well, it turns out that some of the same approaches that are used in the treatment of drug addictions are also used in the treatment of pathological gambling, which may not be surprising given all the similarities that we've just discussed. For example, many people find 12-step programs like Gamblers Anonymous to be helpful because they provide social support and accountability from people who can understand and relate. Another approach is cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, which we've also encountered before. The basic idea behind CBT is that our behavior is a result of our thoughts. So if we can identify the thoughts and motivations that give rise to gambling, then we can begin to control it. For example, if someone gambles because they're bored, maybe they could take up a healthier hobby like basketball or bowling that provides an alternative source of excitement. If someone else gambles as an escape from stress, maybe going to the gym would be a better way to relieve that stress. But once the gambler has developed an explicit strategy, then they're much better equipped to cope with the urges to gamble when they do arise.
Now, somewhat surprisingly, certain medical treatments that have been used for drug and alcohol addiction have also proved helpful in treating gambling addiction. In particular, a number of studies have found that the opioid antagonist naltrexone, which we discussed as a treatment for alcoholism, is also effective in reducing gambling behavior. So why would an opioid antagonist help reduce gambling and gambling urges? Well, recall that opioids activate the nucleus accumbens and produce feelings of euphoria. Well, being an opioid antagonist, naltrexone competes with endogenous opioids, and it therefore blocks the high associated with gambling. And blocking that high makes gambling less appealing and therefore easier to resist. The major takeaway message from today's lecture is simple. Addiction to gambling is quite similar to addiction to drugs. But think about the implications of that. It means that we can no longer think of addiction simply as dependence on a particular chemical. Instead, any activity that hyperstimulates the brain's reward circuit could potentially be addictive. And of course, in today's society, there are a lot of activities that could potentially hyperstimulate the brain's reward circuit. And that raises a host of other questions. What other behaviors are potentially addictive? Can someone get addicted to video games? What about pornography or even junk food? Where should we draw the line? Those are some of the questions we'll address in our next lecture. Lecture 12, junk food, porn, video games, addictions, We've reached the final lecture in our course on the addictive brain, and we've covered quite a variety of addictions, ranging from alcoholism to heroin addiction. We've seen that different addictions share many similarities in the underlying mechanisms, both at a genetic level and especially at a neural level. They're also all characterized by a persistent continuation of the problem behavior despite significant negative consequences. Well, by now you may have thought of many other behaviors that some people persistently engage in despite significant negative consequences. And some of those behaviors may involve the consumption of a stimulus other than a psychoactive drug. In this lecture, I want to talk about three such stimuli. Junk food, pornography, and video games. Are some people actually chocoholics, or chipaholics, or mickaholics? That is, can you really become addicted to junk food? What about pornography or video games? Now, it's important to point out at the outset that we're entering a gray area here. Scientists themselves don't yet agree on whether a difficulty controlling one's use of these kinds of stimuli constitutes true addiction. And a lot of that controversy revolves around how one defines addiction. But regardless of one's definition, what is absolutely clear is that millions and millions of people have significant difficulties controlling their consumption of these stimuli, to the point that it significantly interferes with their daily life. Why? 
What makes some people get so consumed with these stimuli? Well, we'll address this question from two angles. First, we'll talk about the psychology of junk food, porn, and video games. In particular, we'll discuss ways in which these stimuli are in some sense super normal. That is, they exaggerate features of normal stimuli that human beings were designed to find rewarding. And second, we'll talk about the neuroscience of these supernormal stimuli. How do junk food, porn, and video games affect the brain? And are those effects similar to the effects of drugs of abuse? Well, let's begin with psychology, and in particular, with some work by the Dutch scientist Nicholas Tinbergen. Tinbergen systematically observed how different birds, fish, and other animals behaved in their natural settings, and he carefully described many interesting and sophisticated behaviors that were previously unknown. One animal that Tinbergen studied in detail was the stickleback fish. During mating season, the male stickleback develops a red-colored underbelly, and it becomes very territorial. It builds a nest in the center of its territory, and it tries to attract female sticklebacks to lay eggs in the nest. But if another male enters the territory, then the stickleback fish will attack and try to drive the other male away. Well, Tinbergen tried to figure out what it was about other males that triggered the fish to attack. He began to by introducing different fish models into the stickleback's territory. He tried very realistic fish models and simple oval-shaped models that didn't look much like fish at all. He also tried varying the color of the models, and that's when Tinbergen discovered something really interesting. He found that the male stickleback would attack anything red. It didn't matter whether the model was realistic or not. All that mattered was the color. The sticklebacks actually ignored realistic fish models that weren't colored, but they vigorously attacked a red model, even if it was just an oval shape that didn't look like a real fish at all. In fact, there was even a report of a stickleback fish trying to attack a red postal van that was parked across the street from the lab. Next, Tinbergen started experimenting with how red the model was, and he found something else very interesting. The redder the model, the stronger the attack response. In fact, he found that the stickleback would attack a bright red model. More strongly than it would a real male stickleback fish, and Tinbergen noticed the same kind of behavior in many other animals. For example, the gray lag goose will instinctively use its head to roll back an egg that has gotten out of its nest, and given the choice between rolling back a normal-sized egg and a larger model egg, the goose would roll back the larger model. In fact, it even preferred trying to roll a volleyball back into its nest instead of a normal-sized egg. Likewise, Tinbergen found that small birds would ignore their own small eggs in order to sit on large polka-dotted model eggs, 
even models so big that the bird would slide off. Male butterflies preferred mating with a cardboard butterfly that had exaggerated markings compared with a real butterfly that had less defined markings. And baby gulls were more likely to beg for food from a red stick with white stripes compared with a real mother gull. In all these cases, Tinbergen was able to identify key features of a natural stimulus that triggered a specific behavior. And by exaggerating those key features, he could construct artificial stimuli that actually induced a larger-than-normal response. And he referred to such stimuli as supernormal stimuli. Okay. But what does all this have to do with junk food, pornography, and video games? Well, you can make a case that all three of these stimuli are also supernormal. In fact, Dr. Dr. Deirdre Barrett wrote an entire book about the important role that modern supernormal stimuli play in the many types of compulsive behavior displayed in modern society. Take junk food, for example. As you probably know, obesity is a significant health problem in the U.S. In fact, about two-thirds of Americans are overweight, and about one-third are clinically obese. Now, there are a number of reasons for the epidemic of obesity in the U.S., but I think it's fair to say that one of the most important is our easy access to junk food. For almost all of human history, people had no choice but to eat fresh, unprocessed food that was relatively low in calories. There simply weren't any alternatives. High-calorie foods were very rare. Furthermore, most people had to walk long distances and perform quite a bit of manual labor just to survive, and they therefore burned a lot of calories relatively quickly. Now, in these kinds of environments, calories are actually a precious commodity. And so it's important for us to be motivated to consume high-calorie foods whenever we can. And our brains are designed to do just that. Foods that are high in sugar, fat, or salt can taste very good and be very rewarding. In fact, motivating us to consume high-calorie foods is one of the things that our reward circuit was designed for. And for most of our history, being motivated to eat high-calorie foods was actually a very good thing because it inspired us to get as many of those precious calories as possible. Now, here's the problem. In Western society today, calories aren't nearly so precious. In fact, they're very easy to come by. High-calorie foods for our ancestors were things like fruit, and nuts. Today, we have high-fat junk food and refined carbohydrates. These kinds of foods have far more calories than anything our ancestors would ever eat. And so the motivational circuits in our brains find them extremely rewarding. So in a very real sense, they're super normal stimuli, just like Tinbergen's bright red fish models and extra-large eggs. Today's junk food is like an exaggerated version of our ancestors' fruits and nuts. 
And eating such food therefore engages the motivational circuits in our brain in a very powerful way. And it can lead to significant cravings and overconsumption. The bottom line is that our brains were designed for simpler environments. But now they have to cope with the modern world. And to be honest, our brains aren't that well suited to many aspects of modern life. Our brains are expecting us to eat fresh produce and walk everywhere, not drive through at McDonald's and sit in front of a computer all day. Now let's turn to pornography. If you think about it, exactly the same argument can be applied. The same neural circuits that motivate us to eat high-calorie foods also motivate us to be fruitful and multiply. These circuits reward us handsomely whenever we engage in sex, and they motivate us to do so. Again, this is one of the things our reward circuit was designed for. After all, if we weren't motivated to have sex, we might not have any children. But here's the thing. Our brains are adapted to an environment in which sexually provocative stimuli are rare. After all, before magazines, TVs, and computers, it was actually pretty rare to see someone without any clothes on, unless you were married. Just ask any male who grew up before the internet. Of course, everything has changed in modern Western culture. In today's culture, we are inundated with images of naked or nearly naked people. In fact, two out of every three shows on television today include significant sexual content, and that proportion only goes up during prime time. 10% of today's shows either depict or strongly imply sexual intercourse. And of course, TV is nothing compared to pornography. Now, getting reliable statistics on pornography is tough, but consider these facts. In 2005, pornography accounted for approximately 70% of the total pay-per-view internet content market. An analysis of 400 million web searches between July 2009 and July 2010 found that 13% of those searches were looking for erotic content. Another study examined the most common query terms on a single day in 2006. Would you believe 21 of the 25 most common terms, at least in image searches, were sexual? Well, as these numbers suggest, the pornography industry is incredibly big business. In fact, in 2007, worldwide pornography revenues were estimated to be about $20 billion. That's larger than the annual revenue of Netflix, of Yahoo, and of the National Football League. Combined. Clearly, porn is another example of a modern-day supernormal stimulus. In fact, it may be even more stimulating and rewarding than junk food. So whereas in simpler times, it would be relatively rare to see sexually provocative stimuli, now it's as simple as a click of your mouse. And obviously, people are clicking those mice in record numbers. Now let's turn and look at our third example of a supernormal stimulus, video games. 
Video games have come a long way since Atari introduced the very simple tennis game Pong back in the 1970s. Today's games involve sophisticated graphics, elaborate and detailed fantasy worlds, and extensive quests and adventures. And they are very big business. For example, the game Grand Theft Auto V earned more than $1 billion in the first three days it was for sale. By comparison, that's more than five times faster than any movie in history. Now, scientific studies of video gaming are still in their infancy, but there is a growing consensus that modern video games can lead to compulsive use in some individuals. For example, Dr. Douglas Gentile at Iowa State University surveyed nearly 1,200 American kids between the ages of 8 and 18 about their use of video games. He then took the criteria used to diagnose pathological gambling, and he adapted those criteria to estimate the incidence of pathological video game use. And he found that about 8% of American kids met at least six of the criteria for pathological video game use and could be tentatively classified as pathological gamers. These kids played video games an average of about 25 hours a week, and they experienced significantly more problems as a result of their gaming than did other kids. In extreme cases, the negative consequences can be absolutely tragic. For example, in 2005, a 28-year-old South Korean man actually died from exhaustion and dehydration after playing the popular game StarCraft nearly nonstop for roughly 50 hours. Two years later, 16-year-old Daniel Petrick shot both his parents after they'd forbidden him to play Halo 3. The legal defense based their case on the claim that Daniel was addicted to video games. And in 2009, a three-month-old infant died of malnutrition while her parents raised a virtual child in an online game. Now, obviously, these kinds of cases are the exception rather than the rule. Much like gambling, most people who play video games can do so with enough self-control that they don't lose their job and their family, or worse, their life. But at the very least, I think we can agree that video games can be extremely engrossing. But why? Well, a video game designer named Michael Astolfi wrote a thesis at NYU that identified many features of modern video games that are super normal. Here's the basic argument. Before the development of commercial agriculture and refrigeration and shipping, people had to hunt and forage for food for themselves and their family. And so, at a fairly primitive level, we may be designed to hunt and to find hunting rewarding. And modern video games take hunting to a whole new level. For example, hitting a target with a projectile is one of the core skills involved in hunting. And people also find it inherently rewarding. Sports ranging from archery to basketball involve hitting a target with some kind of projectile. 
In fact, we even call it shooting in both basketball and hockey. So perhaps it's not a coincidence that some of the most popular and engrossing video games are first-person shooter games, which involve trying to hit targets with projectiles. Furthermore, in most first-person shooter games, there are a large number of targets to shoot at almost all the time. A skilled player is therefore constantly being rewarded with a hit on the order of every few seconds. Now, let's contrast that to real hunting, particularly if you're using a primitive projectile weapon like a spear. Well, in that situation, hitting the target might happen only once every few days. So, once again, we see how the modern stimulus is super normal. It takes a naturally rewarding behavior and jacks it up to be significantly more stimulating than the original behavior was. And the huge video game industry is evidence of just how rewarding and engrossing that supernormal stimulus can be. Now let's turn to neuroscience and ask how these stimuli affect the brain. Are the neural effects of these kinds of stimuli similar to the effects of drugs of abuse? Well, scientific studies of these questions are still in their infancy. And in particular, neuroscientific studies of porn addiction are very few and far between. There are, however, some new studies on the neuroscience of compulsive eating and compulsive video gaming that shed some light on how these stimuli affect the brain. Let's start with dopamine. Recall, dopamine is the molecule that's associated with wanting or craving, and it underlies our motivation to do virtually everything that we do. And that definitely includes eating. As we mentioned briefly in Lecture 3, my colleague Kent Barrage at the University of Michigan compared the behavior of normal mice to that of mice that had been genetically engineered to have abnormally high dopamine levels. And he found that increased dopamine levels led to increased food craving. Specifically, high dopamine mice run significantly faster towards sweet-tasting Fruit Loops than normal mice do, even though they show no signs of liking the Fruit Loops more. And dopamine has also been found to play an important role in video game playing. Matthias Kep and his colleagues at the Hammersmith Hospital in London used positron emission tomography to measure dopamine levels in the reward circuit while participants played video games. And they found that playing a simple tank navigation game led to significant increases in dopamine in the reward circuit. And furthermore, People who had the most success when playing the game also released the most dopamine. Now notice, it's dopamine, not sugar or testosterone, that's associated with food craving and video game playing. The desire to eat chocolate or to play Call of Duty both derive from dopamine acting on the brain's reward circuitry. A second important point we made about the neuroscience of addiction is that the pleasure response can get numbed by repeated activation. So over time, addicts often feel less pleasure from the same dose of their drug. Addicts often turn to larger doses in an effort to overcome their numbed experience. 
but doing so only further numbs the pleasure centers. Well, it turns out that the same process can happen for our new supernormal stimuli. My colleague Ashley Gearhart at the University of Michigan used functional MRI to measure the neural response to food and food cues in two groups of young women. One group was classified as potential food addicts based on their answers to a food addiction questionnaire that Dr. Gearhart developed. The other group was classified as controls. The brain activity in the two groups differed in two interesting ways. First, when food-related cues were presented, like pictures of food, the food addicts showed increased activation in the reward circuit relative to the controls. However, when they actually consumed a chocolate milkshake, the food addicts actually showed reduced activity in reward-related areas. Now, these results are consistent with the idea that compulsive eaters are hypersensitive to food-related cues, but actually derive less than normal pleasure from real food consumption. And of course, that's just the kind of behavior that we've seen in drug addicts. They crave drugs more, despite deriving less and less pleasure from them. Simone Kuhn and Jürgen Galanat reported a similar finding in a neuroimaging study of pornography. 64 German men were asked how much pornography they watched on average each week, and their neural activity was also measured while they viewed pornographic images. The men who watched the most pornography each week actually exhibited the least neural activity in the reward circuit, consistent with the idea that they had developed a tolerance to sexually provocative images and a numbed reward response. Finally, what about the kind of neural rewiring that we discussed when we talked about drugs of abuse? Recall, drug addiction is associated with stronger neural associations between drug-related cues and drug-taking behavior. So for the drug addict, the cues might be things like a needle or a crack pipe. And these stimuli become so strongly associated with drug taking that the mere sight of them immediately triggers thoughts of getting high. Well, environmental cues can also get strongly associated with consuming junk food and viewing porn or playing video games. For example, many people have developed very strong associations between watching TV and eating high-calorie food. Or maybe it's tough to walk by the vending machine at work or to check out at the grocery store without having an impulse to buy a candy bar. Stress is also a very common trigger to eat. In the case of pornography, cues could include a specific computer or sexually provocative stimuli on TV or in magazines. And for video games, it might be the sight of the game console or bumping into another regular gamer. And a few studies have now confirmed these kinds of effects at a neural level. We already discussed Dr. Gearhart's fMRI study, which found that food-related cues activated the reward circuit more strongly in food addicts than in controls. Chi Hung Ko and colleagues at the Kaohsiung Medical University in Taiwan 
reported a similar finding in the neural activity of compulsive video gamers. They found that game-related cues, specifically screenshots from video games, produced significantly greater reward circuit activity in the gamers than it did in the controls. And furthermore, participants who exhibited the most neural activity were also the ones who reported the most craving to play after viewing the pictures. The bottom line is that modern-day supernormal stimuli affect the brain in some of the same ways that drugs of abuse do. Finally, let's talk about approaches to overcoming behavioral addictions. Now, there aren't many scientific studies on how to treat behavioral addictions yet, but let me draw a few general principles from studies of addiction more generally that might be helpful. First, and perhaps foremost, someone with a behavioral addiction has to recognize that they have a problem, and they have to be committed to trying to overcome it. Notice, the motivation really has to come from within. It can't come from someone else. In fact, addicts often react defensively when confronted by others about their problem behavior, and they might even become more resistant to change because they don't want to be told what to do. It's often helpful to approach the addict with empathy and compassion rather than with judgment and anger, but ultimately the addict has to want to change. Second, it's important to understand the cognitive and emotional motivations that lead to the behavior. What thoughts and feelings trigger a desire to eat junk food, to view porn, to play video games, or to engage in any other harmful behavior? Is it a response to boredom or to stress? Are there particular environmental stimuli that tend to trigger the problem behavior? Once those triggers have been identified, the addict can develop a strategy for avoiding them or coping with them when they do arise. For example, they might make a conscious decision to participate in some distracting physical activity whenever they experience craving. Third, developing a network of people to provide support and accountability can be very beneficial. Breaking an addiction requires hard work, but having a social support network can make it somewhat easier. Well, we've arrived at the end of our course on the addictive brain. Let's conclude by reviewing three of the main takeaway points that we've discovered along the way. First, when scientists refer to addiction, they mean something pretty specific, namely compulsive continuation of a behavior despite truly significant negative consequences. The term is meant to refer to situations like the alcoholic who can't stop drinking, even though they know it's costing them their family and livelihood, or the smoker who keeps smoking even after they've been diagnosed with emphysema. But it can also refer to behavioral addictions, like gambling, when it's compulsive and continuous despite tragic financial consequences. Now, many people use the word addiction in a more lighthearted way. For example, people often say that they're addicted to coffee or addicted to golf, even though those habits don't lead to significant negative consequences. 
But a true addictive disorder would only be diagnosed based on evidence of abuse, of physical dependence, and of pathological craving. A second take-home point is that some people are genetically more susceptible to addiction than others. Virtually all aspects of addiction are significantly heritable. Nevertheless, there is no single addiction gene. Rather, a large number of genes can increase the risk of addiction. And just because someone is genetically susceptible, that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll become an addict. Finally, a third take-home point is that all addictions have a biological basis. There is literally something different in the brains of addicts. All addictions hijack the brain's reward system, rewiring it to produce pathological craving, numbing the pleasure response, and weakening inhibitory self-control. And understanding that biological basis of addiction can help us make sense of the seemingly incomprehensible behaviors that addicts often exhibit. Well, that concludes our journey through the addictive brain. I hope this course has provided you with some tools to understand the many complicated issues associated with addiction and to think more critically about how we should deal with them. Thanks for taking the course. We hope you have enjoyed these lectures from The Great Courses. Our courses are available online or via the free Great Courses app for smartphones and tablets, available on the App Store or Google Play. View our full library at thegreatcourses.com or, as always, you can call our customer care representatives at 1-800-832-2412. Thank you very much.